This is Jocko Podcast number 351 with me, Jocko Willink. Master Sergeant Andrew Christian Marcusano was born in Phoenix, Arizona on October 22nd, 1986. He graduated from San Luis Obispo High School in 2004, joined the Army in 2005 as an infantryman. Master Sergeant Marcusano's first assignment was in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he served in the 2nd of the 508th, 82nd Airborne Division. Rose through the ranks from rifleman to squad leader while at Fort Bragg. He deployed to Afghanistan in 2007 and 2009. In 2011, he was assigned to Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. In 2013, Master Sergeant Marcusano was deployed again to Afghanistan. In 2013, he attended Special Forces Assessment and Selection at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And he was selected to attend the Q course there. He graduated in 2015 as a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant, assigned to 2nd Battalion, 7th Special Forces Group. Master Sergeant Marcusano deployed again to Afghanistan as a senior weapons sergeant on ODA 7223 and in 2016 to Colombia. Master Sergeant Marcusano's schools included basic airborne course, modern, modern Army Combatives Level 1 and 2 Ranger Indoctrination Program, Small Unit Ranger Tactics Course, Warrior Leaders Course, Basic non-commissioned officer course, advanced leaders course, ranger course, SEER, free fall parachutist course, and the special forces weapons sergeant qualifications course. Master Sergeant Marcusano's awards include the Silver Star, the Army Commendation Medal, the Army Achievement Medal, Valorous Unit Award, Army Good Conduct Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Afghan Campaign Medal, Combat Infantryman's Badge, Ranger Tab, Special Forces Tab, Parachute Badge, Military Freefall Parachutist Badge. Master Sergeant Marcusano had a wife and three children, Riley, Andrew, and Madeline. And his friends that served with him, alongside him, called him the real Captain America. And in early July 2020, he sent some of those friends a message. He said, text me. I told you before, my door's open. My phone is at hand. We did things that people make movies about and in some cases, writers and producers wouldn't even try to write our story. But the rucksack is heavy. And when it gets heavy, we help each other. But you have to reach out. Don't let the valley win. So that's Andrew Marcusano. The kind of guy that we all look up to kind of guy that's looking out for us, kind of guy that we see as strong and unflappable, kind of guy that's helping others and of course couldn't possibly need any help himself.
but a few days after sending that message to his friends and comrades on July 6, 2020, Andy Marcosano killed himself. Which is a nightmare. And it's only one of thousands of these cases. And we've talked about some of them on this podcast. We talked to Sarah Wilkinson about her husband, Chad, who committed suicide after multiple combat deployments with the SEAL teams. We talked with Mike Hayes about a friend of ours named Job Price, another SEAL. This one who killed himself in the middle of a deployment. And the list goes on and on in every branch, and it's not a new problem. On this podcast, we discussed Charles White Whittlesley, Medal of Honor recipient, World War I, who killed himself after returning home. We discussed the awful suicide of Lewis Puller Jr., son of Chesty Puller, who was wounded in Vietnam and fought off the darkness for 25 years before finally losing his battle with the demons. But there are people that overcome. There are people that find a way to push through and push on and begin to truly live again. And there are many ways to get there. And tonight, it's an honor to have Amber and Marcus Capone with us, two people who have found a path. a path out of the darkness, a path toward the light, and they're doing their best to share it with as many people as they can. Marcus was a SEAL for 13 years, completed multiple deployments overseas, and his wife, Amber, also here, who stuck with him through all that and much more. And from everything I can tell, she eventually saved him from himself. Amber, Marcus, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on. I know it's a heavy topic and I know you are, are in the trenches every day dealing with this and trying to help people out. So thanks for coming on here to share your story and, and hopefully guide some other people in the right direction. Um, I guess we just start at the beginning. Like, uh, I guess start with Marcus, your, your childhood, Where'd you grow up? What was that all about? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for that introduction. That was, uh, wow. <laughs> Just, wow. Yeah. Powerful. Uh, Powerful. You know, one of, one of my most, um, you know, every, every single Marine knows who Chesty Puller is. Probably the most iconic Marine of all time. Um, if not, he's definitely in the top two or three. And yet no one knows about his son. Or I shouldn't say no one. Very few people know about his son. And it's, I think it's one of the most tragic stories in history. 
about what happened to his son and Lewis Puller Jr. coming out of Vietnam so severely wounded, but I mean, he like kind of got it together eventually and wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book, which is an incredible book, and it just kind of fell apart at the end. Um, and we should, that should be, you know, he people should know at least as much about him as they do about his dad. Because if that's not a warning, then I don't know what is. Um, yeah, Jocko, I think that's a good point. Um, and that story in particular is that, you know, I'm good right now and, and guys are good, but it took him, you know, 25 years. You know, he wrote Pulitzer Prize book. Seemed like he was okay, but I feel we've all come to this point and even, you know, you go do this treatment that we're going to talk about. Um, it doesn't mean you're healed forever. You don't go to the gym or go downstairs to work out and think you're going to be a black belt for a day or you're trying every day, right? And so I think in this healing process, it's, you know, I don't want to call us damaged, but we came to a point where we needed some help to climb out of some darkness. And so I have to work on it every day, literally every day, probably forever. And so I, I you know, you mentioning that story, I think is important for people to hear. Like, this is not a one and done. This is not a panacea. You know, this is this is forever, right? And this is forever. And so we got to work on ourselves every day forever. Otherwise, you know, we don't want to end up, uh, you know, underground too early. So, um, yeah. So let's talk about how you got here, how you got here sitting here today. Uh, where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I was, uh, Born in Queens, New York. Uh, moved to the island when I was uh, Long Island when I was three, and um, you know I thought I was just like a typical Long Island kid. Uh, I played everything. You know, my dad um, and my grandfather both played college sports: basketball, baseball, football. Um, so I literally, I think I had a ball in my hand at you know two or three years old. I was on skis at three. I was in the water at four. Um, we had uh, one of the top wrestling programs in New York, and so I was like on a mat at like seven. You know, in most of those places, you didn't get to wrestle like junior high or maybe even high school. And so, you know, I was lucky, um, and I grew up in a beach town in Long Beach, New York. And so, you know, I was always in the water, always on the beach. I was a lifeguard at sixteen. Um, yeah, I mean, I thought life was good. And, you know, I know that, that sounds like a pretty freaking no, good No, I mean, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was, you know, at least I thought it was good. Both your, both your, uh, your, your dad and your granddad were athletes when you said like. Yeah, they were, they were athletes. My, uh, my grandfather was an all-state basketball player. Mm-hmm. Um, white dude too from New York, which is, you know, to play basketball. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll brag. I think New York's got some of the best basketball in the world. So, uh, you know, we, we played, played in tough leagues. Um, and then my dad was more uh, football and baseball. So he he started as a freshman in high school, uh, which was huge in, in the Catholic high school league. So I went to All Boys Catholic High School where he went, Holy Cross and Flushing. There's a shout out. And um, yeah, so I, don't I just- I am cut out for that All Boys scenario. Yeah, well maybe it's why, why I'm here today. <laughs> Who knows? Um, hey, what about like grades and stuff? Were you doing good in school? I was, I was good in school. I was really good up until high school, and I, I slipped a little bit. So I was like a straight. Were you still in an all boys school in high school? Yeah, high school was all boys. So oh, okay. I went to public grammar and middle school in Long Island, and then 
I went to Old Boys Catholic High School in back in New York. So I took the train for an hour every day. Uh, the football coach um, at the time would pick me up in Valley Stream. So I did. Wait, what year is this? So this is 90. Like what year did you graduate? 94. Okay. Check. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I would, I would take the train at like 5.50 in the morning. He'd pick me up at 6.30, the coach, and then he'd drive me in um, the rest of the way. So that was just normal back then. Um, you know, some people don't understand it now, but the uh, Catholic high school league in everything was good. And I didn't uh, – I grew up in a town that didn't have a great public high school. And um, – Again, I was, you know, I was all about sports. So wherever they had the best sports, I was, I was going. To, I was going. <laughs> what'd, you, what'd your dad do for a living? Um, you know, he he kind of just a, a bit of a hustler, really. Never um, never finished college. Like um, Mensa smart though. Super smart. You know, was really into the market, and but just never applied himself. Um, he uh, he wind up. I think the last 20 years he was a bridge operator. So he literally opened and closed a drawbridge in the county. And, you know, he worked for the county and well, the, had the, benefits. And the funny thing is whenever my – I think my Uncle Shane asked me, what does Marcus's dad do? And I asked you or asked him or something. And he goes, tell him I work for the union. Just the un- leave it at that. Yeah, for the union. <laughs> well, he used to tell people he was a bridge engineer. <laughs> <laughs> It sounded better than telling them that he was uh, opening and closing a drawbridge. And, um, and then on the side, he moonlighted. He, um, he drove for people. So he would drive for um, elected officials. Yeah, and but like um, who? I'm, I'm drawing a blank from maybe, New York. Maybe Some like governor? Or? Yeah, yeah. You know, just a few like kind of. So he had like a Lincoln, he had like a town Lincoln Town car and he was getting <laughs> literally out. had a square Lincoln Town <laughs> car yeah. that was handed down to me. Yeah, V eight <laughs> sucked gas. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love that thing. <laughs> and, and what about your mom? Lincoln Town was she around? You hit it right on the head. Yeah, yeah. Mom worked for a dentist for over thirty years, so she was uh, she was at the front answering the phone, you know, paying the bills, greeting everyone. So I had free free dental growing up, which was nice, right? <laughs> and what about brothers and sisters? None. You're only child. I was only child. I had a I have a half sister I've never met. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, uh, that, at least that <laughs> I, 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 I well I can't remember. Well, I mean I we I mean I never I anyway. can't I don't remember that. Yeah. So it was like less than one when I mm-hmm. think they separated us. But uh, yeah, other than that, it was just me. So spoiled. Spoiled only child, there and told, and the focus was just on sports. It was all on sports, and you know, and academics. My dad was he was an academic, and you know, I would literally get like backhanded if I came home with like you know a B. Mm-hmm. Or, That's the part of his childhood. Yeah, that, it's the part that you know, you know that may not very, have been very very hard. Dad. Yeah, dad. Dad was hard, right? So, um, what do you think was driving that in your dad? Because it sounds like he's kind of laid back in a way, or is he just pouring all of his dreams into you? I think that. <laughs> I think you hit it. I hit, I think you hit that on the head. Yeah, my parents went to Woodstock. I mean, they were like they were like hippies, oh, okay. sort of hippies. You know, mom used to protest the war, um, but yeah, he had like a real mean side, and his grand his dad. My grandfather was even meaner. Um, I think he told me what before noon he'd already he would already drink like two quarts of beer, you know, quarts back in the day. <laughs> um, and then he owned they owned uh, like his family owned a bunch of the um, I guess a medallion like a cabs uh, in New York. Oh yeah, you know Capones from New York, right? Um, 
And so I don't know how he was treated as a kid. Well, I'll tell you how. He, he was sent away to boarding school, all boys, Catholic this, this boarding school. This is your dad. This is my dad uh-huh. in the Bronx at four years old. So, I mean, if you and I think back at four, kind of yeah. love we had from our parents, his sent him away <laughs> uh, to Catholic boarding school in the Bronx. And I could just imagine what went on there from, Yeesh. you know, some of the some of the individuals that, you know, we're hearing about now, all these stories these days. So maybe he had some shit uh, that he was he was getting out on me. Um <laughs> Possibly, right? But, he, but it sounds like he just wanted you to be successful in a big way. It was all about me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he like they hung up their life to. He was at every practice, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right there, cheering, watching. Did he know, yell at the referees? Yelling. No, that was my mom. Okay. <laughs> so no, he would he would backhand me if if something just didn't seem right, and she would get thrown out of the little league World Series <laughs> because she was screaming at the freaking umpire <laughs> about a call, and they actually did get thrown out. Like she had to leave the stadium. Hell yeah! In the little league, uh, I say hell yeah. I <laughs> like people. I don't know why people get the impression that I would like be uh, yelling and screaming, but I never like for my kids played sports. I would just I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't even coach them. I wouldn't even, well, maybe occasionally, but most of the time I would just sit there and watch because it's hard to coach your own kids, man. They don't, they don't really want to listen to you. So no, uh, no, no matter how much you know, yeah, you're just telling me the story downstairs. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was telling him my, my son was doing jujitsu. I've been doing jujitsu at this point. I've been doing jujitsu for like 25 years, and my son, I'm watching him roll, and he's got an arm lock on somebody, and I say, hey, you know, you need to get your hips a little further underneath that elbow. And he looks at me and he just goes, no, you don't. And I'm like, oh, okay, fair enough, <laughs> old bastard. Um, not going to listen to anything. But so you, so you, your grades are good. Yeah. You sound like a freaking good model kid. I was a good kid, but I think that was the problem too. I was like, I was, t- I was, I was too nice. Mm. I'm still a little too nice. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I got, you know, I was skinny too. So I was skinny, nice kid that also got put ahead, not held back like we, oh. like we do in Texas. Oh, we hold yeah. back our kids. Yeah, in Texas, the kid's like 17 years old, bonus freshman <laughs> Absolutely. year. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, Seriously. how can you, I mean, you have our to. Our son graduated with someone who was turning 20. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you have to, you know, you have to pass for 3,000 yards. Or, you know, <laughs> of course you do. They call it the Texas gray shirt. <laughs> no, instead, I got put ahead early for whatever reason. And so I was with older kids, skinny, nice kid. And uh, yeah, I got, I definitely got abused. Just picked on. Picked on constantly. What kind of music? I think some people call that rite of passage. I think Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. But uh, it wasn't fun. What kind of music did you like? (sighs) Growing up in New York, like in Queens, um, everything, rap, Mm -hmm. like uh, Beastie Boys, right, from Mm -hmm. Brooklyn, Um, (laughs) Guns N' Roses. So just your kind of normal music. Yeah, it wasn't. For... Late eighties, early nineties, yeah, get then, some. Yeah, and then but then I got into like some other stuff in high school, like um trying to think, like kind of Lollapalooza esque mm-hmm. music, um, Pearl Jam, yeah. you know, everything that was coming out of Seattle. That's right. So all that stuff was good. Because that stuff made it mainstream yeah, in, it was good. in the early nineties. So you could you could like pick it. up on it. Yeah. Even in a big baggy all boys shorts. school. <laughs> boys Catholic high school in Queens. Yeah, was. And was all this geared towards you going to college to play sports? Yes. It actually was. It's all we talked about. I mean, 
That's all I knew. Were you going to camps? I was going to camps Just, every summer from the, I can't even remember, Jocko, that's how far back. I was either in a basketball camp or a football camp at Fordham or a baseball camp, uh, junior lifeguards, like just all that shit, yeah. And what, what did you, what sport did you like the best? I liked football. And I, is, that, is that the one you were best at as that's well? That's the one I was best at, I, I played in college for mm-hmm. her dad, we'll get into that later. Um, but yeah, I got full scholarship to play. Um, definitely beat your body up, of course, but um, I just, I don't know, it was one of those things I, I liked. Um, I was a quarterback from, I think like seven years old and, um, you know, I think it was up to me. I'd probably be surfing. And I tried because we did live in a beach town, and my dad was, like, not having it at all. Um, so I would try to surf, and then immediately, like, it would go right into, you know, some kind of camp or, you know, baseball, double headers in Brooklyn, you know, at 90 degrees in the middle of summer type shit. <laughs> Check. All right, Amber, your turn. Well, I enter the picture at the football juncture where my dad recruited him. But prior to that, you must've been doing something prior to that. What were you doing? Yeah, Prior to that, I grew up in a really small town in Southern Illinois. So everyone, when I say I'm from Illinois, thinks Chicago, but I've actually only been to Chicago one time in my life. Um, I grew up on a retired dairy farm in a very rural part of Illinois. Retired dairy farm, meaning there's no more cows there? Yeah, it's not, there's, there was, it, all the barns were still there, the milk house was there, the oh, farmhouse cool. was there, all the land was there. Was it your families that retired yeah. it? Yes, my great-grandfather, great-great and great-grandfathers were the milkmen of my county. So, and then they shut it down at some point. Yeah, so they had, I don't even know how many, you know, hundreds of cows. My grandfather worked the farm whenever he was in high school. And then at some point shortly thereafter, he was like their farmhand. And he ended up going to college and uh, getting married to my grandmother. And I, I think at some point they retired it after that. And did your dad have to work on the dairy farm at all or was it already done? That was my mom's dad. My dad's dad owned an excavating business oh, and yes my dad and his brothers worked the tractors so i come from a very hard-working family yeah dairy farmers are just, that's a hard life man yeah it's a hard life but like a really good wholesome life mm-hmm. and i just grew up in a really wholesome family in a really wholesome town and um my dad being a football coach just really always drove me loved me but drove me and like he, the the one thing he taught me was don't you ever quit anything, don't ever quit, and so you know it didn't matter how uncomfortable things got in my mind. I'm like, I'm not quitting. I don't have a quit in me. Did you play sports? I was a cheerleader. Right I probably would have been more athletic had my dad been in my life. My parents, he he was in my life, but not in like a dad way. You know, he was. Um, my parents were divorced, so I okay. saw him spring break a couple of months during the summer over christmas but you know day to day i was raised by my mom and cheer did you do cheer how long, how long did you do cheerleading for from the time i was in seventh grade to senior in high school damn so you were out there yeah i remember uh, i was working and my middle daughter she did gymnastics and then she that's like a little there's a little there's a little off ramp or a little on ramp to cheerleading mm-hmm. right and so she was doing gymnastics, and she got on that little ramp, 
And, you know, I was kind of like, dang it, you know, like, it just doesn't seem like it's the thing that you want your daughter to do, at least for me, right? <laughs> and then two things happened. One of them was this woman CEO that I work with, who's an awesome woman. I told her, I was like, yeah, you know, my daughter's doing cheerleading. She's going to do cheerleading. And this woman's like, I did cheerleading and it was awesome. And I was like, really? She goes, yeah, you're out there. You're standing in front of people. You're projecting your voice. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And my daughter only did it for a couple of years. Uh, then she's then she got more committed to wrestling, yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was awesome. Uh, that and another thing that happened was one of my buddies was also had a daughter who was also during, doing cheerleading, and he's like he's kind of making fun of me. He goes, "Oh, you're letting your because his daughter's doing cheerleading, and my daughter's doing. They're both doing cheerleading, but he's gonna make fun of me because I guess I don't <laughs> seem like the cheerleading type of dad." And he goes, oh, you're letting your daughter do cheerleading? And I go, yeah, you know, I figure I either let her do cheerleading or she comes home with a tattoo on her face when she's like 18, (laughs) right? Because that's what happens. You like pressure your kids or you like steer them or you prevent them from doing something. They're gonna rebel hard against you and end up on the wrong path. So anyways, she did cheerleading for a little bit. All good. Uh, And did you do good in school? Oh, yeah. I was pretty much a straight A student. Did you, what did you want to do when you grew up? Did you, did you want to go to college? Like, what was the deal? So my parents were both raised in this really small town. They were in the same class together and had this sort of crush on each other since they were in third grade. Dang. All the way through, you know, junior high school, high school, prom king and queen, captain of the football team, captain of the cheerleading team. Like, you know, they, everything was my two two sides of the family in this one little town but my dad had these big aspirations to be a football coach and so he actually got a a full ride to university of illinois and um that's where he ended up going for his first coaching you know his first Mm -hmm. coaching gig and um from that point on when he got out of that little town he always said to me you get out of here as soon as you can dang because he knew that you know, there wasn't the opportunity for me there that I would need to have, you know, that he wanted me to have mm-hmm. in life. I don't think he thought Marcus would be my ticket out of there, but, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he helped facilitate that. And how, all right. So let's get to that. So you end up getting recruited to go play football? I did at Southern Illinois. Um, and I, Amber, your dad was the head coach there? Yeah, so at that point, he'd been from U of I. He went to Miami of Ohio and then got the head foot, head football coaching job at Southern Illinois University. And that was about 10 minutes from this little town that I grew up in. So he was 34 years old, and he was the head coach um, of, you know, our, our hometown team. Yeah, big school, though, 25,000 students. Yeah. It was Division One. Yeah. Right? Now it's the, it's the enrollment's really gone down significantly, like a lot of schools. But it was, it was you know, it was, it was a large school back then. Yeah. And you roll in, you get recruited D1. Yeah, it was um, so I got hurt in high school, so I wound up not playing my senior year. What was the injury? Uh, I tore a couple of ligaments in my wrist, my throwing wrist. Um, tried to play through it for a couple of years, and they never – actually, no one ever knew it was torn. I just kept having this – like, I'd land on it wrong mm-hmm. and, you know, have this, like, screaming pain. Finally got an MRI, and they're like, yeah, you're, you have several torn ligaments. Like, that's why you're – in pain. So I said, we can do surgery. Um, now you'll miss football season, but you'll be back for baseball season or you can play football season and then have surgery after, but you'd miss baseball season. 
So just chatting with, you know, dad, um, I was excelling more in baseball. And we decided, you know what, let's hang up football, have the surgery, and we'll get you ready for baseball season. And you said what year was this? You, what, what this was 94, 94. But what school year was it? Like this was your junior year? This was my, uh, like, summer. Yeah, summer okay. summer going into senior year. Got it. And so we decided to go ahead with the surgery. And, and uh, they went in and, and uh, they did, like, an arthroscope. And they found, like, the ligaments torn. And then they just went ahead and sewed them back. And I remember it, it was a long uh, recovery. It was, like, it was almost six months. Um, and this is, this is so my dad. So I get done, get the surgery, go through, you know, however long I was in a cast, get the cast off, literally came home from getting the cast off after being in it for like four months. It was, it was long. It was, it was weird. And he, he literally put, grabbed two mitts and pulled me onto the beach and he was like, throw the ball. I'm not, I'm not making this shit up, but, but first off, like, can you imagine the size, like, difference? It was like, my wrist was like this big. I hadn't done anything. I pick up the ball, and this is no shit. I throw it. I throw was it. it a baseball or football? It was a baseball. Because mm-hmm. I was trying, to, I was trying yeah. to get ready for baseball. I literally threw it, like, a foot in front of me. I didn't even know. And I didn't even know what to say. Like, Dad, I, I can't. Like, I'm in a lot of pain. Did he get mad? He, like... Yeah. Oh my yes. gosh. It was so fucking weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, he got mad at me like it was my fault that I couldn't throw this baseball after I just got at it. Anyway, so so I played baseball. Um, didn't have a great season. Just played and 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 um, my younger football coach Tom Frawley, who I considered kind of like my second dad and quarterback coach and. He just said, hey, man, you're so talented. He's like, I think you should play football in junior college. Like you're, you know, I, you know, I, I think you have something. You should do that. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, eh, you know, I kind of threw it around. I went, okay, I'll, you know, I'll take your advice. And I started throwing him in the summer. And I wound up enrolling in uh, at Nassau Community College in New York. And Nassau every year had like top 10 football. Um, they always sent uh, literally anywhere between 15 and 20 guys to Division One and, and, and big Division Ones like Ohio State and Miami and things like that. And so I was going to a real place to play. And when I showed up, man, I was, uh, <laughs> I was skinny. I was 17 going into my freshman year of college. Damn, and you were young. Yeah, huh? it was – yeah, it was – Bro, your dad for all this pushing should have held your ass back like Seriously, two right? years, dude. Two. <laughs> You're right. You're so right. So I, you know, I show up again, six four, one eighty, and um, I mean, these. This is like a Division One junior college. These guys are fucking massive, from like Brooklyn and the Bronx, and these guys are like straight up meat eaters. <laughs> and um, I'm like, man, I don't even know if I belong here. So I hung in as a, as a freshman. You get redshirted. Um, I went to practice every day. I worked hard. And I turned 18 that December of my freshman year. And like in February, I went from 6'4", 180 to like 6'4", 225. Yeah. On the, I was on the program. <laughs> getting jacked. Getting jacked. And uh, yeah, it was good. I was actually, you know, I felt like a, felt like a human after that. Well, and... I didn't know you then, but from what I gather, all that pent up frustration from the bullies of your childhood, you started taking it out well, yeah, with well, your increased yeah, size. Yeah, we've talked about this. So yeah, so so with the increased weight and size, um, yes, Amber is correct. 
Um, I did. I started getting into a lot of fights, Jocko. Really? Like, stupid, like dumb, like all the time, a lot. And it was like. And this is when you're at this community college? Yeah, it just fed me, I think, because of the years of maybe, you know, dad and then like being skinny, <laughs> constantly getting <laughs> harassed. Um, I finally put on some weight and uh, I would just snap. Every time we went out, didn't matter where, any bar, um, I was getting in a fight. Yeah, so guaranteed. You, I was like, I was that now? guy. You drinking now at this age? Yes. Yep. That doesn't that nope. doesn't subdue fighting either. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> help at all. It doesn't help. Um, yeah, I think growing up on Long Island, I re- actually remember the first time we drank because it was all my high school buddies freshman year. I believe it was Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, Memorial Day, we're all going to get together. We're going to go get a couple cases. We're going to go down to the beach. We're going to drink some beer. And I remember saying, how can like how can you put something in your body and it makes you act weird? Like, I don't. I don't get it. Like, I honestly did not get it. And we were having this <laughs> argument. Like, I don't get it. Like, I could drink 10 of these. Like, I'm going to be fine. Um, and I think I remember at some point of that night, like, humping the pole, <laughs> um, literally. And yeah. so, uh, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't drink. Or so if you do, plus, be responsible. This is your freshman year. You're like 12 or 13 or something. Literally 13. Yeah, yeah I think it was 14 at that. Because yeah. it was the second part of my freshman year. So, so did you keep drinking through this... Or was it a thing or not really? Were you yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I drank, but I drank um, I drank on the weekends when we went out. Mm-hmm. So never during the week. Amber still makes fun of me that I was in bed. He had a bedtime, 9 p.m. until he left the house. Lit- through senior year of high school. Like not even during senior year. Was this a mandated by the old man? This was mandated by mom. Okay. Like, but at that point, though, I didn't think for myself at all. I was just like, oh, it's 8.30. I need to get ready and go to bed. You know, the light was on and my mom's screaming down like, Marcus, shut the light off. Go to bed. You got to get up in the morning and catch the train, you know. Um, meanwhile, Amber's out at my house in college till like 3 in the morning. But we'll, we'll, talk, we'll get into that after. Um, yeah, so... Uh, where were we at? Are you are you thinking through high school? Are you thinking about the military at all? No, not at all. I, I mean, I didn't I didn't think much, Jocko. I'm, mm. I'm just starting <laughs> to come into thinking the last couple of years, and, and you're just totally focused on athletics. That's and it. Like this that's, is what you're that, going to do. That's it. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't think. The only thing, the only connection I had to the military, um, my grandfather had a Purple Heart. It was in the house. I didn't know the difference between a Purple Heart and a Purple Rose, and. Um, he mentioned it was from a, a mortar attack fighting the, uh, I think fighting in Northern Africa against the Italians. Um, and, but he was another guy who evidently got in a lot of fights because I, I guess the military was, was a lot different in World War II where they would pull like your rank away, like when you weren't on the battlefield, you know, if you got in trouble like he did. And then when he came back, I, I don't know, some weird story that I listened to. It was probably completely wrong coming from my dad. Um, so that's the only like real. Well, and your dad was in the army. Well, he was by I think on uh, I don't think, I don't know if he got. Wait, your dad the hippie drafted. was your dad the hippie was yeah. in the army. Yeah, he was in the he was an MP. He was a dog handler. That's all I heard about growing mm-hmm. up was his ferocious dog that bit everybody. So I'm like, so you're a shitty dog handler. <laughs> <laughs> Because we had a few of those guys too, right? Like, what, did, did he give you any impression of like, hey, you know, the military's dumb or you shouldn't join it or whatever, anything like that? Absolutely, yeah. He was, it, you know, he never, I don't think he ever talked about it negatively. Just, just, just 
wasn't yeah, there. Yeah, it just wasn't there. Got it. And, and I wasn't with a crew of like, um, you know, first responder families, like police and fire. So I just didn't have that. You know, it was more like artists and, and uh, but nothing negative, mm-hmm. nothing ever negative, but really no, um, I was never, uh, it, was, I, it just wasn't a part of my life. I was raised a patriot. Yeah. Marcus was not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have a letter that I framed that I wrote in third grade on Veterans Day. And it was, it's so funny to read it back. But even as a nine year old, I'm like, yeah, that's who I am. Were your parents military or was your dad military or granddad or anything? No, my great grandmother had five brothers in World War II. Dang. And two or three of them were killed. One of them was a POW. And so, you know, I just, it was just, instilled in me that we love America and we honor our military. Um, but I didn't ever think I wanted to be married to someone in the military. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> like, a, that's a whole different ball game. Right. I was also, you know, my hometown was so small and um, it wasn't, you know, a very, uh, there wasn't a lot of money in the area that I grew up. And so people that joined the military in my hometown couldn't afford college. It was just a way to pay for college. So like I had this great appreciation, but I also, I was completely dumb to like what the mil- what military service actually was. All right. So let's get into this, how the coach's daughter, <laughs> I mean, how does this go about? This can't be, you, you, Not you said you weren't thinking much, all. right? <laughs> Marcus, I mean, this is, this is like taboo. Is there anything more taboo than, oh, that's the coach's daughter? Cool. Yeah. That's where uh, I'm going to go. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, <laughs> so I, I end up at Southern Illinois um, in, I don't know, was that 96, Amber? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm just trying to think how, how I get into how, how you and I met. So, okay, when I was first looking at the, um, like the media guide for the football team, this was before I even went to Southern Illinois. I was still in New York. Um, I saw that Coach Watson had a – had a you know obviously had a family in there mm-hmm. and had a daughter and I just again never even I was like oh wow that's interesting you know <laughs> like, that that's came across my mind um, but that was it like let's put that away now for like two more years and I show up at school and I think about a year and a half in is I met you at Cuckoo's no at a golf tournament but I didn't even see you there. You didn't see me. I saw you at the golf tournament. Yeah. You looked really angry and pissed off that you were there. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So we had, we did a, um, I guess, uh, like volunteer for the some golf tournament. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing Amber there, like, at the table. And she was angry. And I remember guys saying, like, that's Coach Watson's daughter. You know, and everyone was like, okay, stay away from. Are you w- just trying to keep people at bay, just scowling at everyone? Or what was up with that? I don't know. I think I was probably... I don't know. I think I was probably traumatized by <laughs> having to be there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that was the first now, time. Are you, are, Marcus, at this point, are you like a full-on, like, just straight beard-swilling jock? Yes. Is that what, uh, what One, we're dealing with? 100%. This? But, a nice, but I was a nice jock. I don't know if that makes any sense. But you're fighting a lot. I'm fighting a lot. Still fighting a lot when you get to college? Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Um, I mean, we'll go into – I mean, I was – suspended from Amber's dad my whole sophomore year after I just got named the starting quarterback over four seniors. Um, so your dad was great in, in recruiting me, but not in the choice of, of personality. Um, so that night I go out, uh, go to fraternity party. This is the night you get named as a starting quarterback. Yes. 
So you're sophomore. freaking stoked. And um, I'd been hearing about him and, you know, like the whole area had been hearing about him because you get like this big, good looking mm-hmm. guy from New York mm-hmm. and it's who's named Marcus Capone. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like hearing this buzz. But did you meet him yet? When he gets named no, as the starting quarterback? No, and apparently we'd been at that golf tournament, but I didn't know who he was. And Got it. So, All right, anyway. so now you get so, named. So we go out, myself, the fullback, who was my roommate, who's just a stud, you know, like 600, 400-pound guy, like a <laughs> squat bench, you know, that type of dude, and can run like a four five forty. And um, we go to this fraternity party, which is really off limits. Um, football athletes and, and fraternities really didn't mix. Okay. Um, most of the fraternities like officially, like you're not allowed to go to them, or just no. It's more you just don't because a lot of those guys were high school athletes that couldn't play in college, and so there was a little bit of like mm-hmm. you know bad blood. Mm-hmm. We went because a lot of the female trainers that you, know, you go in and get your you know put your ice in, in yeah. you know your elbow in ice or get hooked up to stem or whatever. Um, they were all sorority, so they invited us. So three of us went. And right from the get-go, you can tell, like, just it's in the air. You know exactly what I'm talking about. The, uh, you could feel the energy in there. It was just not going our direction. And uh, one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, there's uh, literally a whole fraternity house on top of us in the middle of the yard. Um, there were so many of them. I think it was lucky. I think it was what saved us because there were so many that they couldn't like get to us and like punch and kick and everything else. But I do remember like being on the ground and going, man, they can't even get to us. There's, there's so many of them. Uh, I remember this hand, I could feel this hand like coming up like my arm and then my shoulder and then my neck. And then I feel it like get to my face and then like just start like, like, like raking me, like raking my <laughs> eye. I'm like, this guy's trying to pull my, and I couldn't do anything about it. So for somehow, this is the best. So somehow, the fullback, my roommate, crawls out underneath all of them and charges the wooden fence and bull <laughs> literally hits it and knocks the whole fence down in the yard. So you can tell how well these fences were made in, in a college, uh, you know, coll- collegiate house. Pieces of crap. So the fence goes down, which enables us to get out because now we're out of the yard. So I'm standing in the street. Like my eye is completely... Red, like they, they now they, like it's 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 good and, and scratched. Um, I'm missing a sandal. My shirt's ripped. Um, you know, I'm standing in the street cursing, and we we cool down a little bit and we go walking back to the the um, the dorms. Go to bed because that was a fun night getting getting jumped by a fraternity house, the Pikes. And I shouldn't even give him that. <laughs> gave him that shout out. Um, <clears throat> you guys were just jealous. Um, and we we come across um, the str- we, we 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 cross the strip where all the bars and clubs are at. And uh, out on the street, this club is emptying, and it's the um, all the guys on the football team are coming out. <laughs> Oh. And they're like, Marcus, what's going on? What, wait, wait, what, what the fuck happened to you? I'm like, oh man, you know the 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 Pikes, they they jumped us, and these guys, everyone's drunk, and oh, that was it. God. So <laughs> they decided they're going to go back to the fraternity house. Mm-hmm. So like thirty dudes go back to the fraternity house. Um, I follow behind them, and when I get there, it's complete mayhem. There's people getting bricks busted over their face. I watched. A person in the NFL pick up a uh, 
grill a grill and throw it on somebody <laughs> um so it was it was that type of shit going on and and i was like wow so uh police you could hear police sirens coming and like everybody splits and you know kind of the rest is history i get brought in because i was the only white guy at the at the fight they couldn't identify anybody there and um they wanted me to give up all the names of the guys that were there and i was like no chance. I don't even know who's there, actually. So because I would not give up any names, your dad, Amber, suspended <laughs> me for the whole season. God. Um, because they couldn't identify anybody. And so I wind up being suspended for pretty much that was, – and that was it. I kind of crushed – Your dad's a hard ass. I think he was, well, pre- I think he was pressured. <laughs> no, my dad is very principled. And on the same hand, my dad – you know, was trying to turn this program around and his entire team would have been out. So Marcus took the punishment for the whole team. And I, I know he felt bad about that, but I also know that he respected Marcus not giving up anyone's names and it coincidentally saved his ass too, I'm sure. Um, but I remember that fight because I had worked really hard all summer to save money for a car. And we were going to go buy the car. And I had I had picked the car out. We were supposed to go in Saturday. We mean you and your dad? No, really, just me. Oh, okay. Um, well, just to go back, like, it, wasn't a, it was a local fight, but evidently some of the guys at fraternity houses, dads were in kind of higher positions in Chicago. So it, it made national news because <laughs> there were eight guys got yeah. sent to the hospital. So Damn. Yeah, it was like a – it was not good. That's and I, a legit scrap. And I had a few drinks, as you can imagine. Um, it was legit scrap for sure. So I had picked out this car. I'd been working so hard for it. My dad had been so busy. And we were going to go on Saturday morning at 10 a.m. or something. And I call my dad. And I'm like, Dad, are you ready? And he goes like, no, honey. My quarterback caused the biggest fight last night. You have no idea the shitstorm I'm dealing with. And so I'm like, screw your quarterback. I hate him. I don't even know him. He's all I wanted was I've waited so long to get this car. So anyway, that was also the beginning of my independence of being like, you know what? I'll go go negotiate this deal. And that's exactly what I did. (laughs) So um, that was sort of how I came to know like who Marcus even was because it was all over the news. And then I saw his picture in the paper and I was immediately like, oh, damn, <laughs> this is the guy. He's so hot. And um, like fast forward probably a year, my best friend had drank too much at a bowling alley slash nightclub. And I had to go pick her up. And I was not happy about that either. And so um, when I walked in, I went to the back door and the bouncer opened the door so I could get in to get her. And Marcus was sitting, like, from me to him right now. Like, he's right there. And I was, like, immediately taken so aback. And I just said, oh, you're the troublemaker. And uh, we sparked this conversation. I, oh, I, I was so smitten, but I didn't, I don't think I let on like I was. And I saw you there every week for, like, four weeks. I, I went back every week. And then he wasn't there one week. And his friend, who was the bouncer there, took my number and gave it to Marcus and he called me that night and we hung out for the first time on July 4th of 1997 and we've been thick since Mm -hmm. the end (laughs) (laughs) so so you get suspended was that your sophomore year that was my sophomore year you get suspended yeah are you allowed to practice like what are you doing uh, yes 
So I had, yeah, I did just working your ass off. Yeah, I worked my ass off. I practiced every day. Um, I went to treatment room, you know, three days, three times a day. Still went to study hall, which we had to do every evening. And then I broke down every film. So I'd have to watch hours and hours of every play from every angle of every upcoming game. And then I would write, you know, take notes and like all defensive um, coverages. And so I, I learned, you know, I, I, I learned. Um, but it was miserable because I couldn't play on. What did you think of my dad? Sliders. I don't think I've ever asked you this. What, I mean, I what was, was your relationship with my dad like? It, it was it was good. No, we, I mean, we always had a good relationship. I mean, I was angry because I didn't get to, you know, I didn't get to play. Like, How did he pr- treat you then? He treated me well. Yeah, I mean, I was cutting yeah. up film for him every day. It seems like, <laughs> like like there's a little bit of mutual respect. Like he respect kind of respect the fact that you didn't rat anybody out. He actually said, they said that too. They all said that because they were like, Kind of saved the season because if you if any of those you know they were all they were all the you know they <laughs> got all the starters right so um, and these were good guys um, so they weren't yeah they weren't angry they were just like you're an idiot you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you got one you got caught two what are you doing at the Pike House you know that, that sort of thing so there was one time when we were dating but we hadn't been dating for too long that Marcus came home from practice and said your dad knows. And I was like, oh, what do you mean my dad knows? <laughs> and yeah, but that's after he left and went to Northwestern. Yeah. So we were oh. never dating when my dad was there. Got it. That year that Marcus was breaking down film and whatnot, at the end of that year, my dad took a job at Northwestern. Got it. And so a new coach had come in, and I met you when when Coach Q had taken over the team. Yeah, and your Got dad it. already left. So, But he did find out, and he called, and he was not happy with her. Yeah, I was 17. Oh, I was, was in my high senior year of high school. Oh, damn. And how old are you at this point? 20. Oh, yeah. That's not a happy dad. I got three daughters, man. Yeah, yeah you wouldn't be happy. <laughs> I have a sophomore at San Diego State. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. She has pepper spray and taser on her at all times. <laughs> he, I had to call him because I didn't, you know, I respect my dad a lot. And, um, I wanted to call him and sort of like head this off. And one of Marcus's coaches who is still friends with him said like, hey, Coach Watson knows that you're dating his daughter. So I called him and he was like, well, honey, I'm going to tell you this. Um, He said, Marcus is one of the few players that I can say that I I truly love. Like, I I love that kid. He's like, but. He's a womanizer, and he will break your heart. <laughs> and if he breaks your heart, you tell him, I will break his neck. Oh, there you go. Right on. <laughs> Pops had, coming in hot. He had a, yeah, he had a, he had a temper. Yeah, he, he had a real temper. On the field, he had a temper. No, uh-huh. he actually had a temper everywhere. <laughs> he's an he's a amazing human being, though. So, so your dad leaves from coaching that job. The next year, now it's your junior year in college. Are you starting as a quarterback? No, they brought in a, a really good quarterback from Missouri who actually split time at University of Missouri um, with one of the guys who was up for the Heisman. So, you know, really after the fight, I feel like everything just went downhill after that. So, Did, were you still on the team? I was still on the team. I was still under schol- you know, still on scholarship. So, I um, this this guy came in, and you know, we're actually really close to to this date. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Kent Scornia, he's uh, very successful in in Missouri and in St. Louis, and uh, he actually is a, a donor to vets. And um, he was always my roommate on the road. But um, he, 
Yeah, he came in. He was like a true quarterback from the Midwest. Like this guy could sling the ball all over the place. And I played quarterback more as a linebacker, you know. <laughs> um, and that was our difference. So I would, you know, I would put my head down, and uh, you know, he would he would throw the ball, you know, and, and slide and things like that. And uh, and finally, they moved me over to tight end my senior year, just because um, I wasn't going to get mm-hmm. on the field with him. But we we actually split time first couple games of the season. Uh, and I did well, but he wound up like kind of taking command and control, mm-hmm. and 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 uh, he was like a true leader, true quarterback. I was a bit of a knucklehead and <laughs> wanted to get in fights and run linebackers over, you know. And uh, yeah, so um, at, so, at, at what was there a point in your life when you thought you were going to play in the NFL? I mean, from when I was you know five, Jacko. And like, what, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to do. But. I should have rephrased that. You know, there had to be a point in your life when you were going to play in the NFL. When did that dream go out? Like, when did that flame extinguish? That flame extinguished my. It was my. Before my senior year, so I, I popped for I popped for uh, testosterone. This is your senior year of college. Yeah, yeah. Going into the senior year, so Marcus, you're moving over to tight end. You're going to start at tight end. Put on some weight, Roger that. So I went and found some testosterone, sipping eight, and got got bulky and faster. And I remember uh, we were doing off season workouts, and the the quarterback who who uh, we were about the same speed. I put on twenty pounds, and then I started beating him in the in in sprints. He's like, dude, what the? F-? He's like, how could you gain weight and be faster than me all of a sudden? Um, so the NCAA came in actually three weeks early. And uh, a few of us uh, pop positive for for performance enhancing drugs. Uh-huh. So that's like uh, I had a I had a knew a guy that was a bike bicycle rider, and he said that when you're on or maybe I just heard this on a I don't know where I heard this but I think it's this guy I know who said like he's a bike rider, and he said when someone's on on juice, it's like they're on a Harley. Like you literally just can't hang with them. They're just that much better so did you feel like i mean it sounds like dude you, you put on 20 pounds and you got faster oh you mean i could i could dunk a basketball just from a straight vertical leap you Damn. know um yeah it's it's pretty 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 potent stuff when you're when you're abusing it like that not when you're like using it for like uh-huh. replacement therapy uh-huh. you know where they're trying to keep your levels at around seven or eight hundred we're talking about you know 2400 <laughs> 2000 you know your blood your blood levels are through the roof and, uh, but you do, you feel Who like. Who's your guide during this? Guide? Yeah, it's just bro science. <laughs> this, just is, like, this is straight up. Is better. Bro science, no Google. Um, this is what three of my buddies said. Oh, yeah, that guy was in the Marine Corps. This guy, you know, <laughs> took steroids in high school. And, yeah, we think it's okay. You'll be fine. <laughs> so you pop positive. I didn't even know the NCAA was testing back then. Yeah. They, I guess I'm just the yeah, idiot. But. yeah. They tested everybody. Well, I shouldn't say they tested everybody. It was random. But. And so then are you done? Or is that the I'm end done. of your. That's the, it. And I'm, I'm done. So you said that's the moment when you realized the NFL wasn't happening. The NFL wasn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> and you finish. How'd your dad feel about that before we go? What do you finish? But, so Amber. Uh, no, it wasn't your dad. Uh, no, your dad had already left. The, co- the co- head coach called. They weren't happy. Uh-huh. You know, but everything, you know, they were always like. Yeah, it's not Marcus's fault, you know. It was. It must have been somebody else. Yeah, my parents. Oh, oh, your parents were like, "Mm." yeah. They shifted blame. They covered for you a little bit. But your dad must have been realizing that the dream was over. Probably his dream. 
The NFL dream, yeah, yeah his yeah. dream, his, his NFL, NFL dream. dream. <laughs> Which, by the way, I had like a one in like a trillion chance of <laughs> making, making it to the NFL. For sure, for sure. But you got to, I mean, it seems like anybody in pursuing any athletic uh, pursuit that hard is going to think, well, I'm going to be able to make it. And then at some point you go, it ain't happening. You, you want to go as hard and far as you can, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's all you know. Literally, it's all you know. I mean, I remember getting in the teams and telling guys and buds like, Dude, I never turned a wrench. Like all I did, all my dad had me do was play ball. Like I literally, you know, so I learned a lot just, you know, that, that's why I thought just the teams were so good. Cause I just learned a lot of like man shit outside of, <laughs> you know, playing ball, which I look at now. I don't even, I don't even remember the last time I watched the sporting event. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I kind of frown upon some of the stuff that's going on. It's, it's gross, but yeah. So uh, is this when you started thinking about going in the dames? Into the teams. <laughs> what was the uh, oh, what was gonna, the trigger there? You're gonna love this. This is this is right up your alley, Jacko. So, my roommate, uh, of course, uh, dad so, was a seal in Vietnam. I don't think he was. <laughs> he he may have been a marine. Wait, what roommate? Jason. Jason O'Neill. Oh. Yeah, we lived in the apartment. Remember. Yeah, I didn't know he was part of the story. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's part of the story. I'm just thinking, you know, you said I'm going to love this story, so I figure you like one of your brother, your one of your friends, dad was. You're going to no. love it, but then you're going <laughs> to scratch your head too and be like, "All right, <laughs> we're going to go with this, Marcus." So we're we're sitting we're sitting in the apartment one night, and and this guy actually started as a freshman, wind up uh, when we graduated. I went in the Navy. He went in the Marine Corps. Flew F-18s. You know, did the whole did the whole thing, uh, Top Gun, and all that all that good stuff. And then of course the Marine Corps, what they do to their guys who go to flight school, fly F-18s and go to Top Gun, you would expect them to continue flying. They handed him an M-16 and put him on the ground in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. you know, with all that training, I guess as a fact. Yeah, that's know? what the Marine Corps does. Yeah. And that's one of the best things that they yeah, do is because those guys can talk to aircraft better than anybody else. So. And hundred percent, and he did. But he did complain because he said, man, you know, they spent all this money on training me how to fly. And he's like, I was really good at it. And then I'm on the fucking ground in Afghanistan dodging mortars, you know, uh, which he never, ever signed up to do. Um, so it was just interesting to hear from his perspective. Like, they don't like they don't like it. You know, yeah. like, they want to fly. And now they're stuck calling, yeah. calling in cast. One but. of my uh, one of my really good friends was the same thing. Marine Corps, F-18. Top Gun, Top Gun instructor, Top Gun senior instructor. And he was a fac on the ground. He was <laughs> Anglico uh, team leader in Ramadi with us, yeah. just getting after it. Yeah. And it's funny because he taught, like, all the stuff he did in the Marine Corps, he taught, like, he talks about what he did for his one six month deployment to Ramadi because it was a lot different than what it was, as I constantly tell him, being in an air conditioned cockpit, you know, <laughs> 20,000 feet up in the air. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, those guys. Can you imagine what kind of perspective they get on oh, the ground awesome. and then go back up there and go, oh, wait a minute, like I know what it was like down there. Yep. That's that's the Marine Corps. Uh, and I, I've read some great stories about like the Korean War. Those those Marine Corps pilots that would go and deploy, they, they, like the Marines, everyone loved them mm-hmm. because they, they can just talk to those pilots the way they need to be talked to. So, I mean, and look, we have the JTACs. There's, JTACs are awesome too. Uh, but in the Marine Corps, it's just with the way they do it. And it's pretty freaking cool. Uh, so this guy is your roommate. So my roommate. So I come home, we throw on the TV and on comes this movie and I'm looking at it and you know, it's got 
people run around and I think you're talking about Sean. No, I'm not. You're, okay. No. You're you are incorrect. One Amber's, in, Am, Amber's incorrect two times out of a hundred. I always tell her she's <laughs> always ninety eight percent right. I just don't ever remember you living with him. Yeah, we lived together, remember, for like six months. I don't remember that. All right. no, okay. It's Sorry. It's okay. Go ahead. It's all good. <laughs> I love you. Um and and they, they, they so here, GI Jane. So GI Jane comes on. <laughs> oh, I'm just gonna no. get, you know, I'm just gonna get to the point. All right, oh, GI no. Jane comes on TV, and I'm like, what is this? And uh, <laughs> they start talking about you know these units and this and that. And I have when you were talking about exposure to the military, I had I had none. So if I had exposure, I could have maybe called this out right away. <laughs> this was it. This was my military. I'm like, <laughs> I want to do that. Like, this looks hard. They said these are the best of the best, right? Because they talk about yeah. it in there. Not, not Demi Moore, but the rest of it. So that's <laughs> what actually just um, told me that there's a unit out there that's special and supposed to be the toughest training in the world. And that's, that's what piqued my, at least my initial interest to start to look into it and go, let me just look into what this is. And so, you know, then I read the first book because back then it was, um, there was nothing online about the teams. So I just, I, I read, I literally read every book from Vietnam. I mean, everything. Right all, you know, it, and the more I read, the more I got like focused and the more hungry and, 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 you know, and then nothing else mattered. Do you start training at this point? I did. Uh, I did. Um, you also met um, someone who was at SIU and he was a SEAL, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, God, I forgot his name. Uh, from Yeah, from He from died team, in a car accident. Yeah, Team 4. Uh, yeah. I remember. I know you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought he was like. Will Bouchel. Will Bouchel. There you go. Will Bouchel. And so imagine you're, you're in college. You know how it is. You mm-hmm. want to be a team guy or in high school. And then you go, you find out that there's a guy mm-hmm. that was a team guy. So he, of course, he, you know, he slit people's throats yeah. behind enemy lines. And like, so every time I saw this guy, I was like, I was in awe, you know? And of course, then when I got the team, they're like, oh, that shit, back. no, I'm just kidding, I'm joking. I'm, t- I'm totally kidding. He, he, he actually had a decent reputation. But yeah, I looked up to this kid and um, I was just, you know, I was just hungry after that, Jocko. It was, uh, Nothing mattered. I called my parents. I told them what I wanted to do, and they thought I was crazy. Um, Amber thought I was crazy. Um, but as you know, once you get on that that path, nothing else matters, mm-hmm. and it's nothing but focus and discipline, and like that's it. What did you do? Uh, were you dropping weight? Were you because I stopped lifting? Got that's it. what I did. So all, all I knew was like sport lifting, you know, heavy weights. Um, I completely stopped lifting and all I did was uh, bodyweight workouts. Mm-hmm. So the typical like Stu Smith, I think I had maybe the book, you know, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, dips. Um, nobody taught me how to do any of these, by the way. Nobody taught me how to even like jog to, like I didn't know anything. Like I never <laughs> jogged, like just went out and ran like six miles. Everything was like 40-yard sprints, <laughs> you know, or maybe hundreds, but that was it. And so I thought I was like jogging at a good pace until I ran with Sean Toll, who was in the army uh, for a long time. I, I went for a run with him. And were you jogging slower or I was jogging fast? slower. Oh, okay. I was it. like, oh, I'm, this is good. I'm like, I'm working out. This is out. jogging. This is, this is jogging. <laughs> and uh, he crushed me. 
like I couldn't even, I could barely keep up with him. And he's like, I'm not even running at a hard pace. I went, holy shit, this is like, so he kind of brought me up to another level that I just didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started, you know, jogging faster. Um, and so this is what you're doing your senior year this is my senior of year. college. Se- senior, senior college. And it was like the summer before your senior yeah. year that you decided to do this. He came to me and said he wanted to be a SEAL. And of course, there was no 9-11. I didn't know what a SEAL was. I really didn't know the difference between the Army and the Navy. Mm-hmm. Although I was, I knew I was patriotic. But then I also thought that maybe the military wasn't for me based on what I knew about kids from my hometown that went in it. And so I thought, you know, this is a great jumping off point because Marcus was so captivating and so cute and such kind of a check in the box for me to be like, I dated the SIU quarterback. I don't expect that we'll stay together. You know, I thought maybe we'd date for the summer, you know, whatever. And we'd been together at that point for two and a half years. And I met him at 17. So, you know, in my mind, like no other guy had ever existed because he was everything to me. But at the same time, I knew that I was young and I was, you know, very independent. And I was raised an only child. I have two half brothers who I love like, like, brothers. um, And I consider them brothers, but I was raised an only child. And so I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be, I wanted to graduate and, and move to maybe Chicago or St. Louis. At some point I even thought like, maybe I'll move to LA or New York. I just wanted to be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when he told me he wanted to go into the military, I thought this is, this is perfect because I've kind of been thinking this and we're young and probably not going to stay together and get married. So by jumping off point, you mean jump off the the freaking Marcus train and yeah. go your own way. Yeah, but yeah. in a healthy way. Yeah, I mean, like we, all good. We but. talked about it and he's like, you know, these are my goals and this is my vision. And I'm like, well, I'm, you know, I'm a couple years behind you in school and I wanted to rush a sorority. I wanted to be young and be not be in this committed relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we we had super amicably decided to break up. So you break up, and this is how. When did you talk to a recruiter? Like, so that's 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 what I was going to talk about next. So I did. I just went on the strip, uh, same place where I ran into the guys coming out of the club. <laughs> there was recruiting. There was a Marine Corps Navy recruiting station there, and I went to talk to the Navy recruiter, and he was a, um, I think he was a diver, combat mm-hmm. diver, and he was really cool, like really cool. And he just said, "Hey," he's like, "You're." You're at, the, you're at school here, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, you, you can be an officer. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> I literally said, what's that? Fucking <laughs> <laughs> knucklehead, right? Um, he's like, well, you know, you go to college, you get your degree, and, you know, you could become an officer in the military. Um, most people that are enlisted, you know, don't go to college, and they enlist and kind of explained it. I said, oh, okay, well, that, that sounds cool. Like, let's do that. And so he handed me off to St. Louis, which was running, I guess, um, they, I think they managed the like individual, the officer, yeah, the officer recruitment. And, and again, I didn't like have, I had no mentors, you know, um, you know, as you know, a lot of the, you know, the officers that go in either go to the academy or they have, you know, congressmen, like they just, they have a better network. I just didn't know anybody. And so I was training on my own. And then the day I had to, uh, he drove the, the, the officer recruiter drove down from St. Louis and met me at the university to take my like PRT, COPRT test. Mm-hmm. I borrowed a pair of, I'd been training in sneakers. <laughs> I borrowed a pair of boots because I didn't have any. She had to wear boots. Um, I'm a size 14. I, the only size that was available to me, I think it was like 11 and a half or 12. <laughs> so I, I literally squeezed my feet into these size 12s 
about the second lap in, I completely like both my legs cramped up. <laughs> uh, finish the run. Um, do start doing push-ups, and I'm doing uh, what they call them uh, grasshopper push-ups. Oh, like like little half push-ups. Yeah, or like your elbows are in instead of like out here. And he's like, stop. What? He goes, You're, those aren't those aren't push-ups. Those are we call those grasshopper push-ups. I was like, well, it's the only ones that I know. You know, so I'm going to keep going. He's like, no, you, you can't because they don't count. <laughs> you have to move your arms here. So the whole test was a complete failure. Like I fucked that thing up completely, and. Um, you know, I found out, of course, I didn't get picked up for, for spec war, but I got picked up for every other officer program. So you come in, go to Nuke, you go to whatever, SWO, um, you, but you can't, can't go to BUDS, and you can transfer after two years. Mm-hmm. And I went, yeah, but, you know, the reason, you know, just the only time I actually thought a little bit, and the only reason I'm going in the military is, is to be a team guy. And... And so I just told him, like, no, I, you know, I want to go to Bud's. And he said, well, you can just go back to the, you know, the recruiter and you can enlist. And I said, great. <laughs> can you give me a ride? <laughs> yeah, give me a ride. We shook hands. I took my, you know, my little packet that I already started building, my record, and went back to the recruiter. And I think I enlisted right there, like, signed, you know, MEPS. I think it was the, Yeah, you know, MEPS. Like, or Put early. MEPS. I think it was, no, or... Uh, Deps, Deps, Deps. Delayed entry. Yes, that was it, And Deps. then MEPS is where it actually MEPS you happens. go to, yeah, exactly. That's a place. Yeah, you're right. you're right. So you, how long was it, like, when you enlisted, how many, how long did you have to wait before you could leave? I, it was quick, and we'll get, yeah, we, we can get in that story. But from when I talked to the recruiter, I think it was about six months, so I was, you know, I'd show up every month, and they'd have, like, little gatherings mm-hmm. or whatever. But I was still training, um, starting to get a little bit indoctrinated into the, into the military. So were you, guys, were you guys split up when you actually signed the papers? No. Uh, we were actually living together. Yeah, oh, dang. And, um, I don't remember that now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and yeah, you were just training and getting ready and we knew that you know the, the end was coming, but we were still together. Okay, and then you signed the papers and now you got your date. Hey, you're gonna leave on this date. I'm gonna leave, I'm gonna leave on this date. Uh, what's that? June 15th, 2000. And I don't know, when did you tell you me? You were also finishing, you know, he had his last semester in school, yeah, which so went, ended I, in December. And then you did your well, internship. Well, then I did my internship. I did my internship for four week, no, four months at the Breakers Resort in Palm Beach, Florida. It what is it? It wasn't a terrible internship. <laughs> it was like resort management. Like I basically got paid to be a, a, uh, a cabana boy and like get <laughs> tips. I mean, literally. And, and then two weeks run the children's like kid program. It was crazy. And that's what you did from December until until uh, April. Yeah. April. Yep. So April came back, graduated. Didn't walk. I didn't really care about like walking across the stage. To me, that well, wasn't. We're, we're we're missing a huge chunk of that. Don't go too far into the story. Uh, where do you want me to start? Because, well, in May two thousand. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so. In the summertime, July, August, mm-hmm. school starting is when we decided you know, this will be our last semester together. I knew he was going to leave at the end of the semester. I also had an aunt who was dying of breast cancer, and so and I was working full time. I had eighteen credit hours. I was working thirty hours a week. My aunt was dying, and so um, for a couple of months, I was thinking like I'm not sure I feel quite right, but I just kept delaying what. I would soon realize was the inevitable, which was taking a pregnancy test. Oh. And 
I finally took this test in October, um, and I had been pregnant since August. So I was in about 12 weeks pregnant with our son when I found out, and he was set to leave in two months in December. Set to leave for the Navy? For his internship. Oh, for the internship. Followed by the Navy. Okay, so got it. Now I'm tracking. Yep. Hey, I'm still trying to track the story. So it's a long time ago. <laughs> so, so it was a whirlwind. And what did you do? I mean, so freaked out, completely freaked out. And Marcus was so supportive initially. He's like, he's like, this is going to be fine. Like we're going to be parents. It's going to be fine. And here he is, like all this, these dreams and plans. And I was the one freaking out. And then he told his parents. And they freaked out. And mm-hmm. when they freaked out, he freaked out. When he freaked out, I really freaked out. <laughs> there was and a lot of freaking out there going was a on. Lot as you can of hear. Freaking out. <laughs> freaking out shit rolls downhill, obviously. Well, I just thought like my life is over. It's abs- I was so excited about this new beginning and it's over. And um I I now see that is the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's the beginning of everything. Thank God. Mm-hmm. Wow. So uh, you find out in October, then in December, you're going to be a cabana boy in Florida. That's right, cabana boy. But meanwhile, you're an expecting dad right? at, at the same time. Right, at 20, what, 22 Two. years old. And you are already know you're going to join the Navy? Yes. 23. <laughs> and then what's the call then? So the call is I go do my internship because... You got to do it to graduate or whatever? I do it to graduate. Amber stays back. Did you did you um, did you go to school in the spring? Oh yeah, you did. Okay, so Amber's pregnant. She's going to school in the spring. I'm in Palm Beach, Florida, working as a cabana boy and snorkeling in the evenings mm-hmm. on the on the on the and uh, training. You and, ran to. Oh, I mean, I trained work. my ass off down there. Mm-hmm. No, I, I did. But you're working 17 jobs or whatever with 18 credit I was hours. Still, you're just like. I think I took 15 in, in the <laughs> spring, but um. Yeah, I was working full time and going to school. I was, you know, nine months pregnant, taking finals. It was cool. Amber worked forever. Like from the day I met her, she was always working, like nonstop, and it hasn't stopped. It's <laughs> the reason we're still here. Um, yeah, she worked her ass off. She really did. She's a grinder. And then, how did this whole uh, scenario impact your decision to go in the Navy? It. I mean, it really didn't. Like I was. This is what I want to do. I. You know, at 23, I, I, I didn't, um, I didn't even think about what it was like to start a family. Um, but then again, what, what were we supposed to do? I was supposed to graduate and then get a job. Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, here's your job. Yeah, yeah I mean, here's, <laughs> here's, here's your job. How are you making? You know, how are you making money? Again, you know, my dad handed me a ball when I was three. Um, I don't know. I was scared to death. Honestly, I remember saying. I'm supposed to put on a shirt and tie now and go step off in the private sector and get a job, you know, doing what and making what to support support the family. Like I was scared to death too then once I started really thinking about it. But did the Navy seem like the viable option the Navy, to the Navy, have a family? Yeah, the Navy seemed at that time comfortable, you know. Yeah, it's like paycheck, healthcare, Paycheck, housing, healthcare, yeah. Like, and I think that's some of the probably advice I got from individuals. I don't remember. I mean, I think maybe I talked to a few just said, hey, you'll, you know, she'll be taken care of. You'll be taken care of. You make a few hundred dollars more if you're married. Whoa. <laughs> um, and at that time when you don't have any uh, money, and I don't think anybody, I mean, my, my parents are definitely not supporting us. And, I mean, 
Amber's family, of course, would have, but we, I don't think we were thinking about that. No. So, so you end up getting married prior to yeah, leaving? Yeah, well, we spent most of my pregnancy apart, and not just because he was in Florida. It's because you know we had this whole like existential crisis where we didn't know how to make this new curveball fit, and there was there were several months when I thought I'm just going to raise this baby. You know, I, I absolutely thought about ending the pregnancy, and I couldn't. There was no way I could. And I thought, I don't care what this means. I don't care how hard this is. I'm just going to figure it out. And, um, you know, even if that meant doing it by myself. And Marcus was in the um, kids area, like he had alluded to earlier. And we had picked our son's name before he left. And at the time, no one was naming their kid Caden. You know, it was like he wanted to name him Cadence. I think we saw in a baby name book. And he's like, oh, it's like the quarterback calling Cadence. He's like, but that sounds like a girl's name, so let's shorten it. And there was this little baby that came in when he was at the breakers named Caden. And we'd never heard that name before. And so he called me that night, and he was like, I can't do this anymore. Let's figure this out. And so... That's what we did. And we named Caden. We named him Caden. <laughs> of, of, of battle, of war. That's the, that was the... Ready for battle. Ready for battle. That's the, that was the meaning. So I thought, it was a, I thought it was a cool name. Check. Why not? <laughs> I mean, I tried to call him like Nico. And, oh, Nico, Vito, and Major were his three names of choice, but I wasn't <laughs> going for that. So yeah, we named, we, Caden was born in May of 2000. Marcus came back, proposed. Um, we got married in June of 2000, and then six days later, he, he left for boot camp. T- t- typical story. It's like most <laughs> Americans, right? <laughs> and did you stay, like, at home in Illinois? I did. When he left for boot camp and everything, because there's no point in yeah, I couldn't, doing anything else. Yeah, I you couldn't, know, move. The Navy wasn't going to move me. But, um, and of course, and then he had to go to A school and C school mm-hmm. to be a sonar tech. And so when he was finished with C school and he was getting ready for Bud's in doc, I was able to move out. Caden was nine months old at the time. So I was 21. I'd never been away from my little, you know, tiny town in Southern Illinois. And we moved to the towers in Coronado. And so he would walk to work, like, you know, walk to Bud's every morning. We had no money. No, we were raking in the money at 1082 <laughs> per paycheck. And, and our rent was a thousand. I was going to say, what was the rent? A thousand. A thousand. So we got a little bit of help from mom and dad. A little bit. Not, not no, really. Not Actually, really. Nothing. nothing. Not really. No, we didn't. You're right. We just racked up a lot of credit card bills. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're rolling into buds. Rolling into buds. How how are your how's your preparation? Are you good? I'm good. Yeah, really good. And you joined in May. June, July. So when September 11th, when is that? What's your career? Where are you at? Yeah. When September 11th happens. Were you in A school? We'll get into that. No, I was in third phase. Oh, damn. Yeah. Before we get to that, Laura, let's start start with first phase. I mean, how's that going? First phase was was good. So I showed up uh, 175, started. Wait, um, 175 pounds? No, no, no. I'm sorry. The number of uh, people in the students. class. Yeah, got it. So I get, I, yeah, I show up and I look around, and there's a. I mean, that's a lot of people. 175 mm-hmm. is a lot. Yeah. And all I keep hearing is, you know, one in four are going to make it. 
like 25%. And honestly, the first thing I thought of was, how can I be one of these one in four? There's so many people here. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I don't even consider myself, I'm not a big guy compared to like the guys I played ball with in college, mm-hmm. but, but everybody else there was like, oh, Marcus is a big guy. Oh yeah, for right? sure. How tall are you? Six, four. And how much did you weigh when you started butts? Like two and a quarter, two and a quarter, 225. That's a big dude going through butts. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I was just FYI, I was like, just turned 19 and uh, I was 174 pounds when I yeah, got there. I was like a it's little perfect. kid. <laughs> <laughs> it was so awesome. We had guys, like you probably like you, we had guys in Buds that gained weight during Buds. I did, I gained 10 pounds, yep. I gained 10 <laughs> yeah, pounds. I I but like, if you, you, you were what, 23, 24? I was 23. Yeah, so you're like a man. I was a man-ish. Well, I was not really. Well, I was like, physically, physically you were physically, pretty close. I think you were 24 when you started That'd be questionable to the instructors if we were men, right? <laughs> was that? I think you were 24 when you started Buds. Was I? Who's I counting? <laughs> All those years run together. Yeah. So you're in pretty good shape. You're in good shape. I'm though. in good shape, but this is this is what I'm getting at. So I, I look around and see these guys, and all of a sudden, you know, we start doing the in doc, and everybody is just in phenomenal shape. They can do oh. pull ups forever. They can run forever. You know, I'm still a little heavy, so for me, pull ups I can do them, but I can't do like I was watching guys do like 20, 30, 40, 50 mm-hmm. at one time. Mm-hmm. Or run our class, I swear we had at least 10 individuals, you know, Mike Murphy, Nelson Sanchez. These guys were running sub 24-minute four-mile time run. God. Murph, Murph and, and Sanchez would always be like That's neck insane. and neck. It was insane, <laughs> right? And I was, you know, I never – I so he, this was cool about the runs. I never uh, – I, I was in the goon squad literally one day, one time. Uh, never failed four mile time run and never got gooned except the one time. Mm-hmm. So like for me, the running, I did it mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I got ahead of the goon squad, but it was miserable. You know, it was. What class were you in? 236. 236. Check. Yeah. yeah. And so, th- so third phase, Jaco. So we're in third phase. Oh, we'll go back to first phase. Yeah. I, um, I was in good shape, but, but again, I look around and see 175 guys and I was, I was nervous. And then after I started seeing guys work out and then guys doing, literally doing splits, I'm like, man, am I in the right place? Like these guys are, these are, there's some freaks here, you know, like Olympic swimmers and all these, these, these crazy individuals. And then as you know, class starts and the loudest, it is wild. And the the loudest screamers all of a sudden you're like, Hey, where's so-and-so he, you know, he talked a lot of shit. You can't even comprehend it. Like we, we were talking before we started recording. It's like you and I have survivor's bias, meaning every friend I have 100% made it through buds. So as far <laughs> as I know, the freaking pass rate for buds is 100%. <laughs> you right. know, like oh, everyone made it. Everyone, everyone I know made it, made it. But yeah, the wild thing is the people that, like you said, like Olympic swimmers and Olympic this and D1 this and D1 track guys and D1 football players and everything. And they all just quit. It's insane. Yeah, they all go away pretty quickly. Did, was there anything in Hell Week that like tripped you up, or were you just like, hell yeah? <laughs> no, the, only- the reason I say hell yeah for me is because I I like sucked at everything. Well, I didn't suck. I was I was okay at everything, but I had to put out really hard to pass runs. I had to put out really hard to pass the old course. I had to put out really hard to pass the swims. And look, everyone's putting out. Yep. But I had to put put out really hard to pass the evolutions. But in Hell Week, it wasn't. It's not pass fail. It's just. Keep going. Just which do. Th- there's anything I'm okay at, it's like, oh, I can keep going. Right. I, will, I will keep going. Right. And so for me, Hell Week was almost like a break because you just had to keep going, which I was good at. 
Everything yeah. else, like I did, I failed. I failed a four mile timed run. I I paced myself. I was an idiot. I mean, I wasn't fast enough to pace. I just needed to sprint. I failed to swim, and again, like a bunch of people failed to swim, and I was one of them. So that sucked. I don't know if I failed an obstacle course. I probably did. But it, like, so I was kind of middle of the pack, but it was cause I was putting out hard. So for me, Hell Week was like, cool. And a bunch of people quit. A bunch of people quit and I was like, damn, are you dumb? Yeah. Like. Yeah, and a lot of those individuals were up front, right? Oh yeah, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. We had some pipe hitters, some like legit, good, I shouldn't say pipe hitters cause they're not. They're good athletes, right? They're good athletes. And yeah, it doesn't really matter, man. Yeah. Get we tired, had, wet, and cold. We, we had, a, I mean, we had a bunch of Rangers and Marines in our class. Um, we had some Egyptian officers in the class. I mean, it was it was diverse. Um, but you know, I I did have trouble on the runs, but but like you, I, I put out. So I had to really put out hard to stay up and pass the runs. Um, I couldn't I couldn't like keep it back a gear. You know, I, I had to I had to really put out, but. No, I, everything I did was, um, I did, I did okay. Uh, I remember one time they pulled me out of the, um, log PT because everybody was literally just, it was, it was falling on their head and I was just, I don't know, I was in a different gear and like a pwned sit down. Like, like a higher gear, like doing better. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt, I felt, I felt good, you know, with the log and they made me sit down one time. They're like, you know, just sit down because you're, 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 damn, you're, you're doing all right. Um, it was one time at Hell Week. I think it was what were those called? Uh, elef- elephant elephant runs? cage elephant runs. Oh, oh elephant would, runs. Yeah, would, when you're like holding. Yeah. yeah. So there was there was one day I was super dehydrated. And I remember this, and uh, like I thought I was going to die, and I kept trying to like pull back. So like guys would run, and I would I I was literally trying to like pull it back because I couldn't I couldn't keep up, and you know I was getting yelled at. I'm like guys, I, I don't know what's going on. Like I I, I can't. I can't do anything right now. And I barely made it through that evolution. I remember it. It was, it was miserable. I remember it to this day because you know how it is. You just, everybody hits a point, right? And I hit that point where I could not, I felt like I couldn't go any further. And the only thing that kept me going was like probably the guys behind me, like kicking me in the ass. Like, Hey dude, like keep going. Um, and then there was a, there was a ruck hump when we used to do, uh, you know, you just do the O course, throw on a pack, whatever it was, three miles. Mm-hmm. There was a time there also that I felt like I was about to like pass out. Something was wrong. And I remember one of the guys in the class, and I'll never forget this, Ben Souders, who you know a lot of guys made fun of because he grew up in the Midwest and he was a Bible beater and he never cursed and he never drank and never did anything. He comes running up past me. He's like, hey, man, what's, what's wrong with you? I said, I don't know. I was like, I'm, I'm about to die. He's like, I'm going to stay with you. And I'm going to, I'm going to, is that cool? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He ran with me the whole way until we finished. And, and like, this was because you were dehydrated or I was something? Just like, or was yeah, just probably like, just like dehydrated or whatever. So those are like the two times I just remember at Bud's where it was like, you're about to, you're, you're going to die, mm. you know? But other than that. How um, about dive phase? How were, how were you in the pool? Because you surfed. I like, yeah, so. I like the water. Um, I think I had some trouble with. Um, Pool comp? With pool comp, like everybody else does. <laughs> um, my, I think, if I remember right, exhalation knot, I almost fucking drowned because <laughs> I'm like, hey, there's water going in my my tube here, and it's not supposed to be, you know, so you come up, and I'm like, I'm trying to explain myself <laughs> to the instructor staff, and they just jumped all over me. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. 
Wait, just listen. Just hear me out one time. <laughs> I was talking pool comp with uh, Andy Stump the other day up at Jiu Jitsu Camp because he was an instructor. He's a third phase instructor. And you know how that, that, that motherfucker, like he's just like so f- hilarious. And but he's telling me from like his instructor point of view of what he would do and what he would see and how he would do it. And like he's laughing hysterically like, and I go, how many people did you? I go, were you like the hard instructor? He's like, oh yeah. And I go, how many p- people did you pass? Oh no, I said, I said, were you like the hard instructor? And he goes, I passed three people three years <laughs> or four people three oh, years right. past his pool comp. Everyone else failed. And he said, the guys that passed, he said, I respected them. Because <laughs> you know he put them through hell. Yeah. Andy, uh, um, we, we, we did Andy's podcast and Andy put me through um, jump training on okay. the East Coast. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he was... You know, and he knows this. He was, God, he was such a dick to all of us, except if you were in his, like, his circle, you know. Um, but it was cool to see him up in uh, Montana. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great. Just what he's got going on now. And he was awesome. He's one of the best, you know, obviously one of the most talented uh, jumpers that, that, I, that got yeah, to. Yeah, and one of the most talented wise asses. Like, <laughs> he like, really just, is. Just so good. Um, yes. But, yeah, yes. you got to have him debrief you on his experience as a di- – I think he was a freaking dive instructor or a second-phase instructor for, like, a couple years. Oh, man. So he was telling me about how, like, he'd watch the kids' hands, and when their hands would go into this, like, involuntary claw-like mm-hmm. motion, and he goes, yeah, that's when I knew I'd had him. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> good God. I cannot imagine uh, him having more fun torturing people, but mm-hmm. I guess he's doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and One then, of many. And then you're in, so, so then you get to third phase. Third phase, and third, third phase, um, I couldn't, couldn't wait for. I think like most, mm-hmm. most guys. And uh, yeah, third phase was great. Um, the only problems I had there out on the island, we, we made a really shitty hide site for like, you know, your, your day that you were mm-hmm. supposed to take hours to do it. It was, it was so pathetic, Jocko, that um, one of the instructors came out. I don't want to say his name. Um, <laughs> But he lost his shit. He lost his shit so bad that I think if a if a, some type of brass was there, they might have thrown him in jail. Um, he flipped out on us. He took one of the students, like just threw him every which direction. I think put his boot in the guy's chest and like kicked him a mile. You know, it was one of those things. Uh, we were scared to death, and then we worked on that hide for another four hours. Make sure it was tight. But so, but because of that, we had to sleep on the beach. It was at Camp Stupid. Uh-huh. Uh, so I got to sleep at Camp Stupid, which you really don't sleep uh, because I was getting – I was trying to sleep on the ice with those ice plants. Mm-hmm. And the ice plants had nothing but some kind of nasty bug that was just biting us all night. So we didn't get any sleep. Some kind of sand flea yeah, scenario. It was, it, was, it was bad. So, um, yeah, so that was my uh, my third phase experience. And uh, Well, also the towers came down. Well, then the towers came down. So we're up at um, – we're training out east, you know, in the desert. And – um, structure comes out from the house there and says, "Hey, the uh, U.S. is being attacked. The uh, World Trade Center just got hit by by an airplane." And we all looked at each other and we're like, "Man, can these fucking guys just leave us alone? Like, we're in third phase. We're, this is a conversation. We're about to graduate, and they're still messing with us. Like, what did we do wrong? Like, we we had a shitty second phase. I, I, I should I shouldn't talk about that." Um, we had a really shitty second phase, but what um, made your second phase well, so shitty? It's just what I, I actually did. Me and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna name name him. Uh, me and me and Jeff Boss. So he, he and I are, are swim buddying it to the bathroom, 
and we go running out, and our our uh, our proctor was a guy by the name of uh, you know Favero, uh, super laid back SDV guy. I don't know. Like probably the actually we were told the only instructor that you can't piss off. Like it's impossible to piss him off. We we somehow figured out how to do that because we were running to the bathroom. We didn't see him. And he called us evidently like three times and we didn't answer. And he fucking flipped his lid. Because of that and because the cadre was like, yeah, he doesn't ever flip out. Like we've seen him for like 15 years. They made us spin the wheel of misfortune every day for this was the first day of second days they made it every day just you and your swim buddy no the whole class oh god which is even better right so we got really we got we made a lot of friends after that (laughs) um so the wheel of misfortune i've talked to classes like before and after us like oh we we spun it like twice i'm like twice a week or like no no the whole phase i'm like we spun it every single day we got back from our dive so we'd get back from our dive didn't matter one one o'clock midnight it didn't matter Put all your stuff away, get back in the grinder, spin, you know, spin the wheel of misfortune, oh, 208 counts, go. So we did that every day for second phase, which I was told like never happens. And it was just like a miserable second phase because we had to do, you know, more PT for like an extra hour or whatever. So it sucked. Third phase, we're still being harassed. We thought it was a joke. They march us in. We watch it on TV for 30 seconds. We march back out to the grinder and uh, we just didn't have any idea what was about to happen. But the cadre, their uh, demeanor was completely different. I'm getting chills, you know, talking about it. But you can tell, like, they knew what was about to happen. And I remember them, like, having this, like, hatred and just, you know, like, we're about to go to war, guys. And, and we're just like, no, we're out here. We're, we're in buds. We're on the beach. We're working out. And... The demeanor from the class, which is all we want to do is get through buds. This sucks. From their demeanor, which was like, we are we're going to war. Like this is what's happening, and it was it was totally different. And and from that day forward, from the last last part of third phase, like they were serious. It wasn't more this like joking crew of cadre. Like they were, um, like this was real. Mm-hmm. This was not the shit, you know that. In, in all honesty, that some people signed up for. I mean, there was uh, right after that, there was a few guys from SQT, and one, and one in particular, I remember quit in SQT. It was like, I didn't sign up to go to war, I, you know, at the college and whatever. So I think some people, this was like obviously a big reality check. For us, we, I don't think we knew any different because we were just trying to get through buds. Mm-hmm. So, damn. So, Amber, this whole time, your new husband is coming home freaking with the shit beat out of him and he's working crazy hours and all this like what's your what's your impression of this whole scenario before september 11th i really jocko thought we just have to get to the end of buds i literally thought after the six months of training things are going to really even out (laughs) of course i mean even minus 9 11 that you know nothing could have been further from the truth but in my mind that was like at least something that was an end goal and so all of the late nights and ice baths and I don't I, I just need to stay on the couch all weekend like that to me was going to come to an end and life was going to be normal again. Um, it was also some of the sweetest times because he was so spent and I look back at photos of our one year old climbing all over him and he's got both knees you know wrapped with ice and 
he's trying to be a dad and you know we've got pictures at the zoo and I can see how beat down he was being a bud student and trying to be a dad he came home one night on our anniversary and it was like you know midnight like he'd missed the anniversary and he had geraniums picked from our apartment complex and it was the sweetest thing like he was still trying so hard to be sort of this dual role and after 9-11 like it's like cadre I mean he completely changed and what about what did you realize what an impact September 11th was going to have from the perspective of when I was going in the SEAL teams and it was 1990, 1991, I thought I was going to Vietnam. I thought I was going to Vietnam War. <laughs> like I thought, we, hey, there's SEALs just sneaking around the world, just killing people, and that's what I was going to be doing. So I just thought that's the way the SEAL teams was. That's what you did. Uh, then I got to the SEAL teams and it wasn't like that in the 90s. It was not like that at all. So did you have the impression like, hey, he's going to war anyways? Or were you like, oh, once this is once he gets done with the SEAL training, we're going to be, you know, able to just kind of live normal lives. But now this September 11th happens. I didn't know what had happened because I went from being an independent sophomore to a pregnant college student to a wife and a mom. And now 9-11 happens. And um, my birthday is on September 12th today. And um, thank you. My mom had come to visit in 2001. So, or yeah, 2000, 9 11. Oh my gosh. It's 21 years. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Zero one. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, my mom had come to visit, and um, I remember telling her, like, I think he's. I think he's at war. Like, I think he's gone. He was on the island. I had no idea. I'm like, he's probably going to leave, like, today. And we also, it was just a crazy time. I had no idea how much it would. Yeah, I don't think any of us did. Yeah, even, uh, I mean, from my perspective, I had been in the SEAL teams for, like, 10 years at this point, And, you know, you thought, like, everyone was, par- I was paranoid that, you know, I wasn't going to get any I was gonna miss it it was gonna be over like everyone was feeling like that and because it seemed like it would last for you know what six months maybe maybe I wouldn't even I was about to say maybe a year but I don't think anyone thought oh this is gonna go on for a full year like we would do some strikes we would do some hits take out some targets and then that would be that Um, I would love to hear someone tell me that they knew it was going to last 20 freaking years. I would I would be very suspect. Now, I did have some officer senior officer friends of me that said when I was like, "Hey, get me back to a team, please now." They were like, "Hey, this is going to go on a while." I'll give them credit for for thinking that and for telling me that. Um, but m- m- almost everybody was like, "Oh, we need to get over now. If you don't get it now, it'll be another, you know, because the first Gulf War, you, but you kind of based some stuff off the first Gulf War, which was 72 hours. Yeah. Right. It was 72 hours. Well, R- Russia and Ukraine, right? Right away, everyone said, oh, this is going to end. Oh, this is going to yeah. be a month. Yeah. And now it's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a lot different. Um, yeah. So I, I think that everybody in the community no one, no one that I talked to was like, oh, this is going to last two decades. That wasn't even a thought. Um, to, did you go to SQT on the West Coast? Yes. 
Yeah. Okay. Was, so you did only, like the group yes, SQT. That was like I think I was the first. Or, I think it was the second class where they didn't do the STT anymore. Everyone did SQT. You didn't get your. Well, actually, you got your. You got your Trident when you graduated SQT. Oh, so that was that was your class. That was a class I think before us. I think it was like uh, it was uh, was it like yeah, like Goggins and uh, Brent. Uh, I know it was relatively yeah. new. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember too, Jocko, thinking like, I'm so happy that he's going to get to do something with all this training, because you know, seals during times of peace versus you know, nine eleven on. Um, I'm sure it's a very different way of living and deploying and being. And I just thought like, I know it's been a you know, it's been peaceful times for a while and. Good for him. I'm mm-hmm. glad that he gets to actually utilize this training. Yeah. And I also remember thinking, seals are so incredible. They nothing, you know, they don't die. I guess you hadn't, you know you hadn't hurt. And that was my thinking back then was so naive. Um, but I never was afraid. Like he can't do this anymore. Or I was actually very. Uh, I, I was afraid, but I wasn't thinking that I needed to intervene. I was very supportive of you know, of him deploying. Yeah. Um, it's so crazy because you were young. We were all, I mean, I think, so I was in the Navy for 13 years before I shot my weapon at the enemy. So 13 years that you're talking about like this peacetime. And I actually, it was awesome. Like I had a great time. Like we worked hard, we trained hard, we were hanging out with our friends. Uh, we were trying to be ready for combat, which was the big thing that we didn't know and didn't understand. So you're kind of preparing for something that you don't really that you really don't understand, but I really loved the job of being a SEAL, even if the job is just going out and going into the desert and doing desert warfare training, I love that job. It's an awesome job. Uh, But, I mean, what you're talking about, Amber, like the fact that you feel that as like a mom and a wife, even you felt like, I'm glad he's gonna get to do his job. Imagine what the dudes are like. The dudes are like, oh, I. You know, it was, it it was, I mean, we used to, I hate saying this because it sounds so freaking horrible, but we used to like pray for war, like just want to go to war so bad. We just, that's what we wanted to do. And um, yeah, it's, we got, we got what we asked for. Um, We got what we asked for. I was going to ask you about SQT. So you go through SQT. Yeah. And now that must have been, those dudes must have been like. Fully, full on, like we're going to war. You guys are all going to war. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was weird too. It was like a transition. So they were bringing guys in that had uh, just gone overseas and, and done something, and like after actions, and so like all of a sudden the shift started changing from like H gear to stuff that yeah. actually, you know, fits you and works. And we also had, I think, 11, 11 guys in the SQT class that came back that had gotten out. Right oh, after 9 11, they yeah. came back in. So we had all these guys that were team guys before, <laughs> went out in the private sector. Yeah, that's like, the, oh, 9 11, come back in. That's your point, Amber. Like, can you imagine? You're a dude. Yeah. You were in the team for four years or six years. You get out of the teams. You're going out. You're doing whatever you're doing on the outside. The war kicks off. You're like, I'm going back in. I'm throwing <laughs> everything I have away, all built up, whatever. I'm going back in. Because that's what dudes wanted to yeah, do. Exactly. Uh, wait, did you get, so you get your trident at the end of SQT. Yep. What, what'd they do when you got, what, what team did you go to? I went to 10. They just commissioned 10 and 7. So half the class went to 7 or STV 1, and then half of us went to 10. Did they 
did they did you did you keep your trident when you got there? Because I know I heard some good stories. Like some teams were taking your trident oh, yeah. and painting it blue, so it was inert. <laughs> two and four. Team, team two and four. Oh yeah, like you showed up, like you didn't have it. You got it ripped off. Yeah. I think as soon as you came across the quarter deck, they just I know. ripped it. I want to say somebody at SDV was telling me they took the tridents and put them into a bird cage. Uh, that's what they did on the East Coast. So they put them on. They put them in bird cages. Yeah. Like you can look at it, but you can't. <laughs> you can't have it. You know. And then of course the, the ones. You know the guys who struggled. Uh, they had to keep their tridents in the bird cage. You know a lot longer Ouch. than guys that were that were squared away. So, but we did. You know we did. Um, we did get beat into our chest uh, mm. from the instructor staff at SQT, you know, while all the families were there and stuff. So that was, you know, at least we felt like mm-hmm. there was something there, but yeah, maybe not so much <laughs> 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 compared to how it used to be. Like. Compared to how it used to be back in the day. Yeah, it was, it was cool. Uh, you know, I checked into the team and we went through something called SEAL tactical training at the team. And then you did a board with your, uh, did a board with like the senior people in each department. But Man, the training that the guys get now, the training that you got, this like centralized training with all the experience, all consolidated, it's it's awesome. Like, there's they're, no doubt. They're, I think they're coming out of, I don't know if they're, I, they might be coming out of BUDS now, not just SQT, I think BUDS with like four weeks of CQC training. Yeah, it's... You know, compared to like, you wouldn't even see it until you're at a team, you know, six months down the road that you went to Shaw's for two weeks, yep. you know? Yeah, and the, th- the thing is like, uh, when you were talking about guys coming back from like combat deployments and getting in there, and that's cool, right? That's awesome. But imagine like it turned into, hey, these guys were in sustained combat operations for years. Because I remember in the 90s, like if a guy did ah mission like singular like one mission it was like hey dude this guy's combat experience and (laughs) like they had this thing that you didn't you know like i had a platoon commander who's an awesome guy and he had been in grenada and was like you know he had he had slayed the dragon and we were all just looking at him like like, yeah he was the coolest guy ever we had first phase instructor was on the uh the the train op in bosnia oh you know (laughs) yeah i was like Man, they, there was like gunshot, like like five miles away. Yeah, a farmer was like shooting an animal, and like that was contact left. <laughs> and you're getting debriefed on it. Not judging anyone that was there. Just yeah, no props. Passing, you did we, passing gouge. You did you did what you are uh, what the country asked you to do. So you get into a you get you show up at the team now. You go right into a platoon. Is that the right way into it's a going platoon? Down? Yeah. What's right. your job? Do you just get handed a sixty or what? How did you guess? <laughs> you didn't think I'd be like the comms guy? Or, um, I got handed a 60 just because I couldn't wait. I was like, give me two, please. Um, I couldn't wait to be a 60 on it, actually. Did you get a Mark 48 or did you get a 60? I got a 60. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. By the way, Marcus had never shot a weapon before Shh, don't tell Before going no, into the Navy, I didn't. right? Yeah, I mean, I was, like I said, I grew up. Yeah. I grew up playing, playing ball. Well, the cool thing is no bad habits. Good hand-eye coordination because you were an athlete. Like that's all points yeah. to you probably being a pretty good shot and everything. I was it, I was a better pistol shot. I picked that up quickly, immediately. Rifle took me a while to get hmm. proficient at it. And even when I went over to to depth group, you know, I I never struggled with it. But like the pistol, I was I was a really good pistol shot and quick and faster than everybody. But the rifle, like I was like middle of the road. I had I struggled with it actually early on. Hmm. Um, I remember out at Shaw's, the uh, who are the guys out there, Ross, and mm-hmm. just coming over and saying, "Hey, you know, just you know, don't don't put your magazine on the car." And like, just a bunch of things that like he's like, "I can work on." But as soon as he worked like with me, you know, I went from 
being pretty like not good to 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 excelling. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a while, and I tell people, I was like, no, I actually had to like really focus and practice and like stay late or you know go out to the range in the evening when guys were like hanging it up because I just there was just something not right about not being proficient at it. <laughs> Right, like I want to actually be good. Uh, I don't want to just hang it up and 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 walk away. So I, I got I got decent at shooting a a, a um, you know a, a rifle. What year was it when you checked into Team Ten? Two thousand two, like April. And do you do you know where you're going on deployment? Do no, they nothing. We didn't know anything yet. They were oh, because the world like, was still just chaos. Yeah, it was chaos and new team. Like they were going through uh-huh. you know growing pains. I think and. So we didn't know anything. And my, my first deployment, actually, we went over to Germany and just got did, your UCOM on. Got, we got our UCOM on. Um, yeah. And that was that was whatever. Right. And, you just train more training. Yeah. And the frustration level is everyone just going nuts. Like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Why insane. The people that were getting out like after, you know, as soon as a platoon wouldn't go to, um, you know, Iraq or Afghanistan, like. Guys were getting, you know, you saw it out, out mm-hmm. here. Guys were getting out immediately. Uh, you know, they're jumping into Blackwater and all these other places. Um, I saw a lot of it. I yeah. mean, guys <laughs> get out to one, one platoon because they weren't, you know, because you'd hear about like these Rangers and SF and like all these guys are going downrange. And you know, you're like, what? I'm fucking going to Germany to do what? Like, yeah, I just went to Buds and SQT and I did a two year workup. And what is this for? You told me I'm like, good. You know, maybe that was garbage. Yeah. And plus, so, you have that feeling that this whole thing's going to be over like really quick. And I better, if I don't get it now, if I don't get out and go work for a contractor, I'm like, this is freaking horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, how are, you, how are you liking the team life, Amber? You know what? I didn't mind it. I realized really early on that there was a pretty clear distinction in the wives that, you know, it's probably best to keep one foot in, but don't try to, you know, jump in full throttle and don't stay completely away. I saw that there were women that were very um, angry and resentful towards their husbands. And I, I felt like there were women that were really supportive and I always wanted to be supportive. Um, I also felt like, you know, it, it was not something that I wanted to necessarily make my life about, but I wanted to support Marcus enough that I knew what was going on. Um, within the community and so it was good you know I, we had two kids at that point oh, I dang. had yeah I got pregnant um, with our daughter when Marcus was in was December of 2001 right after 9-11 so um, we had two kids when he checked into his first platoon and he was pretty much gone all the time yeah. so <laughs> wait no 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 we had no I was at I was at lead climber when you were Nine. I was overdue. You got home on my due date, and yeah. then I ended up being five days overdue. But um, yeah, he was at lead climber, and I'm like, "Can you tell them that you're having a baby?" And he's like, "No, <laughs> no, I can't." She's so, re- literally ready to burst, and yeah. I'm, in, he's, he's I'm like, like five I'm hours away. It's just like it's such a you know the way. It's the way. It's the way. I'm like, oh, if you're deployed, that's one thing. But you're in West Virginia. I'm in Virginia. Yeah. He had you know, no one, cell phone. One, there was one cell phone. Yeah. No, a, a pay phone you walked to. <laughs> and he would call and be like, have you had the baby yet? So he got home on my due date, but I ended up being a little overdue. And um, yeah, he was just gone all the time. It was, it was really actually hard. I was an only child, so there was part of me that really, you know, I was raised an only child. So it was part of me that, that did love that independence and didn't need him around. But it did get lonely, mm-hmm. and I was now with two little kids away, and I was meeting wives. But it was, you know, there's, there's just there was a lot of like, 
I don't know what schools have your has your husband been to? What's your husband's rank? <laughs> I just I don't ever I've never played that sort of like living through yeah. getting validity through your husband's career. Marcus was always like you know my reputation means a lot to me, and so don't ever do anything <laughs> that would embarrass me in the community. Like don't risk my reputation. And I really respected that. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife was due with our first kid. And my exo, who's a prior enlisted guy, who's an awesome guy, this is at SEAL Team 2, he's like, so when's your baby due? And I was like, oh, you know, like September or something. And he's like, uh, when are you supposed to go on deployment? I'm like, uh, August something. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, you're not going. I was like, yeah, sir, no, I'm going on deployment. And he's like, yeah, you're not. And I was like, sir, I'm, I'm definitely going on deployment. Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely going. He's like, you are definitely not going. And so he literally said, hey, you can go on deployment as soon as she has that baby. And that's what I did. And I missed about a week and a half of deployment. She had the baby and I left the next day, Mm. which was probably, I mean, at least I was there. But the attitude for me was just like, no, it's like first baby, whatever. Like (laughs) I'm going on deployment. That's just, that's just the way it is. I mean, so like for you to be like, no, you know, uh, I'm not coming home. I'm at, I'm at a school right now, and I'm not coming home. That's the way it is. Like it's just the the normal thing. And then I remember I I told my wife, God bless her. <laughs> uh, she called me at work, and I don't I don't, I forget what was going on, but she called me at work, and my chief was like, Hey, Jonko, your wife's on the phone. <laughs> and I remember I pick up the phone and I go, What? Mm-hmm. And you could tell she was like so apologetic because it's this. I put probably put the same freaking psycho pressure on my wife that that Marcus put on you of like don't you know don't freaking mess don't, don't embarrass yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, what? And she's like, uh, you know, blah, blah. and I go, okay. And that was it. Like hung up. Like a total jerk. Like I'm a total <laughs> savage. Uh, so I'm sorry, darling, about that. Um, but, but what I'm saying is like that's just the normal thing. Like you, yeah. you just you're in the team. You all about the team. Everything's the teams. And it sucks to be married to those dudes. I think in a lot of way it does. But there was also this shared sort of like aggression if you will for lack of a better term that i understood that he needed to be so focused and i was just pissed after the the attacks uh of 9-11 and i just thought like yeah get over there and like do whatever you do but hell yeah yeah go do it just i I don't want to know about it but go do it like i knew that the teams always came first and i accepted that because Mm -hmm. i knew that it was a short period of our lives and um it needed to be done Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So. so your first deployment, you go to go to Germany. You're sitting over there. So why the hell are we doing this? You get back and then roll into another platoon. Mm-hmm. What's are you going to be a sixty gunner again? What's up? Absolutely. <laughs> I asked for it, <laughs> but I think at that time then we were, I was carrying a Mark, was like carrying a forty eight. Got to the Mark forty eight. Nice forty six too. Yeah. Um, so that was good. We, you know, that was uh, my my task unit was uh, was Red Wings. So. You know, we, um, you know, we worked up together. We flipped a coin. Uh, you know, McGreevy's platoon basically got to go to Afghanistan first. We go to Germany first. Oh, this uh, is when we were ripping out like halfway yeah. through to get guys yeah. more yep. exposure. Yep. So literally over a coin toss. And uh, so those guys went downrange and we went to, you know, we went to Germany. And then, you know, 
the rest is kind of history. And once the helo went down, we actually deployed a week later because you know they were a wreck. They were a wreck. I mean, half half the team was gone, and the other guys were, you know, not good. How do you even? How did you guys get word? What are you guys doing? In it Germany? was terrible how we got word. Um, we actually got word from from them. So here we are. We're forward deployed in Germany, an actual unit, and we got to find out from our spouses that there's guys uh, in full uh, military dress showing up at people's doors. Ooh. Like that's how, that's how we found out. So it was a, that was a rough couple of days. Um, it went on though. I mean, it was the communication wasn't a whole lot better back in Virginia Beach because they were still searching for Marcus Luttrell. And, you know, that mm-hmm. went on for, like, what, almost a week? Yeah. Um, and, you know, no one knew if their husband was on the helicopter or not. And the ones that survived weren't allowed to call home. And so it was literally pins and needles. And they weren't hearing much more. But then when the knocks started coming, um, they were finding out. Yeah, I remember being on the phone with you. And you, like, screaming, crying because, like, somebody was... Like somebody showed up to the door. Like you were, they were all, you know, the women were together and stuff. So it was, that was like a, just a shitty, you know, just a shitty time, I think, for everybody. And then the community, as you know, um, didn't really, didn't experience a, a loss like that. So it was really difficult how people were handling it. Um, when those guys got back to Germany, uh, I think they flew in a psych to like meet with everybody for 30 minutes. The first guy went in there and didn't come out for almost three hours. So they were they were they were gonna they they gave each guy thirty minutes to talk to the psych and the, the first guy went in didn't come out for three hours so it was just one of those things I don't think anybody even knew how to prepare or what to do or and so it was just a bit you know it was a bit rough for a while but again once we got like over that week and got our heads back straight we were like get us over there yesterday like why are we still sitting here but we did we wound up within a week we were in country and we were already we were doing our first mission like within the first couple of days. So and then what were you guys doing? What was like your mission set? Uh, mission was going after different, like, like different cells, different Taliban cells that were, um, but like larger, it was almost like a little bit different. It wasn't like CT missions, even though we did like a CT op right away. Like initially the mm-hmm. first op was like a no shit. Like it was probably the coolest op ever. Like, you know, Blackhawks come in, ropes go out, you know, fast rope, you know, charge on the gate, like, boom, everybody, you know, like, it was like a real op. And then because that was done at night, it got shut down, and the whole country then got shut down because you're not allowed to go after bad guys at night Mm -hmm. because that's not nice. (laughs) So that's what we were dealing with in, in, uh, you know, in Afghanistan at the time. So then we started just, you know, going out uh, in the daytime um, chasing different – different groups like in valleys and we we're working with the Kansoffs or the Canadians mm-hmm. who are like men compared to us. They're fucking, they look like Vikings, but they wore way too much gear. And we had to tell them too, like, like, dude, you're going out on the mountain for three days and you got six, nine mil mags on your body. Do you think you're going to use six, nine mil mags? Just I really hope you don't need to use <laughs> six, nine mil mags. So, you know, shit like that. But, um, but, uh, so that's what we were doing. And, and what's your job on the platoon? Um, I was a uh, air ops lead breacher, and so I, um, you know, and fire team leader, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, got we had a good like I don't say good good deployment. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a really spicy deployment. I mean, we had uh, like multiple engagements. We had our chief got 
we got lit up by a army uh, Apache, Apache which was wild because like that was not supposed obviously it wasn't That's supposed to horrifying. happen but it was a big deal because it was it was daytime still don't know how they didn't recognize us uh, full on engagement like full on gun run not just like oh there might be a position of more like we were we were engaging a small group that was engaging us and we were it was like s- five of us and maybe three of them and we were starting to bound forward like from cover to cover and you know i, ha- I actually i was uh, patrolling with a with a saw so it was a little bit lighter and i just remember just like just fucking going off on that thing it was awesome and then i remember hearing this deep um like deep deep sound of just like do 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 and i'm like what the fuck is that and literally in the middle of this little valley and it was it was not wide i turn around and this army uh this apache is in a full on like front tilt gun run and i'm i literally thought it was a movie like you saw like the dirt and the you know whatever that was a 20 millimeter maybe um it was just coming straight at me and i'm like you know, all this happened so fast. I'm like, are, are you fucking kidding me? Like, we're getting engaged by our own guys. And so it's come, it's tearing ass. We all dive out of the way. I remember diving behind rocks and watching my chief do a full-on, like, dive, like, into rocks. Like, did not give a fuck. And the thing comes tearing through. You can't see anything because dust's everywhere. He wound up getting hit in the face. Well, the way they were working uh, gun runs then is that, Dash one would come in and do uh, 20 millimeter guns. You know what dash two is coming in with next, right? 2.5 rockets. And so I just get this rock and I just huddle up and I'm like, this is fucking it. Like I may live, but like, I'm going to get fucked up. I'm going to get fragged here because like we, we've been calling in gun runs all day long into caves and like we'd get, we'd get um, engaged. We'd pull back, call in some guns, move forward. That's what kind of mission it was through the, through the mountains there. And so I was just waiting. I was like huddled up. I'm like, oh, this is it. We're going to get, I'm going to get sprayed. Hopefully it's not bad. Like I was like trying to cover up my face. Um, thinking like, okay, if I just get wounded, you know, it'll be okay. But just not my face or my head. And the second one just comes tearing through and doesn't fire anything. But I could see them. I could literally see them. And the, they were so low. So somebody who, who uh, didn't have their head up their ass was able to move over to fires and call it off. Somebody cleared them hot. I still don't know to this day, and we still talk about it because, like, it was a fuck up. You know, it was a bad fuck up. How bad was your chief wounded? He his whole face was like, um, like you couldn't. It wasn't bad, bad. Like, but it was like, if you took a picture, almost unrecognizable because the I guess the frag going that fast was so fast, it just kind of blew his face up, and he was like, like spitting blood a little bit. But he honestly was fine yeah yeah I mean, totally like let's, let's be real yeah 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 oh 100 percent. like you know looking back you're like but um yeah that was a big deal i just remember well, i think when we got back and again i was a e but i think e5 at the time maybe e6 you know so i was i was tucked away but i think the leadership got in the ass of of that unit you know over it um over at siege soda and it's like what what happened yeah, there you know who caught first off who who cleared them hot you know we were on the offensive it was just a it was a total mess when I was a young radio man I was standing out in the desert in Fallon Nevada trying to call in for an extract from a helicopter two helicopters and 
I'm sitting there and I'm looking. They're they're like maybe a couple hundred feet at, at altitude, and I I'm just standing there making comms with them like, hey, you know, we're ready for extract, and they couldn't see me. And I was like, this is crazy. I started like waving my arms. They still can't see me. And finally, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm getting a bearing and I'm like, hey, I'm right over here to your Southwest and they, they just can't see me. And finally I like pop a whatever, pop a smoke and I mark you identify, blah, blah, blah. But it showed me that when you're in the air, like things just look so totally different. Totally different. And uh, they can't see shit. And they're moving freaking 150 miles an hour. And they get told like, you're cleared hot. Guess what? They're gonna freaking shoot, man. Because yeah. um, yeah. a lot of times they're saving your ass. They're saving someone's ass too. Yeah, yeah. And you know, there's like, I mean, you know, all the blue on blue that was happening just everywhere. And again, it's not, you know, of course, it's not nefarious. It just it happens just like that. Yeah. Um, but we had, uh, as I'm sure you know, you did. Uh, we were in day, pa- you know, day panels, and I popped out immediately, and they were like, "Are you fucking kidding me, guys?" Like. We can't see a yeah. day panel that's cut up out of your shoulder. <laughs> so like that, the lesson learned that day forward was like, no, no, you got to carry a full day panel and like bust it out. And, oh. you know, because that's the only thing they said. That's the only thing we can see. There's no way we can see that little thing <laughs> on your shoulder. <laughs> you know, so uh, incredible lessons learned. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so that that deployment wraps up. Um but God, I mean, you lost freaking so many guys yeah. from your task. Good, good guys. Yeah. A couple of buds mates and yeah, it was wild. I mean, we, matter of fact, right before we deployed right after the helo, well, not right after the helo went down, but they flew, Marcus flew back to Germany and they were like, Hey, you and so-and-so get up to, uh, I forgot it was Ramstein. Like go meet him. Like he's fucked right now. So we, we, we got in a car, went up there, met him like once he, I think they, they'd cleaned him up once he got out of like the, you know, the, um, you know, the ER or whatever, but he was covered in, I mean, he was nasty looking. He was like, it looked like he, his, the, all the, the wounds he had were just like, just healing. So like his face was covered in shit. All his arms and legs were like covered in, like he looked horrible, but he was like super excited to see us because he was, you know, yeah. you know, he thought he was going to get his head cut off. For, for I was, days. uh, I was the admiral's aide, and I was just about done with that job. So I'd come back from Iraq and I, I, I became the admiral's aide. And so when that was happening, I was tracking what was happening. And I remember they're like, like they're telling the admiral, Hey, it seems like there's a guy that's alive. And I was, like I said, I was a radio man, so I was like, "Bro, they're like they have his, they have his radio. Like this isn't." I didn't say this verbally, but I was thinking to myself, "Man, they have his radio, and they've turned his radio on, and they turned on the transponder or whatever. You know, how is a guy alive right now? It didn't make any sense." And then by the next day, it was like, "No, they have, they actually have comms." And I remember thinking, "This is a freaking miracle." Um, how this if this guy's alive for real? And the weird thing was, I I had met. The Latrell boys at a West Coast reunion. I need, and I just saw them, but I remember because th- they were big, giant monster guys, and they're twins, right? Which is, they just stand out. Corn-fed Texas, yeah, Texas and, bros. And I remember like me seeing them and being like, "Damn, that's freaking legit! You got, got your twin brother, and you're both in the deep. It's like, how cool is that? And then, then sure enough, as I put the piece together, I was like, "Oh shit, it's that guy! It's one of those two guys." Uh, and. Phew, 
man, that was horrible, horrible scenario. Um, I remember thinking at that time, A, this is definitely going to be made into a film because the story was just unbelievable. And B, oh shit, like bad things can happen to team guys. Like, you know, you'd heard of like a death or two, a training accident, or, you know, someone died overseas. But until that helicopter went down, I sort of thought team guys were invincible. And for the first time, I remember thinking like, oh shit, um, this might not end well. And, you know, you see so many of your girlfriends suddenly become widows and got real really quick. So what did you do when you got home from that deployment? We had a huge party. We had a big party, invited everybody, including the CO. And I think um, to this day, we still talk about that Amber bought me a kegerator. She was kind of celebrating us coming back. And, you know, a few people were not happy at that because of the, you know, you know, because of the helo coming down and guys didn't come home. And I mean, those were all our, like, brothers and friends and, and sisters. And, and uh, we, you know, Amber's thought was, hey, I just want to celebrate, like, that guys came back, you know. And so we, we threw a party, and she bought me a kegerator, I think, from Costco. And that was really cool because I had just all of a sudden, I gained, like, 100 friends overnight. Like, guys would just stop by and be like, hey, I'm just grabbing a beer out of yeah. your kegerator. <laughs> um, but I think that night Amber had the CO's. Stop. Don't even say it. No, it's great. She had the, he had, she had the CO's wife doing a kegerator. <laughs> had her, like, legs up in the air. She got thrown into that on, in her defense. <laughs> it was great, but it's still a good story. I think, we e, I think it was E5 at the time. She's so. great, and he's great, and they're the greatest. They're amazing. <laughs> uh, what, what about career? What, do you, what are you doing now? What's your next move? From there? Yeah. So uh, come back from my second deployment. Uh, I'd already screened for oh, Dev okay. Group uh, after my first and they just said, hey, uh, we're not taking any, anybody after one platoon, so go, you know, you're good. Go go do one deployment and come back, and you'll be in that next class. I was in 06. And, and you roll into that selection. How was that? It was good. Um, again, just full focus. Um, you know, I, I, you know, to my surprise, guys didn't practice, but, like, I just wanted to be there. Like, I wanted to be just, you know, when I found out about that place, I, I was like, yeah, I, that's exactly what I want to do. So I trained and worked hard and um yeah i just i had a good cqc block and like i was saying you know, i like was one of the i was a top like pistol shooter and, and with the rifle that's where i was like struggling with the rifle and i went from like they post your scores every day your time there's no hiding like like when you shoot like you show up and you're like oh marcus 57 out of 60 <laughs> like what and everyone's like oh look at shit bag like <laughs> if you don't move up you're out of here right and so um, I wasn't liking the pistol. Pistol was at the top, but the rifle, the initial week, I was really close to the bottom. And I'm like, dude, this is not like, I, I can't. That's so weird. I dude. can't. It was weird. And then. To uh, be good at pistol yeah. and not good at rifles, just weird. It's weird. Was there something that didn't click in your head and then some something finally made it click? Jocko, I'm still trying to figure out what's fucking in my head. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, 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 I man, I, I wish I could, I could say, but. Uh, I, I managed to crawl my way back into the top 10 just by like sheer, you know, have to, as and you would respect that. Like I just, th- I, had, I, had to get, I had to get good and, and I, got, uh, I got a lot better. So, but no, I, I, I did really well. Um, I finished that and kind of finished green team and, and you know, they kind of do a ranking and, um, you know, you're not supposed to know, but I was, I guess I was chosen first um, and I went over to squadron, hung out with our, 
got to work for our bro that I talked about earlier. I don't know if you care if we say his name on here or what, but I, I say don't say his name. Okay, there um, you go. Um, but yeah, it was uh, everything. Everything that I thought, uh, probably actually more, and and a lot of stuff that I didn't expect, um, for sure. And probably Amber will tell you like life just got weird or after that. So now you start knocking out deployments. Yeah. Um, what, what's the cycle that you're a- running every now? year? So we were deploying every year, sometimes it's different twice now, but it, it, at the time yeah, it was, it was six was on and then three, six on. It was three. Yeah. Three, three month deployment, three gone. Six, six, six back. Yep. Three gone, three, three yeah. training, yep. three on standby, yeah. three gone, yeah. three training. Three and, and then on standby, you know, flyaways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it was good I, again, but and I was away way more than even, um, than, than even at the teams. So. Where are your uh, deployments to? Um, Al Assad, um, you know, Bagram. Um, so both Iraq yeah, and Afghanistan. Both, both OEF, OIF. Yep. And you're bouncing back. And what what's your um, what's your job? Uh, I was also a breacher there. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's exactly that's all I did. Um, I loved it, and I was um, I did a lot of the combatives. So it was, it was that, that split at the time where it was like sport fighters and combatives, and combative guys hate sport fighters, and sport fighters think combative guys are gay, and you know it, it was like that thing going on, you know. And I thought it was funny, but I do tell this story because um, I w- I trained every morning. I went in. We had um, you know Coochie had his guys mm-hmm. every day, and so I'd go in for two hours and train. I never trained at. At a, at a gym just because we, after work, I went home. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did train every day. And there was one day I was, um, I, I had a guy in a full mount and I was trying to figure out a way to, to put a, like a, like a collar, like some kind of choke with the, you know, and I was trying to grab his collar and then it like stopped. And I looked at him and I'm like, what the fuck are we doing? Why am I trying to choke you? Why aren't I like, why don't I like hitting you, put my knee on your chest like get up and go to my sidearm or pull out something and stick you with it or just like push you and get away. And from there, I was like, you know, I'm not doing any more sport fighting. I just like, I just want to know how to like, just like pound, 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 or, you know, gouge your eye out or just like stick you in the gut with a knife and just get the fuck out of here. And, and then like, I started more moving into the camp of like the combative side of the house. And then of course you had people saying, well, no, if you're a better sport fighter, that'll transition. It's like the skydivers. Mm -hmm. Like if you skydive slick, forever no i could any of those guys could strap on a heavy ruck and you know so it was just anyway it was back and forth and i don't know i digress where where are we going on that one (laughs) (laughs) Um, i loved all of it how about that it was you know i um but so okay my you asked me what i was doing i was a breacher and i did you know i did a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff and so and and i climbed and and amber what's what's life like for you now now he's gone even more i was way more settled so that's actually when I met around that time is when I met Sarah Wilkinson mm-hmm. um, and our life was very centered around the command and, um, you know, other command members, command families, we all sort of, you know, worked out together, hung out together, weekends together um, with the kids, sports and pool parties and birthdays. And, you know, it was, it was um, very tight knit. And one of the, one of the things that I remember so much about when Sarah was talking through, you know, her experience with Chad was like it left such an impression on me. She's just talking about like this personality 
change mm-hmm. that she saw from him mm-hmm. over time. And you know, it did were you seeing that kind of thing from Marcus at this point? Were you seeing was he getting withdrawn? Was he, you know, short fused? Was he it's you know, it sounded like what, what Chad was doing was more like the withdrawn thing. And you know, she was like, Look, he wasn't like the most talkative guy in the world, but all of a sudden like she noticed that he was different. Yeah. And, and Amber, before you even go, like, and, and so I, I worked with Chad. He was one of my recce guys, and I never, like, he was smiling, happy, joking. And again, this is right when he, he well, showed up we, there. We yeah, moved. this is 2008. So he was still, like, just back from being out in the private sector for a number of years. Oh, right. And so, like, he was, I feel like he was still, like, like giddy and just, hey, life is, life is chill. It's good. It's, you know, nothing's really taken mm-hmm. me down. At but least if, that's how I remember him. If, you know, if we go back to the examples that I already gave of Marcus with, you know, our son crawling all over him and showing up with the picked geraniums, like he was still very much into being a husband and a dad. And even in his first and second platoons, um, you know, with Maggie's birth, he was there. Work came first, but he was there. What we transi- transitioned into was living completely separate lives and so he would come home and he would say things like hey where are your cups you know in his own home that he was paying for and we would get everything looking perfect because he would be home for five days which you know was pretty typical between trips um anything more than that was a a pretty long time but he had we had become distant and I had become, you know, way more rooted in my friends and my life and my kids. And it was okay that we lived separate lives because the ladies that I was around and their children were living that same life. And so there was this shared respect and sacrifice that no one else understood, but the people in your inner circle knew without having to even talk about. And so as he was becoming more and more distant, um, I guess you just sort of chalk it up to that's how things are now. Mm-hmm. And do you, do you actually notice it, or is it like the proverbial like boiling of a frog, where it's just like it, the, the frog doesn't know that the water's getting hot until it's all of a sudden it's dead. Too late, yeah. It's too it's too slow. Is it yeah. like that kind of thing where I think so. you're just going through and it's like oh yep he's going on another trip and oh yeah. it's another trip and yeah. Um, he's back, but he's, you know, going to sleep or I don't want to bother him, that type of thing over time. Yeah. Like we could play nice for those five day spans where the house looked perfect and the kids behaved perfect and he was as present as he could be, but it became a lot more comfortable to live separately. And, um, you know, it was all in the name of the United States of America. It was all for the greater good. And it, it felt like, when he would come home, he would certainly be more checked out. Like he couldn't wait to leave again. Like I could sense that. And um, family time felt like forced time, especially at the command. So um, yeah, it was, it was getting really hard. He was getting, certainly pulling away more, drinking more. It, he felt like a stranger. How much are you drinking at this point? Normal mouths. Uh, by t- <laughs> team standards. By, by our standards. Mm-hmm. By the bros standards. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think we just, man, we just 
we just went around a rabbit hole. I mean, we, I think I was just drinking a lot of bourbon often. Um, but, and like I never really water. knew that because I wasn't with him that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so, even when I came home, like it was. I didn't know like what his drinking habits were because we were really never together. I mean, the last couple of years that you were deploying, he was gone for almost 300 days a year. Like, mm-hmm. you know. But I think it's pretty toxic. I mean, we're, we're all, everyone's doing the same thing. Everyone's drinking hard. Everyone's, I think, going through the same things. Some are affected probably more than others. And I didn't see anything wrong. You didn't see anything wrong. I at mean, what point did you, at what point did you start to see something wrong? Um, 2008. Yeah, I think 2008. Josh. Yeah, Josh, uh, one of my close best friends from, from Buds and then through the teams uh, passed on a, on a, on a op. Um, and that was just unexpected. And that was like a river and street yeah. crossing, right? Yep. Yeah. And um, it was just, it was tough because I was, um, I was supposed to do that river and stream crossing. Um, and we, um, when, when he got swept down the river, we, I think we looked for him for almost, it's like 10 to 12 hours. Um, and then he, he washed up 50 clicks down the uh, Konar, which was like a, you know, class four rabbits. It was, it was nasty. It was gnarly. Um, so just, you know, seeing him kind of get, get pulled out of the water is like really, it's not, not good. Um, not good. And, uh, myself and another individual, um, took his body back to his, uh, his family in North Carolina and we stayed there a week. And then we were there is when, um, Jason and Dusty got killed like a couple days later. Um, on an op, uh, direct fire. Both of them got got shot, um, and of course we were supposed to be on that op. And uh, yeah, it was just you know it was just you you know you went through it, Jocko, and it was just one of those times that was uh, it was um, you know I tried to look at it as like though this is what it's supposed to be like this is just the way it happens, and I became numb after a while. Um, you know even when um, extortion went down, I remember talking to Scott Moore, Alma Moore about it, and was like. Admiral, I'm fucking numb to this. Like, this doesn't affect me anymore. Like, I, I don't just, I don't get it. Like, why is this still happening? And it was just, we, it was just the conversations we were having, I think, through these years were just getting just odd. And um, I think I remember seeing this, the psych for the first time in, in 08 at the command, just like asking him, like, what's what's going on? Can you, you know, help me out a little bit or whatever? And, um, that was like the first time I ever actually went and spoke to somebody, but we didn't talk about it. Like nobody talked about it, maybe. But he also has, we have his medical record and I was just looking through it and it says like, um, you know, d- decided not to talk to the command psych for fear of not being able to deploy, which is the, the you need to hear that all the time. Oh, yeah, I don't even remember, I don't even remember that. Yeah, so I was certainly noticing that he, he just, it seemed like he was just like a renegade to me. He did not care. He did not care. And those deployments were so insane. It's like every, someone was dying every deployment. And so it felt like Russian roulette. And I just, between Josh in 2008 and then there were, you know, other deaths that weren't so close to us. And then Adam Brown dying in 2010, who we were very, very close with Adam and his family um, and our kids' best friends uh, at the time. I was just like, this is nuts. We can't do this anymore. Yeah. And so it got got to a point where I just felt like I had to do something different. I wasn't like fully 
fully checked in. And um, again, talking to the admiral, he's like, you should go to OCS. He's like, you should be an officer. I'm like, I just, I need a break right now, bad. He's like, no, you should go to OCS, you're gonna be a good officer. And so I went to OCS for like two days. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Wait, didn't you have to put like a package oh, together yeah. and everything? Oh yeah, I did fucking all this shit. I, yeah. did you kind he of- He even passed up being promoted to chief so someone else could have it because he thought he was going to I did. I went, I went in. I went in and, and talked to the uh, yeah the CMC at the time. Said, "Don't make me a chief." I said, "Make so and so a chief," because I'm you know I'm going to go to OCS. Like, why would you make me a chief? And I'm yeah. like, you're going to take it away from somebody. So they didn't. They didn't, they made him chief, and and uh, and I went to OCS. So you knew what you were getting into with this. Mm. Not no. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I did because no, I didn't. I didn't. Honestly, like I didn't. I was not. Um, I wasn't thinking clearly. Well, let me ask you this: When you went and talked to the psychologists, yeah, what do you say? What do they say? They they have like a you know they have their standard list of like SOP you know like what what's how's your home life you know how is your family? Mm-hmm. You're like up? oh my my wife is great my yeah, kids are great it's fine like what are you are you drinking yeah like, yeah a little bit but you know normally what you know what the guys are doing nothing you know like it's it's very. Um, vanilla uh-huh. right it's very templated and i think you know obviously we'll talk about the route that i went eventually when mm-hmm. when i separated but um i think that's the problem is like you go to school and they try to solve a problem in this box that they're taught but everybody's different like you're different than me and i'm different from her like they can't use a standardized template to i think it's also like a check in the box like you know it's actually called the thirty-minute checkup from the neck up, right? Oh, is it? Oh, wait, is this like a te- like they say? Hey, did you get ordered to go do this? This is a start of part of the standard operating procedure. Okay, you're back from three deployments. You got to go check in yeah, with the psych. What, is that what? I don't. And then it? you give the okay. answers, you know, that you think will probably get them off get, your back. Yeah. Let me let me figure out what I have to say. Yeah. So they're not. Like, Life is fine. Kids are great. I'm ready to deploy. Yeah, I'm good. And so is that what you did? Or did Life you go in good. there? Because you said you were a little, you were starting to feel it a little bit. Did you expose that at all when you talked to this this doctor? I don't. Or I not don't, really. I don't think so. I don't even remember. I'm not sure. I just remember him. I just remember him telling me, Marcus, you guys aren't crazy. He's like, but your wives. He's like, they're freaking nuts. <laughs> well, it is crazy to stay married to. I, I mean, like, I literally, like, of all the conversations, that's what I remember. He's like, Marcus, I don't think you guys are crazy. He's like, but I do think your wives are crazy. I'm like, all right, <laughs> all right, doc, whatever, whatever you say, I'm on board. So that's kind of crazy that you went in there. You're feeling like something's not right, but you still get like an up check to go to OCS. By the way, <sighs> that it was the the reason I went to OCS is because I believed in. In the admiral, I believe in my skipper. Mm-hmm. Like that's the only thing. Like, and I don't want to let him down at all. Mm-hmm. And so and he's I, all fired up. So fired up. He's all fired up. He's like hell yeah. He's always fired up. I love him. Yeah, for sure. And um, so he tells you, no, you're going to be a great officer. Yeah, he sends you to OCS, and you're like Roger. I'm like Roger that. It made sense on paper. For sure. But it's I remember, like we but need I remember, a change. He wants I, to go to the West Coast. But I remember telling my close friends, like, like no, like my well, very close friends was like, I, like I can't at the I can't, airport. I can't do this right now. Like I can't. I'm not. Good. He's like, no, bro, you gotta go. Like, you're gonna regret this. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Like, I, I can't. Like, I'm not good. He's like, Marcus, you gotta get. What on did you plane. mean by not good? Like, I was just not. I was not into it anymore. Like, I was not mentally, like, focused or determined or like driven or like any of it. Like, I just didn't. 
didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Were you seeing this, Amber? I was, but I was also in a complete tailspin because we just needed to we needed a change of scenery. I just needed like a calm in the storm to to reassess. Because you can like survive. Uh, you know, like a tornado, for example, it's much easier to survive than it is to like survey the damage. I was in complete survival mode. And so it seemed like, okay, well, this is something that could get me to the other side to survey the damage. That's a good metaphor. So you're like in the storm shelter. You, there's this mayhem going, you're okay in the shelter, but you know, at some point you got to get out of this thing and you got to get somewhere safe. Yeah. Yeah. And then once the storm is over, like, you know, you think about like any natural disaster. We lived in on the East Coast, hurricanes, like preparing and surviving the hurricane isn't the hard part. The hard part is cleaning up all the mess on the other side. And so I knew we needed to get to a place where we could start cleaning up the mess. But you just you're in such survival mode that you don't even know what that looks like. And so for me, OCS sort of like checked that box. It was a different change of scenery and in my mind, Marcus always needed a goal. Mm-hmm. His goal was to get a scholarship, to become a SEAL, to get to the command. This was just the natural next goal. I didn't know that he was so depleted mentally that he didn't have the willpower to yeah. care about the goal. Check. And it was the first time that I had ever seen him not care about a goal. That's what I was going to ask you because you're describing a mess, right? But at the same time, you're both all also kind of like, you know, the kids are doing good. You're we're doing, doing everything. Good. No, we're, we're doing everything. Like, so we're, was there some everything. like under, I'm, the reason I'm asking you these this question or this line of questioning is because if someone is a wife and they're looking at their husband, what are they looking for and how do they go, oh, you know what? I, see, I know what this is. I, I understand what's happening. There's a loss of motivation. Did you see behaviors? Was there anything that you said, this is not, Marcus is not in a good spot right now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there were certain, I just felt like he was reckless. I felt like he was a complete renegade. He just didn't care. And so for me, OCS was a way to dial it back in give him some direction and focus because like, I mean, he didn't cut his hair for nine months. He, he was drinking and then like the RSO the next day, like drinking till 4am then the RSO at eight. Like it, to me, it was just sort of like very atypical behavior for him. Um, Maybe not necessarily of the teams, but he was so laser focused that the sudden sort of renegade attitude was, definitely alarming at the same time i never saw him Mm -hmm. so it was probably 10 times worse than i knew Mm -hmm. ocs two days ocs ocs is because i went to ocs i know and i can't imagine uh he'd come back uh, from deployment like literally a week or two prior i fucking hate it i showed up and you know you have all the marines and they're like yelling and shit and you have like a rack like this and they're like (laughs) fuck is this guy and uh, I, I honestly, I mean, I lasted a day and a half. I remember sitting. First off, I was getting migraines. They gave me, they got me ibuprofen six hours after I, I was fucking hurting. And then I remember sitting on the floor. My back was killing me. I had all types of like shit going on with my my uh, my, my my L four and L five. And I'm like trying to read the uh, was it eleven general orders of the century? <laughs> like I'm trying to I'm trying to uh, you know trying to memorize them. And I, I remember taking the book and throwing it across the room. And I'm like, hey, who's in charge here? Like in a very nice way. <laughs> oh, Lieutenant Sergeant, like, can I speak to him, please? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I was like, hey, sir, here, here's the deal. 
I was like, I just got back from my six combat deployment. I was like, I got back a week and a half ago. I'm like, and I didn't curse. I was like, why are, if I have to go to OCS, like, why are you guys sending me with people who like never been here before? Like, I don't want to be around any of these people. Like, honestly, I was like, I just want to go back to my unit. He's like, you know, we usually keep guys here for 12 weeks. He's like, you can go tomorrow. I'm like, thank you. And I did that. <laughs> Dude, that's insane. Oh, it was, it was, I was like, what am I doing? I'm like, I'm learning how to fold my underwear again. Are you kidding me? And I remember going back and, and telling Admiral, I was like, hey, I was like, if you want good people to like stay in, you guys got to figure out this OCS thing after guys are going over to see us to war for 10 or 15 years. Like, come on. Like, that's just, you're going to. You're going to get more people like me that are like, fuck this. Or they hear about what OCS is, and instead of going through the whole process of sending their packet in, they're just going to hear about it and go, there's no chance. Because that's what I've told. I, t- I talked to a bunch of people when I got back. They were like, oh, yeah, you didn't know that? Uh, they're like, that's why I didn't go. I was like, how can you go deal with that for another 12 weeks after all the other shit? They're like, so I didn't. They go, but there's this workaround. And if you, if you become a – it's like if you go on reserve – you go to like a fork and knife school for like oh, four yeah. weeks, you get pinned, and then you go back on active duty. Yeah. Like they, they decided they to tell me that. Something like, out. Yeah, they, they figured something out. But, but he honestly, like, he knew, in- intuitively, you knew you shouldn't have. Oh, there's no chance. He I called have from the airport. He called me and he called his best friend, and I think I said like, you've got to listen to your gut, and he just ended up pushing through and getting on the plane and going, but. The day I showed up, I'm like, what am I? I'm not. What am I doing here? Yeah, that's, like, that's this is like fucking the last place I want to be. Boot camp welcome, like so ridiculous. Yeah, it was good. So, so they sent you right back to the command. Yeah, well, well, they use, and they usually keep people out in process. Hold, they, they keep people in holding cell for like 12, 12 or thirteen weeks at OCS, and yeah, they let me go like the next day. And what did the what did like the command Nothing, say? Like, what, like the detailer say? They were just like what. You know, because that's bizarre, dude. Like, get a bill to. It's hard to get a bill to OCS. I know. I, I did have to apologize to the admiral. He's like, "Hey, I'm like, I know." I was like, "I know." Um, but he was. I, I also think he was on the, uh, what, the committee that that uh, selected you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure he had a lot of pull. Whatever his position well, was. Yeah, for sure. But in um, hindsight, it's like, who ever thought that that was a, good, was idea? a good idea? Anyway. Um, but yeah, so I went back and they were like, Hey, what do you need to do? I said, I just, I you like, know, there's someone out there right now going, see, OCS is so hard. It's so much harder. He's got to quit. <laughs> yeah. I said, I quit. Uh. Um, yeah. So I just told him, I said, Hey, I need, I just need a break. Cause where, wherever that is. Um, I said, I was thinking maybe, maybe go out to the West coast and just forget about stuff. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. Go do it. So that's what we did. So I went, went out to, uh, yeah, went to the center and wanted to teach tactics, and they threw me in first phase, which is like the worst place they could have put me, and it was not good. Like I was, and as you know, all the guys there are awesome. Like good dudes, all of them been overseas, hard, hard-nosed dudes, like great workers. I didn't want to be around anybody. I was like, I don't want to make friends with anybody. They probably thought I was like standoffish because like I didn't want to hang out with anybody. Um, it was just, it was just not a good time. I, um, I, I body slammed a student in front of the flagpole and like one of the, one of the instructor staff grabbed me and he was like, Hey man, he's like, you, like, you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you don't fucking like tone it down. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what's going on. And so there was just a lot of little things like that that were starting to happen. 
And um, I just didn't care. I was like, you know, fuck everybody, uh, you know, at the time. One of my guys, uh, JP Donnell, who's been on this podcast a few times, and he was um, he was in my task unit. It was in Ramadi. Came back, went to another platoon, and then they got shoulder surgery and got pulled out, and they sent him to Buds. And it was like one month deep. They called me over at Trade Out, and they're like, you got to come get your boy. <laughs> it was the same thing. He was just not in a good headspace to be putting students through, you know, f- first phase because – he just wasn't in the right spot, you know, like had to get him out of there and get some freaking, you know, <laughs> he was a loose cannon. Um, so, you, you're working for, how long are you in first phase for? First phase for a year, and then finally they, they kicked me over to SQT. Now, 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 you're sitting here saying like, I didn't want to be around anybody, I didn't want to make friends with anybody. What do you see in Amber? Like, well, what does this we look like to you? Talking stuck at home with him. <laughs> And we had been apart for the the bigger part of every year leading into this. And so it was very, very, very difficult. I know. I was trying to be optimistic. We were super settled in Virginia Beach. And so I'm like, oh, a new beginning. I bought cruisers for everyone. I thought we would come out to California and suddenly be this happy family. And when we got here, everything just completely hit the fan because I didn't have my community anymore. I mean, started every single morning at Sarah Wilkinson's gym, CrossFit Odyssey at the time. They had this core group of girls and um, my kids had their friends. We had an amazing neighborhood, a great house. And suddenly we're in California. We don't know anyone. And now Marcus is home and the kids, you know, like our son in particular, had this sort of idea of who Marcus was in his mind. He was sort of like this myth of a dad and um, you know, he he really didn't know him. And I think that whenever we what the dad that he got delivered back was nothing like the dad that he had created in his mind at the time. And so he started acting out like everything was going bad. And um I don't know, I just it's 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 hard for me to like picture this right now because you seem like a super chill dude, like all nice and mellow, and like so. What like what does this look like? He had become home? a monster. Well, first of all, he was completely disconnected to us. It felt like he didn't want to be anywhere really. I mean, it didn't. I didn't feel like he wanted to be any place else. I felt like he wanted to be nowhere. Like he didn't have a purpose, a belonging. A, 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 he didn't give a damn about anything. Um, he was definitely drinking a lot a lot more than i had realized or he started drinking more than you know i was comfortable with and um i mean there were certainly times that i was i i just thought there's no good way out of this leaving him is not going to necessarily solve anything staying with him i don't know how much worse this can get um yeah but just to go back jacko like i was still like I was still functioning. Like I was mm-hmm. still, you know, engaging with the guys. I mean, I had, you know, I had, yep. I had bros and stuff, but I, but I, but I was, I didn't want to, it wasn't, it wasn't fun for me anymore. I didn't want to be one of the guys and, um, you know, it was just not, it just wasn't the same. It was just, it was, it was different, you know, and thank God I got kicked over to SQT. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ran CQC for about a year and a half and a great staff. I mean, those guys, you know, I joke because we had a we had a great sell. But I feel like those guys did everything. I'm like, I was like, I didn't even need to be there. Like, and literally the LPO from. I mean, they just they ran the show. And so, thank goodness, I was just kind of in the background, just 
um, I think I started school online at yeah. USD. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a, a graduate program there. So we would, you know, work the students in SQT, and then at night we'd put them to bed, and then I would stay up and, you know, do work and stuff. And so, you know, it wasn't like um, – it w- wasn't like a complete mess. It, it, you know, I, I think yeah, everything yeah, no. was – like I was functioning. That, yeah. It wasn't – you know, I don't want to sit here and say like – you know, he was like stuck in the corner of his house, sucking on his thumb every day. <laughs> no, no, you no. He's still functioning. Yeah, still going to work, but like you just didn't care. Like I you was just checked. I was checked out everything. Marcus doesn't do well without a goal and a you know something to work towards. And so, it, hey, most of us don't. Going back to get his master's degree while he was at SQT it was definitely like a check in the box. And then, I think at some point, oh well, then the Bin Laden raid happened. Which well, I kind of lost my mind on that one, just not being there. <laughs> like you, like put me in the put me in, coach. There was like this big sort of like resurgence of let's get back to Virginia Beach, and so I did. I called up the CMC. I was like, "Hey, I want to come back." He's like, "Done, come back." And I, then I just kind of faded quickly. <laughs> well, no, it was replaced. I mean, that was our plan was to go back, and then extortion happened, and. You know, so many oh, more shit, of our friends right. died. And then it was like, well, what are we going to go back to, to that same game of Russian roulette? Um, you know, we just didn't know each other anymore. And it was very uncomfortable to be in the house. He was learning how to be around the kids. The kids were very uncomfortable. Like, how does dad fit back into this dynamic? And so we thought, like, at the time, we know dysfunction. We know deployments. We know not being together. Um, we don't know how to be a normal family. I don't know what families do on the weekends. I don't know how a family spends a Friday night, um, but I know how to be a single mom. And so rushing back into that dysfunction was the safest thing at the time, which was replaced by a big fat reality slap of, oh, extortion just happened. We're going to go back to the Russian roulette. Do we really want to do that? And so that's, at that point, he decided... Let me just get out of the military altogether. No, you missed a whole bunch. Oh, my turn. You missed. You missed something. <laughs> what? Um, that's when I went to speak to OIC from SQT, and I was like, "Hey, I'm like, I'm not. You know, there's something not right. Like, I'm not doing well." And he's like, well, "Why don't you go speak to the the? I don't know if it was a West Coast dive medical officer, or whatever they call." So I went over there, and it was the psych, and just started telling them about what's going on. He said, Marcus, um, he's like, first off, you're not, you're definitely not the only one that's come in here. He's like, matter of fact, he goes, I can't even count the number of guys that have come in here now over the last couple months. Um, and they have literally given me the same exact story. And he goes, I don't know what it is, but he's like, you guys are all experiencing the same exact thing. And he said, so this is what I'm going to do. And I think he's, I think I got prescribed a, you know, a, a, a an SSRI uh, or SNRI first time and I guess that was supposed to stabilize mood and then I got sent to NICO and I came back with like four more medications from the NICO you know the NICO clinic mm-hmm. out in which I thought was actually a pretty good place but they do a lot of they do a lot of checking and giving you drugs mm-hmm. and they don't do a whole lot of in my opinion healing when you go and you tell this doctor something's not right how do you describe something's not right like what does that sound like again i'm looking at this from a perspective of yeah how a can we help? Yeah. a first responder a mm-hmm. firefighter a police officer or somebody in the military that's 
What are the, what yep. are you tracking that they should be paying attention to? Um, I think the one of the biggest is lack of motivation or like lack of purpose. You feel like nothing matters anymore at all. Like, what am I doing this for? Like, I don't even care. And you're like, well, what do you care about? Well, I used to like to surf or work out. I could give a shit about surfing or working out. Or I used to like to go, you know, do X, Y, and Z. I don't even, here, we'll give you two weeks to do that. No, how about I just sit, sit in my house and watch TV and drink bourbon? Because I don't have to think about anything and I can numb myself. And so I would say to the people out there listening, it's you're going to start to see that you're becoming less motivated to do things of things that you really enjoyed in the past. And that's, I think, one of the biggest signs. That that right there is a telltale sign. The stuff you really enjoy doing, when it comes to like a screeching halt, like go talk to somebody for sure. You know, And I don't know if that's now depression kicking in or now if you want to call it like PTSD or anxiety or like, you know, now we're getting into the science of it. And I don't know also like is this a, is this a chemical thing? Because right now that, that study that just came out said mm-hmm. yeah, it's, not. it's not a chemical thing, right? So now it's like, okay, well, what's, what's going on in your life that you can't get out of bed in the morning? Like you don't want to go to work. You don't want to answer your text messages. So it's really just like a lack of just like, like if you just like slumped your shoulders down and just like not gave a fuck anymore, that's, that's really the. There was also a lot of anger, irritability. Um, I think those are all the things that, that are part of it. So like you, you become this person that doesn't want to do anything and then you do snap or you throw mugs through the window or you choke out the bartender at the country club, you know, and stupid shit that. All these things have happened by mm, the way. <laughs> that you probably shouldn't be doing. Um, There's like a weird, uh, I don't know, that's the wrong word, but when you're all, when you're living your life and everything's like like you're saying you got goals you got things that you want to do and you got a long-term vision and you got kids and when people die that you know that are your friends and then there's this like there's there's this thing of like well they're gone and the world is still going and what is what what does any of this shit mean of oh my friend was this awesome guy and now he's dead and we're i'm still going to you know morning muster what what is what are we doing here I think that sort of thing, you know, because you start getting like an existential thought of this life is the most important thing. But now, oh, you you lost a bunch of friends and we're still here and we're going on, but we're going to end up where they are. And this is the way things are going. It's like seems like that could lead to. Well, I might as well just watch TV. I might as well just sit here and drink bourbon. I might as well just do nothing because. This is where we're heading. This is where we're all heading. Um, I don't know. Again, this is just like I'm thinking out loud as I'm hearing you describe, uh, uh, you know, where your headspace was. Um, and especially when you're 
sort of get detached and you get put into a different environment where you don't have the same friends and you don't have the same like crew of families that you're with. And, um, you know, one thing I can say about losing guys in combat was like, you lose guys in combat and you're with all your friends and then you're going to go do more stuff in combat and you don't really, that feeling of what are we doing here? Actually, the opposite happens. You now know why you're here. Like we're going to go and we're going to make things happen. We're going to go do our best. We're going to stand tall. Like you're going to go do all those things. So it's sort of the opposite. You get juiced. No, you get juiced up. Yeah. No, I think you get fired up. And like you want to go do that. A hundred percent. And then. In the environment you're talking about, without a doubt. I mean, yeah. like I said, after that Hilo went down, like. I couldn't, we couldn't even, we were screaming, why are we still sitting here? Like, why isn't, why didn't the helicopter land right next to us, put us on there and send us over there to, to go, to go get redemption, right? right? And then when you don't have that outlet anymore, and then you're looking around and you're saying like, well, well, why am I even going to get out of bed this morning? Yeah, I think, you know, what you're describing you know, someone told me once, and I, I kind of laugh at it, but I, it makes sense. He's like, Marcus, I'm not sure. He's like, he's like, definitely, definitely dudes have this PTSD, but he's like, I think they have what they call uh, LSD, lack of... LTSD. Yeah, lack of stress disorder. He's like, I feel like we have to be in chaos, and once that chaos stops is when our shit, like, unravels. And I said, you know, I was like, I get that, and I said, I feel that they're definitely, that's part of it, but there's got to be part of something else. Like, why is everyone, and not everyone, but why are there so many experiencing the same exact thing? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll never tell you that. I th- and I'll still, to this day, sometimes fight it. That, you know, like you, I, I loved going overseas. I loved going to war. I think that stuff is great. And I think it, it, it makes you grow. Like it makes you makes you better. Um, you know, maybe it was some stuff that happened younger. Then maybe some wartime stuff. Then maybe some transition stuff, like you said, like where I wasn't around some people, and then maybe some of the family stuff that wasn't working, and then maybe the concoction of all these fucking medications that they put me on and say, you're going to get better if you take this, and I'm going to believe you because you're a doctor, mm-hmm. and you're telling me this is going to be good. Um, you know, Then you get out, and then you're in the private sector, and then you don't have any of that at all. Um, so maybe just all that together is a recipe for... It's a perfect storm. We found ourselves right in the middle of a perfect storm. I have never taken any, um, like, drugs or anything. Don't. Uh, don't. <laughs> yeah, like, so So e- even when I hear that, and I, but I've, I've, you know, I've heard there's been a bunch of um, data and information about them, what they're like and what they do, and, you know, people, you get on all these, what are they called, psychosomatic drugs? Is that what they are? They're I, SSRIs. I mean, they're, they're, there's a yeah, there's a bunch of them. Some are supposed to like help you release some serotonin, so you're like happier, and others are supposed to like stabilize your mood, you know. But then the problem is once you start taking those, then I don't know. All of a sudden, you're feeling a little tired, or you can't focus. So now they yeah. give you some Pruvigil, new vigil, so you can focus. Yeah. But now those medicines are causing migraines, and, and, you and can't I'm like, sleep. hey, I can't sleep now. So like, oh, here, you ever heard of Ambien? I'm like, yeah, I was on them for six years while I was deploying. But no, you need this, or maybe we won't give you Ambien. We'll give you the other one, that's not as like it's just a it's a constant cycle. He did. He was on no prescriptions until the year that he was getting out of the Navy, and like between that time and you know a couple years after, he had ten prescriptions. He's on zero today. And Amber, I, I got prescribed my first at at Nico. I know that's no, the no, year from you the got out. from the from the psych, and then from Nico, 
They prescribed yeah. me four medications because I was just looking at my oh, medical crazy. record. It's crazy. Day. And then once we went into all this, I think I was on seven. And we get on average, you know, uh, what we're doing on the nonprofit, the average is seven to eight medications at one time. We have people coming to us. These are team guys. Over 20 medications that they're on. Not that they're like, hey, I want to be on this. Mm. That they're being prescribed. Say, here, you're fucked up. Like, you should take these. Like, who prescribed somebody over 20 medications? That's like, he seems completely insane. insane to me. It's insane. And, you know, no, look, I, I have friends that are psychologists, and they've explained to me that there's, like, certain things. Like, there's certain times that certain people need certain things, and, like, it really helps them. But, um, Damn. Like seven prescriptions for some, some stuff that makes you stay awake and focused and then give you something else that's going to make you sleep. I, I'm not a rocket scientist or a psychologist my damn self, but that doesn't seem like a great thing. Yeah, probably not. It's the go-to. It's the number one tool in the toolbox, at least if you are being treated by military medicine or the VA. If you can't write a prescription for it or talk to a therapist about it, they got nothing for you. I think the best research that came out recently is that they said, uh, if you get your heart rate up, go for a run, go on the mat. The, the actual research is showing that that's better than this, these antidepressants that they've been giving us for 35 years. Sure. And I, that's why I think now these antidepressants are, like there's a lot of bad shit coming out about mm -hmm. them. Like there's no, like every press you read about them now is, is not good. So I think they're slowly going away. Yeah. Well, I never stopped working out and never stopped training jujitsu like maybe that's maybe it's that's it dude i don't know probably the best thing at least well, i understand you can do but i still think not for everybody right mm -hmm. so i still think there's certain individuals that probably need something <laughs> yep but you know when they just came out and said hey going for a run getting your heart rate up is better than these like we should we should take we should take that on board because like most of america is sitting in front of the computer for 12 hours a day and they're wondering why you know, they're angry or they're depressed, you know, just a little bit of, uh, you know, heart rate, heart rate yeah. increase activity will help that and, out. And you throw booze into the mix, right? Because, yeah. like, how good is that for you? You got seven meds, nine meds, 12 meds, and you're drinking? Like, and not working out as much. <laughs> so so you, you decide that you're going to get out. Mm -hmm. And how many years do you have in at this point? 12. 12. And you decide, all right, I'm going to go do something else. I'm like, I just want to run away at that point. I literally just wanted to run. Yeah. And you, what are you thinking, Amber? Well, I should have learned from OCS that big dramatic changes are probably not the best. But at the time, I thought, I don't want to go back to the Russian roulette and... I know Marcus needs a goal and I, he probably feels like, you know, leaving the command and becoming an instructor is going, you know, not necessarily going in a, a goal oriented direction. And so maybe having a career is the next best goal. He just graduated. He had, he got a, his master's degree and, um, I went with it. Dude, only a freaking team guy could be going like on all these drugs and drinking and still get their master's degree. <laughs> that's <laughs> retarded. It's like, that's so ridiculous. I told bro. people I was the best when I wasn't thinking. Like it, it, if I could just go, if you could just wind me up and go, I'm fine. But as soon as I stop for half a second is when, when <laughs> shit comes tumbling down. That's insane, uh, dude. So little did I know that I was actually like stepping into like the, you know, the perfect, perfect storm. We were living in a, 
pretty bad one, but the perfect storm was childhood trauma, war trauma, head trauma, transition trauma, family trauma, loss of purpose, loss of paycheck, loss of community, loss of identity. And he wanted to get so far away from the military and the teams that he went into banking. Do you, what was what, what was pushing you away from the freaking teams? I no idea, no clue. If I had anger, a guess, just anger, like anger at, and probably wasn't the teams. It was just anger of be, like everything. Be, because you know what it's like when you like see one of your team guy friends that you haven't seen in a while, and you're just super stoked. Like I remember, I got back from my last deployment. I was working to trade at, dude. I worked at trade at, you know, so there's different team guys come. Every day was like a reunion. Every day, day, like, ever. yeah, just yeah. like, oh, hey, what's your, like, every day was like that. I know. I mean, my freaking kids will say to me, my oldest daughter right now, she'll say to me, like, why don't you just go back in? <laughs> you know? I'm always like, oh, well, I can't really go back in. I'm like an old guy now. <laughs> why, don't you go, why don't you just go back in? So what? Was that just not there anymore? Were you feeling like, you know, you see your friends and you're like, I don't. Yeah. I don't care. I don't care. Yeah, it was just, you know, Jock was just like a I don't I don't know how to describe he it. He was, was completely just, numb inside. Yeah, he I, feels like that now. That's what I'm saying. It when, was when, a period when, of time. When mm-hmm. the Hilo went down, like I I had this weird conversation with the Admiral. I was just like, I'm numb. This is not even affecting me anymore. Like I don't get it. And he's like, Yeah, but this hurts. I'm like, Yeah, it hurts, but I'm I just don't it's not even registering. It's just so this is this is when we see like there's something like to me now like okay there's something there's something wrong there's something going on in here like for for a team guy to to not like be kind of stoked to see their friends like I just remember my whole life I would go to work and just be stoked mm-hmm. like there's never a day where I was like oh, I can't, I, I'm bummed out to go to work today every day was just awesome and fun and gonna see my friends and we're gonna hang out and we're gonna shoot some shit and like thank god i always had that feeling you know i always had that feeling so this is what tells me like again going back to chad and hearing sarah describe this change in his personality you know and that's where i the only thing that i could imagine that could cause like, like it has to be something else that's causing you to get in this mode of, uh, you know, oh, there's freaking four guys that I haven't seen in five years and I went to Bud's with them or I was at a platoon with them or whatever. I think you still would have been like that, though. Yeah, but I also used to want to run and hide, too. Remember that? Like, I never wanted to go back to Virginia Beach. Oh, that's I didn't want true. to see anybody. And I, also, like, you know, he sort of had, he was at this pinnacle of what he wanted for his career in the teams. And so to leave that and go to a new place was hard. You know, it would be like transferring coasts for anybody when you're making all new friends or being out here. The vibe, I mean, obviously we love it here. We're here now. Um, but the vibe here versus the East Coast was very different in that people are a lot more spread out here. So we were by ourselves in a neighborhood far away from other military families. And um, we just didn't feel like Mm -hmm. people really got it. And so I think that he got to this place of being so numb and not really caring 
after the transition, but it but, was very hard to go back to Virginia but, Beach. But I hear you now because like we live in Coronado and I love it because I get to see like <laughs> my bros, like guys that are contractors, they come in, I'm like, hey, what's going on? You know, so it's good. Now it's, but now it's different. I mean, obviously yeah, a different place. I, I guess the thing that I'm trying to say is like you can, it's like the freaking check engine light in a car. Like to me, that's a check engine light in the car of like just about every team guy you know. Like when they see other team guys, they're stoked. I remember one of my buddies was uh, stationed up in up in Germany, in North Germany, with the Kampfschwimmers. He was up there. He was up there for three years, and I went up to see him one time when I was in Germany, and. Like he was, because he'd been not, these were around kick-ass, badass comps from her guys, which is awesome, and they're great, they're studs. And, but man, when he saw me, it was like he was, he couldn't stop smiling, go, bro. I was like, bro, you're so happy. He goes, bro, it's so good. He goes, it's so good to see you, and it's so good to speak English. He'd been speaking (laughs) German. So for me to like sit here and think about that, I'm thinking there must be like, some there's something wrong with the engine like there's a check that's a check engine light yeah the real check engine light uh is coming on and 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 then you tell me all these other things like that list you just rattled off of all these things that are going on amber you're like oh loss of this loss of that change of this change of this you know yeah you can't outrun it whenever you're processed out and you're a civilian it all comes crashing down for so many and we were one of one of those cases where we couldn't outrun it anymore and um yeah i mean if you're good you're good and so you know you i think if you get out and everything is tracking and there's no check engine light and you maybe go through some transition whatever but you're fine but -hmm. if you're not you know, I like that. I like that analogy. I may use that. And I'm going to steal that from you. Mm-hmm. Is that right? You can. <laughs> yeah, of course. You can. Sarah describes Chad as like a light going out. And I certainly would have described Marcus the same. Like his, mm-hmm. the light in him completely went out. And um, but over time, you just start to like sort of like justify it or rationalize it in your head. Like, well, like, I mean, I guess that's how things are now. And they're kind of all like that and you know you just you just rationalize it and you try to handle it but like the level of suffering that you guys can endure is so great it's terrifying well this is how you get a dude that's like going through all this and getting his master's degree like that's right. such a good example of i'll just suck it up like I'll just suck it up and just do this stupid assignment, you know? Yeah. You're a grown ass man, you're getting told by someone to write a paper and you're like, cool, give me the freaking computer, let's rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. So um, so you decide you're gonna get out. What kind of plan do you have? Like where are you gonna get money from? Did you already get a job? Did you get a job no, lined no, up? No, I got, I mean I was, yes, yeah. So I was lucky enough, I had, um, I had a mentor and you know, and the mentor connected me to some folks and so, I did like a New York City tour, met a lot of different people, met a lot of people in banking and some other stuff, and then got introduced to a lot of West Coast folks and just kind of went out there and figured out what's next. So I, you know, I consider myself lucky there um, that I got to, I got to meet a lot of people and kind of figure out what I wanted to do. So I had, I had a choice, really, I had a choice. And so you got, you actually got a job lined up before mm-hmm. you got out. Yep. 
which is freaking amazing yeah. because sometimes guys don't realize that they get a paycheck every two weeks and that when you get out, that paycheck stops. Yeah. And, you know, like it's it's a rough transition for a lot of dudes. Yeah, it, could, yeah. it could be very rough. And so, yeah, I was, yeah, I was lucky in that regard. Um, you know, I was looking for something else to do. And I mean, I, I wasn't thinking any other way. Again, like the way I'm thinking is I'm getting out to go do something, mm-hmm. not to, I guess, figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, and so what was the first gig? You were a banker. What was it? It was a private banker, um, which is really like a a fancy way of saying financial advisor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I had some people tell me don't don't do it unless you have a lot of rich friends. L- literally, <laughs> I, I got told that by several people. Like, really, is that how this works out here? Um, but no, I got I got lucky and I worked for a really good team up in L.A. And, um, yeah, I did that for like a year. Did you guys move to LA? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was terrible. That's why we moved to Texas, like within a year after moving there. Were you still working at the bank when you moved to Texas? No, no, I got hired somewhere else. Um, again, through, through my mentor, um, doing f- the same kind of thing. No, doing different stuff like operations now, just kind of more like leadership operations, uh, business development. And how's your headspace at this point? Um, I mean, I feel like it, it didn't really, I was like really excited to get out and do something different, but I'm not sure. He was in a holding pattern at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think f- that I felt like it like, there was it enough subsided. You had like enough tasks to get yeah. done. And another, yeah, yeah. Like, I was all of a sudden I had something that like I was. There was like excitement. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't mind LA, but I certainly, you know, we were so disconnected and, um, it was it was a challenge. Like our relationship was a challenge. His relationship with the kids was a challenge. He drinking was still an issue. Um, and I was I was still on the, I was still on the meds, obviously. So I was on the meds for seven years straight. And by the way, you you were incorrect. I, I got prescribed while I was still on active duty. So from active duty till 2017, November 11th is when I was. Yeah, on no, I, I just meant that like right before you got out of mm-hmm. the military is you went your whole career not on meds. Like even when he would get injured, he'd be like, I'm not taking that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, finally relented in like his last year of service. And then from that point forward, he was um, prescribed more and more and more. Um, but, you know, things were really still deteriorating at home. And I remember thinking, I can't be stuck in California like as a single mom. Um, my dad had just taken a, a job at the University of Texas as offensive coordinator there. And Marcus was working in North Carolina commuting. And so um, at one point he came home and he's like, why are, why are we paying California taxes? I don't even work in the state. And we decided to move to Texas. And I just thought this is going to be a great place for me to raise the kids and um, just feel better about the kids being raised in a place like Texas. And I can probably afford it more than California because I thought we were done. I didn't want to be done, but I just thought this is – this is not working. So from your perspective, as you're saying, raise the kids, you're thinking you're going to be raised alone because it's yeah. that bad. Well, it was just, you know, my dreams of my, my feeling of support for his job in the early days sort of turned to like indifference and feeling like resentment that the teams always came first. I never gave him an ultimatum or anything like that, but it was this sort of like pride was replaced with pain. 
And from there, I just kept thinking, well, maybe if we try this, I'll get the feeling back. Maybe if we try that, I'll get the feeling back. Maybe moving will help my family. Maybe getting out will help my family. And nothing was helping. It was actually just deteriorating. And so I was basically losing hope that I would ever get the feeling back of like caring. I did care, but I just knew that this isn't the way I want to, this isn't a marriage I want to have. And so it felt inevitable. I thought at that point we would just divorce. Mm-hmm. I wasn't afraid like anything bad would happen to him. I just felt like this isn't workable. And what are you feeling, Marcus? At this point, you're move, you moved to Texas. Yeah. Is this where you're choking out country club people? Like, yeah. What's up with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Texas, uh, it just got worse from there. <laughs> like nothing, nothing definitely got better. It got worse. Um, I hated, I hated it there. I needed the water. I needed the mountains. It was flat. It was hot. I didn't like the people, the town we lived. Um, you know, some I, I got along with a few people, but again, like nobody got it. I felt like it was in that space of nobody gets me, you know, and you know, I've been to war and like I can't get I can't have a real conversation with anybody because only the only thing they care about is like money and and uh it was just I was just going through all of that. Mm-hmm. And and again, it wasn't like we were struggling in terms of like financially or any of that, like honestly, like we could have made it, could have made a million dollars a year. Nothing would have changed. It was like just, it was just a, it was just bad. Like it was just was not. I don't know. I, again, I, I, I think I had less friends when we moved to Texas than I. <laughs> um, we joke about it, but uh, you know, I don't want to be too too angry here over the over the radio. It was Anybody's listening in. Definitely. Um, a challenging time. And that's when the wheel, wheels really came off for us. I think that part of what gr- has grounded Marcus has been his ability to get in the water and travel. And so, you know, in the Navy, you're always stationed near water. And in the teams, you're doing a lot of traveling. And so when we were in Texas, he was basically stuck at home. And it was 110 degrees outside with no water. And he tried to take up golf. He's just got to have, you know, that outlet. And in taking up golf, he started hanging out with a crew at the country club that were very, very, very heavy drinkers. And he started to drink. Um, yeah, kind of fell back into the... Mm-hmm. I think I was drinking hard anyway, though. I don't think... I you were, but it certainly escalated to a point that, you know, I basically had to, like, sit them down at one point and be like, listen, don't call my husband anymore because this is becoming a problem. And um, it it just we, our son at that point was yeah. Then he started spiraling a little bit. I think just because of what was going on at the house, and so then you know we're dealing with him not being a you know just like your typical kid that can go to school and get good grades and come home. And he's not doing that. He's not doing that. You know, <laughs> and so the mix of a little bit of everything. Um, I think as it was at that time when, you know, Amber again started just like seeing more changes. And so she started getting me into brain clinics. Yeah, it was actually 2000. And there was um, a former teammate of Marcus's who took his life as well, like one of the first seal suicides. And his wife actually did a two part series in the Virginian pilot over um, Memorial Day. And uh, that, that was in 2016, I believe. And I read this article about him, and she described him as the light going out. And she described all these struggles that he was having. And I was like, hold on. This is what we're going through. No one's talking about this, though. 
And it was the first time that someone had like had the courage to say that they were struggling. And I had so much respect for that. And I was also scared shitless. And so what the article basically ended by saying was that there was a pattern of scarring found in his brain linked to blast exposure. And there was also some mention of CTE. And I started researching this. And suddenly I was like, I remember going to the garage and calling my best friend. And I was like, I feel like I've just read about a terminal diagnosis. Like this shit is scary. Um, I started really digging into the effects of blasts and repeated head trauma and like his 15 years playing football and 13 years as a breacher and I was like I don't know that this is purely psychological I don't know that medication is going to help this I know talk therapy is not helping it and if anything I feel like it could get worse over time and time is of the essence so that's when I really did this hard pivot and I saw him through new eyes and I was suddenly overcome with compassion for him because even though he had become a monster I remembered I chose to remember who I met and who he was before this deterioration and so I held on to the hope that I could get that person back but I knew that it was gonna be really 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 tough and it might not happen I started like I was most comfortable with western medicine and even though he was being a really good soldier and like doing taking all the medication that he was prescribed, I was like, I'm not sure that medication is what's you know fixable here. Um, I, his only diagnosis really was, he had his TBI documented all throughout his medical record, but it was primarily like PTSD, PTSD. And in my mind, I'm like, gosh, I don't know about that because he loved to deploy and he would probably still be deploying if you know shit didn't go so, so far south. Um, I don't think that this is wrapped up in anything he did overseas. What did make more sense was the TBI piece. And so I started getting into brain clinics and I got him into like five total. And he was willing, but you know, it was weeks away from home. It was a lot of diagnostics. There really wasn't a lot of hope or follow up on the other side. And he was becoming more and more and more angry and frustrated. And um, he was really hopeful that I could help. And my hope was diminishing month after month of more failed things. What do you do at a brain clinic? Oh gosh, they're all, I mean, they're all different. You take, you do a ton of batteries, you do a lot of cognitive testing, you know, they put you in machines, they spin you upside down. Like they do a bunch of stuff that are really, in my opinion, for people who could barely walk and talk, you know, or have, you know, autism and all these other things. And so for me, I was there just, I felt like passing time. I'm like this, none of this, none of this stuff helps. Like, what am I, you know, what am I doing here? And really, uh, oh, and you do like, like a lot, a lot of balancing. I mean, it's for, it's for people again, and this is my opinion, but it's for people that I, I consider really fucked up, mm-hmm. right. That are not like could barely talk. Um, do you at this point think you're fucked up? I was just looking for answers. I, I was like, just please, just somebody tell me like something. So okay, could, so, so you could, think y- y- there's questions of what uh, the hell's wrong with you? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, I left NICO with you know with you know some you know the fMRIs showing like oh you have these dead dead parts of your brain that you know aren't working, but and those are just TBIs. Those are like TBIs, mild TBIs, mild TBIs. He looked at me one time. Chaka, like he was trying to get out the door and he used to be so like regimented and like, you know, everything had a place and everything was organized. And 
he was just kind of like this disorganized, functioning, but chaotic guy now. And so he's trying to get out the door for a flight and he was profusely sweating and his eyes were gigantic. And he looked at me and he was just like sheer terror, like something is wrong with my brain. I don't know what's wrong with me. Something is not right with my brain. And so all throughout his medical record, it's like cognition issues, memory issues, balance issues. And I'm thinking he's the most capable human I know. There's something that's out of his control. And I don't know, like doctors aren't helping. When you when they when they look at these TBIs, these black areas in your brain, what do they do about it? Do they do anything? Are they like no. what's the no? Because I think it's again, I think it's personalized because I, I know some individuals that had no scarring that were struggling bad, and then I know individuals that had a lot of scarring and they were fine. Or maybe they weren't fine, or maybe they were saying they were fine and they weren't doing well. But you know, my my. Uh, my recollection and, and the conversations I have, people's people are all over the map. So individuals with no scarring to you know forty five lesions on their brain are acting different, mm-hmm. and it it didn't mean that the ones with higher scarring were acting worse, and the ones that were you know maybe had none. So like I'm not a I'm not a neuroscience or neuroscientist. Like I can't tell you why, mm-hmm. but I think like everything else is just personalized. Um, so there's no protocol for like, oh, memory loss, here's what you need to do or. Yes. No, there, there absolutely is. There's, there's like exercises and yes. Yeah. There, there's things you can do. There's supplements you can take, you know, and I I do all of it. Like Mm -hmm. I take every supplement that I can find that says this reduces inflammation or this helps you, you know, think clearly or, you know, whatever it is like Mm -hmm. nootropics. Like I'll try anything now that says, Hey, this is going to make your brain younger that's going to make you, you know, think more clearly. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's still a lot of research around there about, you know, what what we can take. Um, but again, I go back to, you know, diet and exercise mm-hmm. for probably it all a matters. Lot we yeah. needed all, a nuclear it, it all, option. It, it, it all matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. But it, it, it all matters. matters. Yeah, it all matters. It, it, it's not one thing. And yeah. so, how many of these brain clinic things did you go through? I went through five, and you know, and honestly, I, I went to some really good ones, some like like world renowned, and and I thought. They do really good stuff, but a lot of these places, as soon as you leave, like it's kind of like they forget you, you know. So they collect your money, which are some of these are astronomical, you know, fifteen k, thirty k, two weeks, a month, whatever it is, um, and then you leave and they and they forget about you. And that's that was the part that I, you know, I struggle with is that if individuals want to get better or these places want to get people better, then they need to, there needs to be some type of continuum of care. Like they just need mm-hmm. to check in on an individual 30 days, 90 days or whatever it is. And, you know, we'll get probably, you know, more into it with what we're doing now. But um, like Amber was saying, I was getting frustrated because I maybe get a diagnosis, but not a, not a, like, here's exactly yeah. what you do. Here's a protocol. Go home and do this every day. It was just, they're, they were all very similar. Great know? for diagnostics. Mm-hmm. Great for diagnostics. But what do you do with those diagnostics. Yeah. Well, they don't make any money either by doing anything else than you showing up, paying your bill, and then telling you to come back so you can pay another bill. So what was, when was, and where was rock bottom, and what did it look like? Amber, what what is what was it like for you where you are just, it can't get any worse than this right now? Um, 
do you mind if I, there's three stories that come to mind and I don't think I've shared them publicly. Um, the first one was our son called me and said, are you home? And I said, no, why? He goes, I need to borrow a shirt from dad. Um, but when I went to your room, your bedroom doors closed, your bathroom doors closed. And I'm standing at your closet, but the closet doors closed. And I'm afraid if I open it, I'm going to find dad hanging. And it was like a traumatic conversation, but it was also the normal in our house. And I just, you know, that was the first real like, oh shit, this isn't normal. How old's your son at this point? 15. And, and what is it 16? that he's picking up on? It just felt palpable that dad didn't have a purpose anymore. And um, it, it, catastrophe felt imminent. And I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know if that meant drinking and driving and wrapping his trucker on a pole. I didn't know if that meant taking his life. Um, I don't know. I, it just felt like it's coming. And then um, one night he came home and I... It, you know, 11 o'clock, he's not home. 12 o'clock, he's not home. One, two. And I heard him come home, and I was just, I was like, I need to put the dresser in front of the door. And I, and then I ran out the back door, and I thought, this is not normal. This is, he never, he's never, ever, ever been physically aggressive with me. Not once. Um, but it was tending in a direction that didn't feel safe because I knew he'd been drinking. And that particular night, neither one of our kids were home. They were both having sleepovers. And I just got unnerved. And maybe I overreacted. But, you know, when you're sitting in a parking lot at 2 a.m., you're just like, this can't, this is, is not sustainable. And then the third thing that happened, which was like the true rock bottom, the culmination of my son feeling these things, me feeling these things, was when our daughter was riding with Marcus and he had gotten into some like road construction and sort of like got lost or got off track and they were coming to pick me up um, from an event. I was out with my friends and by the time they got to me, he was so frustrated and of course, I didn't know had he been drinking. I, I didn't, I, I just see my car coming down the street and out comes our daughter and she comes like spilling towards me and she, and he tears off down the street and she said, he's, he's crazy, mom. He, we can't get in the car with him. He'll kill us. And she looked at me and she said, how much longer do we have to do this? And I said, not one more day. And the next day, I got on the phone with his best friend who died, Josh, with his family who had a foundation. And I said, we, we need help. Um, I think if he goes to California and he does this sort of like trifecta brain treatment that I can at least have like a minute to figure out next steps. I, it was my last hope. And so they arranged for the funding. I arranged for him to leave. What was supposed to be six weeks turned into like three months. And during that three months, I came to visit him twice. And the first time I came to visit, things were pretty good 
for a week or so. But like on the last day of the trip, everything fell apart. And so I went home really defeated and frustrated. And in my mind, I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. You know, we got him out of the house. And there's been so much peace in my house since he's been away. I was doing, I went out and do TMS, like the transcranial magnetic. There there was a, and not to knock that because Mm -hmm. that's incredibly beneficial, but it wasn't what we needed at the time. It wasn't enough. Um, Would I sign him up to do it again? Like for an extra bonus to where he's at now? Like totally. But it wasn't what we needed at the time. So I came home thinking, okay, this is it. I've got to start making plans. And I did. I started making plans, but I wasn't like totally ready to pull the trigger because I just, I never wanted to leave him. But I definitely felt like I was in a position where I had to choose him or our kids. And so um, he extended his stay, got more time at the, the, at the centers. And I thought, oh, let me go visit him one more time. So around this time for on my birthday, I came out to visit him. And we were in his truck, and I said something so benign, and he started just, like, tearing down the five. And I thought, if I survive this truck ride, I'm done. And I didn't even tell him that I was leaving. Um, The next day, I got up, and I packed my bag, and I left for the airport, and I came home. And um, my mom was there with the kids, and I called my dad, and I basically told my parents that I'm quitting. It was the first time that I'd really quit anything. And my dad was like, you know, this is not a disappointment to me. You are the you're you are the most important thing right now and you feel that the, that this is the right thing to do, then I support you and whatever you need. And I said, I think he's gonna be dead in two to five years. And I hate that. But I'm gonna try to start forgiving myself now because I feel like the inevitable is going to happen. I'm the, we are the only stabilizing force that he has in his life. And when that's gone, I don't know. And so I was really working on forgiving myself. And also like during the, t- the, the year or so leading into where we were at that point, I had been on my own really in-depth journey of like healing and getting back into my faith and like tapping into a higher power to help sustain me. And so there was this massive storm all around me, but I had become the eye of the storm. And so things had never been so out of control, but I had never been so in control. And so I was thinking clearly, I was making like really strategic decisions, but at the same time I was listening to my intuition which was like, you need to know that you've tried everything because one, this is gonna stay with your kids. And you know, if, if the worst does happen, they're gonna be they're gonna have to deal with it for the rest of their lives. And two, am I going to be able to know and say that I've tried everything? So he was running out of funding in October, and at that point our finances had become a, a mess and um he called home and said, I'm running out of funding. Like, can I come home? And I basically said, you can come home, but as soon as you get here, I want to, I want to talk. And so he came home and I sat him down 
and I basically took a completely different approach because up until that point, I mean, I definitely developed compassion for him and I had tried really hard for, you know, this like 18 months that he was going to all these brain clinics. But before that, it was like guilt, shame, condemnation, um, you know, all of the things that I was feeling, I was basically projecting onto him and I was creating what I was trying to avoid. So the more I would guilt him and shame him, the more bad behavior would come from it. So the more guilt and shame I would throw on, it was just this toxic cycle. Um, so like this, the sort of time where I was reconnecting with just a greater wisdom of how to handle the situation, I was overcome with compassion for him. And like seeing him for his struggles and for them seeming to be out of his control, where before I always thought like you're, you know, you could figure it out. Um, and so I just approached him in a completely new way. And I said, if you fight with me, I will fight for you every day of the rest of your life, but you have to fight with me. You know, I love you. I will never leave your side. We've, we've got to do this together. And he totally... It, it totally softened him, and he was like, what do you want to do? And I said, there's one treatment that you haven't tried. One of our dear and trusted friends, a couple, uh, had had gone down this path, so like one other team guy that we had known at the time who'd done this, and his situation was like, you know, more of a crisis situation where ours was like very deliberate and we had been – We'd known about it and talked about it on and off for a year, but it seemed crazy. Uh, so I reapproached him about it and I said, you know, to, to go to Mexico and to try this. And he was like, I mean, I'll try it. Like, don't get your hopes up. I remember saying that too. I was like, there's no chance that something is going to work because we've tried all the stuff that we're supposed to, like guys that, you know, other team guys have gone to have gotten better or not gotten better but something that I thought was crazy that I read about seemed like it was crazy I didn't think that trying something new was going to even slowly or slightly help but I you know I committed just because like I sometimes maybe like you I feel like a a uh, you know a guinea pig I'll try anything if you tell me like it works or it makes me you know bigger faster stronger smarter so um you know, and I did some research, and it started to make sense that, you know, initially when we're talking about psychedelic medicines, you know, they, they were intended and are intended for medical use, not for, you know, recreational parties. You know, anything could be abused for recreational parties. And so um, the more I read, the more research I read, I said, that kind of makes sense. Um, I'll, you know, basically I'll give it a go. When, um, what was rock bottom for you? Like when when Amber's going through all this, like, from the outside looking at you just a little seeming like there's just no hope yeah what was rock bottom for you no hope like no hope no passion no drive anger frustration sadness you know depression all of it like it just was like again going back to what we talked about earlier didn't want to do the things i enjoyed doing mm -hmm. didn't want to hang out with anybody didn't want to have a conversation didn't want to make do small talk um just, just all, done. All the above, just done. Yeah, just done. Um, and and like everything else, I've had I have days of like, um, I don't want to call it joy, but just you know, up like some uplifting days. But the majority of days were down, 
and you know, including weeks on end. Some days I didn't want to get out of bed. Like I said, I just shut my phone off. Where now, you know, we joke about it. As long as you're trending upwards, you're gonna have like you said, like you, you know. But but yours is different. You're you know, you get upset over a situation. You know, that's completely normal. I'll still have some down days, but they'll only last like an hour, or before they would last for literally days. And you know, I think. That just takes time over, you know, what we've been working on over the last couple years. Um, but yeah, I was just, I was just checked out of everything, medically, you know, m- mentally, physically, emotionally. Um, there was no, there was nothing in sight. It was just like flat, clear, you know, not clear, but flat, and and uh, really nothing to look forward to. <clears throat> Just real quick, how the hell were you guys paying for like everything, like just life? Like you weren't working for months on end. How? Well, it was a struggle. It was a real struggle. Um, we, we maxed out a lot of credit cards. Marcus has he, he he's medically retired, so he yeah, we have his. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So I mean, but I was like, got it. But, which was not. A yeah, lot. it's not. I mean, but at least it's like groceries, right? I mean, yeah. at least there's yeah, some, yeah. No, it was, and we had money. No, we had. You know, we had saved money just from you know from the teams and stuff over the years. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Were you working at the time or no? Well, Caden had also gotten ours and was dealing with some chronic health issues, and so um, I was yeah. actually pulled away from. from but we were job. paying out of pocket for a lot of these mm-hmm. like medical expenses because most of the stuff, a lot of stuff, wasn't covered under your insurance, and you're probably dealing with it. With, well, some of the stuff you're doing, but um, yeah, you know, luckily we had a lot of these foundations are you know, are there yeah. for like these reasons. So, yeah. all right. So we get the deal where we're like, well, this is our last shot, last shot at, uh, the one treatment that you haven't tried yet, which is psychedelic. Um, what is it? Drugs, psychedelic plants. What we'll, do you call it? We'll call it. Well, yeah. We'll call it uh, psychedelic assisted therapy, psychedelic assisted yeah. therapy. So, so the drugs are psychedelics. Um, you know, psych, psych- Delic mind manifesting psychedelic. That's the, the meaning of it. Um, psychedelic drugs are the you know the class. Um, the the way this is going, this medical route, they they're including therapy in it because what they're showing with the research is that if they they take the drug and then they bring in the therapy with it, the results are like through the roof mm-hmm. because the the psychedelic really opens your mind up for change. Basically, gives you new like if you think of it as. Um, if it's snowing and you have like fresh powder and tracks haven't been on the on the powder yet, that's what psychedelics do. It basically gives you like this new um, blanket of snow to build your own new tracks. And you could you can still build those bad, so you can still build in bad habits. But the idea is, if you have that coach or that therapist um, or that support, you can build new tracks, like good tracks, good habits. And that's that's the idea of, of psychedelic assisted therapy. At the time, we had no idea what we were signing up for. I wouldn't even know what we're talking about right now when, when, when I heard about this. Right. So. But there's a team guy who his wife was like, hey, you need to do this. Yeah. 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 And I mean, that is the essence of our community is that we just take care of one another. And so um, they'd been there for us in the past and we knew about their struggles. They knew about our struggles. But, um, you know, thankfully she felt compelled to reach out to me and then I talked to him and then he talked to Marcus and because we trusted and respected them so much, I felt comfortable. I didn't do an ounce of research. <laughs> I did nothing. I, I just convinced him to go, trusted them, got him on the plane and I literally looked at the steering wheel of my car like, 
this is it. I did, I did the research, and like I said, from what from initially what I thought was, you know, I'll t- I'll use the term crazy, to it started to make sense that again these were intended for medical use, and you know it was, it's stigmatized because we all know it as just crazy crazy drugs that people around the '60s and '70s you know ran around concerts doing. Uh, losing their minds, but you know they're intended for 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 mental health and behavioral health use, and now substance abuse and you know a host of other things. So, so the more I read, the more it made sense, um, and I figured, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. So you get on a plane. You just said you what? You drop um, them off at the airport? Yeah, and I'm like, this is it. I, this mm-hmm. is like putting everything on the table. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to have to come back to the drawing board. If it does work, the best I can hope for is that it buys me some time to find something that's a little bit more comfortable. I didn't think it was like a magic bullet, but I definitely thought that if anything, it'll just buy me some time. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went to see him the next day. So I can talk about that whenever. But Well, yeah, let's get. So you get on a plane. And where do you fly to, Marcus? Coming to San Diego. And then. Sweet. Yeah, it's not bad. And then uh, caravan down to a clinic in Mexico. Been operating for a long time with a good reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll keep those separated for now because, uh, one, just kind of, you know, security reasons, guys going down. We like to try to keep the two separated. Wait, what are we keeping separated? Just uh, us, what we're doing with the nonprofit and then the, you know, the retreats that a lot of the people are going to for these, uh, to do these medicines. So we, Got just, it. we just don't like to connect the two. I don't understand. That's okay. That's good. <laughs> we'll just, we'll, we'll talk about it as we go. So okay. uh, when you say keep these things separated, you just mean like different clinics or something? Like disclosing the lo- retreat location oh, okay. or yeah, name just, or yeah, anything. Yeah, okay. Got it. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, for, yeah, for sure. Yeah, no problem. Cool. Got mm-hmm. that. Okay. Yep, yep, Check. Yep. Check and Roger. Sorry. Right. My, my communication skills were terrible there. So I apologize, <laughs> Jocko. <laughs> no, it's all good. So you go to this clinic. Yeah, I go to this place. With the other team guy. Oh, you're with another team guy. Is yeah. he going to do who, it too? No, the one he's who just escorting you. He's suggested this to us. He's blowing out. He's, br- he's blowing out. And make sure I'm good. Because <laughs> uh, I don't know what to expect. By what the is way, the place also. like? Is this like no? Awesome. Is it, is it beautiful? Like, a, like beautiful home overlooking the water. Everything perfect. Food uh, staff. Does it seem like a hospital, or does it seem like a? No. Does not seem like a hospital. Does not seem like a hospital. But it is set up with hospital it, it, equipment. Yeah, and it's set up with like full medical. You know, you're on a, a, a EKG or mm-hmm. a heart rate monitor. You're doing uh, your analysis to make sure there's nothing in your system. You're doing blood work to make sure you're not lying. Um, there's like there's a whole protocol, and the more stringent you are on the screening, uh, the better the outcome. Uh, individuals that have trouble with psychedelic medicine again is the screening. So if the screening is not done correctly, there can be issues. You screen properly, there's almost little to no issues. And so the more that this whole industry moves forward, um, it's just got to be done correctly. And so this place, again, has been running for a long time, had been doing it the right way, not an underground shaman that is getting drugs from God knows where and saying, here, do this. It's good for you. Getting drugs from Fred. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fred. In the, who's making it in his bathtub. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Who was a chemist in high school. How long are you there for? Like, okay, so so you show up. Yeah, it's it's a it's a three to five day event. Some are, some are shorter, you know, some are longer. Um, you do this, you know, you do a full, like I was saying, a full intake, a full medical screening. 
you talk to a psychedelic coach who's a therapist first, so like a psychologist or like a licensed therapist who's trained in psychedelic medicine. They prepare you for the experience. And again, uh, the better outcomes are the ones who prepare the most. So if you can, uh, the, what, what that individual does, that licensed professional, is going to talk to you about what your experience may be like or what you're going through and what you may experience. And the idea is to prepare your, they call it set and setting, your mindset, get your mindset in the right place to go into these treatments. And so sometimes you hear about these bad trips. Mm -hmm. Sometimes bad trips are just that an individual's mindset was not in a good place. They were at a Slayer concert. They were at a Slayer <laughs> concert or, yes, for sure, or they watched like a nasty movie that they started thinking about during their experience that just turned it sideways. But here's the other thing about bad experiences, what we're learning. Some of those bad experiences, actually many or most of them, especially with team guys and, and other veterans, they're, they're good experiences. Those bad experiences, they have to go through to get out the other side. So the bad experiences are some of the shit that they may experience as a kid. Maybe there's some sexual assaults that went on as a child. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe they did watch their friend get popped in the head and die right in front of them, and they experienced that on their, you know, on their journey. Um, so all, all types of that. So those are bad trips, but those bad mm -hmm. trips are actually, like, showing, showing them Releasing working through stuff that, you know, people may take years doing it through quote unquote talk therapy or psychotherapy, you can do that in a few days done properly. Again, not at a Slayer concert with <laughs> Joe the Shaman. <laughs> so what's the... So you, sc so you screen, so you, screen. You, you screen, you do, um, you do some integration, uh, excuse me, some preparation. Again, this is from the therapist, coach. Um, once that's done, um, you're you're given the medicine and just like you would take ibuprofen or tylenol or excedrin or probably a few others that i don't know for a headache psychedelic drugs are the same way so there's you know ibogaine and there's uh psilocybin and there's mdma and there's um what am i missing well, ayahuasca that you're hearing about um so there's all these psychedelic drugs that slightly do they're, they're similar but they do something slightly different but they're all relatively trying to solve the same problem and so um the the drug that i experienced was called ibogaine and um again to me you could have told me i was eating fruit loops <laughs> um i'd be like okay fruit loops that's that i had no idea is it a pill it's a yeah it's a pill it's just pow like powdered pill it's in it's in pill form uh you take it uh, dependent upon your body weight. Um, and it, but again, it's personalized. So I metabolize shit faster than you might. So what works for me, if I take, I don't know, I'm making this number 800 milligrams, you may need, you know, 1.2 grams. And just because I maybe metabolize it faster or slower. So it's, it's science, but there's also a little bit of subjectivity mm -hmm. to the amount that individuals need. I'm having a flashback of when you were talking about when you were drinking for the first time, and you're like, I don't understand how this is going to make me like think any different. Oh, this is exactly <laughs> the same. This is probably even worse because, I mean, we're talking about, a, we're talking about going on a journey here. And, the world's most powerful thing. And so that's what I was getting at, is that Ibogaine is considered uh, one of the world's most powerful psychedelics. That's why we call it the nuclear option. Not everybody needs to do this. No, no way near or not even close to everybody needs to do this. But 
what we're seeing is um, some of the stuff that I was experiencing, you know, as I was transitioning out of the teams and like the years of like, you know, if you want to call it comorbidity of other things, like, oh, he's a little depressed and maybe he's got some TBIs and maybe he's going on, you know, going through some shit with transition. And, you know, IBM's good. <laughs> but for an individual that maybe just going through a little bit of depression, maybe can't get themselves out of, you know, out of a hole, maybe Ibogaine is not the right thing for it because it is it is a really rough <laughs> journey. And I'm sure, like you said, you've talked to some friends. Um, it's not fun. Like, it's not it's not joy at all. And anybody who takes that for recreational use, like, I want to talk to them. And actually, they need to go talk to a psych because there's something definitely wrong with that individual. So... So you take it. Yeah, you take, so you take this medicine. I'm going to call it a medicine. Even though I don't think technically we can call it yet, but we're calling it medicines because they are medicines. Um, and then, you know, you lie down in the bed. You put, um, like, noise-canceling headphones on. Uh, you put eye shades on. And, you know, within an hour, you start kind of going into this experience. And for everybody, it's different. Um, but... You basically go on a, you know, six to eight to 12 or even longer hour uh, journey. (laughs) And for everybody else, again, because it's your mind or my mind uh, and our minds are different. What I'm going to experience is going to be different from what you experience or from what, you know, you experience. And it's working on a few different things. So one is the story. And that's like the psychological piece, the trauma piece where, um, if there are real things that really fucked you up in the past, whatever it is. So a lot of the addiction, right, is coming, finding out from things that happened in individuals' lives, not just because they like to drink or they like to do heroin or whatever. They're doing it because something fucked them up so bad that they turn to that, whatever it is. And again, we don't need to discuss what. Whatever that is, um, the psychedelic does a really good job and, and they say it's a jokester, too, because it will show you that. And it will fuck with you, too. Um, but the thing is, what you just said, sometimes the only way um, the only way, the only way to heal is through. And the only way to conquer something is through. Like, you have to face it. And we know that. And you can't, you can't bury stuff or... If you have an issue with a with a team guy that you work with, if you just keep burying or put stuff on the, off on the side, it's going to blow up one day. But if you can take that person, and say, "Hey, let's let's settle our differences. What's going on here? Like, you don't like me. I don't like you. Why? We have to work together. If we don't have that conversation, it's it's going to be messed up forever. So that that's what the psychedelic does to the mind. It shows you the problem that you're dealing with, and you face it in this 12 hour journey. And it could suck. And for me, it it was really tough. I mean, it was it was twelve hours of like gore and blood and just crap. But when I was done, it literally felt like I just took a thousand pounds out of a backpack. It was just like it was just like this relief that I never had before. And all this like pent up frustration that Amber's talking about, that just like went away. And for everybody else, it's different. And so what talk therapy or psychotherapy can take five or 10 or 15 years. I mean, I still have friends up in LA that are still seeing a psychologist for 20 years. And I'm like, dude, I can help you out probably in a week. 
Like you've been paying this person. It's obviously not helping. Um, you know, it can, it can do that in a much faster time frame. And like Amber said, it's not a panacea. It's not a magic bullet. Um, sometimes you need to go down twice. Sometimes you may need to do it three times. Maybe you need to do it once a year. Um, everybody's different. But again, I don't want people who are listening to get the, the wrong idea that, that this is a one and done or it's like a magic pill because, you know, everybody would be rushing to do it and think like, again, you know, all my answers, you know, will be solved in just this, you know, this bottle right here. It takes a lot of work. The experience itself is going to suck. It's going to be miserable. You're going to cry. You're going to throw up. Like you're going to like nobody wants to face their rapist. You know what I mean? So if they were they were raped as a young child, and that's what's affecting you for the like you're going to face that individual during, and that's that's pretty traumatic for an individual, right? If they're growing up and their uncle was molesting them for years upon years, you know, upon years. If that's still affecting them in their life, they're going to face that in their journey. And that's tough. But you know what? You need to face that to move on. And that's what these medicines do. They also work on the brain. So they, they promote neurogenesis, which means like, you know, brain growth. And they, they're turning on parts of the brain that may have not been working before. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in the success for a lot of these guys is if they do have mild TBIs and they're, they have these scarring that we're talking about and maybe parts of their brain were not allowing them to function well, it is allowing them to function well now. So there's a host of things, and, and I don't want to get into science because I'm way above my pay grade, Jocko, but, you know, uh, this experience was was radical. It was, it, you know, did a 180 for me. It was life-changing and life-saving. And Amber actually came in the day after, and I walked down the hallway, and I we well, just— Well, first of all, I freaked out because <laughs> it hit me when I was in the car headed there— um, I was very uncomfortable and I was raised, you know, super conservative. And I feel like, you know, I was in the survival mode and suddenly like this peace had come. And in the car on the way there, I had this moment where I was like, I can't go. I don't know what we've just done. I think what we've done is bad. Um, and I'm too scared to face it. And my girlfriend was like, you have to go. He's asking for you. And we told him you're coming, so you have to go. And I walked in there so uptight and scared of, oh, it, it was the most nerve-wracking feeling. And I heard him walking down the hall, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. Please, please let this have worked. Um, and he came around the hall, and immediately I could just see that he was back. It was like, it was literally like being reunited with the person that I met, um, which is a, a complete and utter, excuse my language, mindfuck. Like it really, it it really threw me, in the, in the best ways, and also in the worst ways because then you start to doubt it and second guess. Like it's too good to be true, and like you're just letting your walls down. And you're like, oh, don't do that because it's too. It's this isn't going to last. So a lot of spouses have experienced that, and that mild freak out. You know, it was certainly replaced with this feeling of complete relief. And then how do we maintain this? Yeah, and so the first thing I did, I, I said, Amber, this is exactly, I mean, the first thing out of my mouth was like, this is exactly what the guys need. I say, we keep getting, you know, I keep getting phone calls of, you know, friends that are like struggling like I was. And I'm like, dude, I can't take care of you because I can't even fucking take care of myself right now. 
Um, so when I experienced this, like that's the first thing I said, I was like, we got to figure out a way to like get our friends here and do the same thing. Like we have to figure out how to raise money because someone paid for me, you know, $4,000 or whatever it was. And so I said, well, how do we, how do we get, you know, our buddies and, and families that are struggling to do the same thing? He said, I don't know. We said, well, like we got to go raise money. Let's, you know, we'll start a nonprofit. Again, had no idea what we were talking about. Um, we'll go, we'll start a nonprofit. We'll go raise money and then we'll fund our friends so they could get the same healing that like, I feel like I'm experiencing. We right thought now. maybe a handful. Like, yeah. And we didn't you know. know. We, we, didn't no know. Idea. we didn't, honestly, we didn't know. Um, and that's what we did. Like, well, then we were contacted um, by Elizabeth and she said, I want to give to a veteran organization. He actually had his treatment on um, Veterans Day. So it was really special. And then end of year giving, you know, right after that in December made this uh, lady contact Marcus and say, I need a recommendation for a veterans organization to give to. And he goes, you know, um, you we can't give you a tax write off. But if you pay this clinic, I could get, you know, five of my friends down there for a treatment that could save their life. And she was totally on board. And that's what really launched what has become vets. But we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it because it's so stigmatized and so taboo to say you're struggling. Like maybe some of our internal friends knew, primarily because the wives were talking, not because the guys were talking. And so my thing was, I don't want to jinx it. I don't want to, I don't know if it'll work for everyone. I don't know if it'll continue working for us. I don't want to talk about it until 12 months have gone by and we've raised money and provided this opportunity for 12 other guys to go down there. And at that point, maybe we'll talk about it. This one's not one for like, you know, PR and stepping out of the shadows. So this was a a big deal, but I thought, well, we're just going to buy ourselves a year here and get some really good data and come out with like a little bit of foundation beneath us. And his treatment was on Veterans Day. So November 11th would have been the one year mark. Chad Wilkinson took his life on October 28th. And we were sitting in his funeral just days before the one year anniversary of Marcus or, you know, right around the same time. And, um, we had been to the Little Creek Chapel so many times for war funerals, and this felt so different. And I was seeing all the same guys that would deploy, you know, with Marcus and be at all these other funerals. And, like, you know, they had more medals and they had more gray hair and they had more wrinkles and they were, you know, getting older and becoming like, like you could see in their faces that, like, they were struggling. And this is the first suicide funeral I'd been to. And I started shaking Jocko. Like I had this tremble release response at Chad's funeral where the whole, I was jackhammering, shaking. The whole bench was shaking. People were looking down like, what is going on down there? And I was just overcome with this conviction of like, if we don't talk, if we don't step out and get out of our comfort zone, um, more guys are going to die by suicide. And we're going to just do whatever it takes to prevent that because this community and this chapel can't take that. So we're not going to let that happen. And so we started basically just stopped hiding kind of what we were doing and started speaking about it a little bit because we thought, well, if we start speaking about it, you know, and of course we talked to Sarah, um, we just said, hey, you know, 
we're just gonna we're gonna start talking about this a little bit so people know. So in the unlikely event that an individual is getting to the point where Chad got to, they might pause and go, oh, you know what? There's something I haven't tried. Or there's this thing that I heard is working for some individuals after, you know, because mostly a lot, I mean, most of these individuals are on the same path. Like they go to NICO, they go to these brain clinics, they're on a bunch of these mood stabilizers. And then they're like, okay, well, wh- well now what? So I, at that point, just said, you know, fuck my career. Because um, I was still like trying to figure out like to get into you know, corporate America and you know whatever, um, I just said I think this is more important. Um, and if someone is not going to hire me or doesn't want to work with me because we're talking about psychedelic medicines, then like shame on them. Like I don't need I don't want to I don't want to work with that individual. Like open your mind a little bit. We found something that works, and that's the story here. The story is not. Marcus and Amber are running around doing psychedelic drugs or running a cult, um, which we were told, by the way, initially we were running a cult, which is kind of funny. Um, but no, we're, we're, we're trying to heal people. That's all. We found something that worked. I mean, that's what happened. And, and so that was it. We just started speaking about it. We started doing, um, you know, interview here, interview there, maybe a small podcast, you know, and, and, you know, one thing leads to another. People get interested. Um, people with money want to donate. And you also know. know how the community is like what I love most about the community is just this like unwavering commitment to caring for one another. And for every person that comes through our program, because the efficacy rates are so high, they refer back three to five of their buddies. And so it creates an, a need that we simply, you know, are having really hard time meeting. But um to date, we've provided funding for over 600 other operators, not all SEALs. Mm-hmm. I mean, we serve all branches of special operations. But, um, you know, it's it's really taken on a life of its own. And it, it absolutely started at Chad Wilkinson's funeral and this just goal of ending veteran suicide. Did you, your original, um, like when you first came out and started talking about it, that was after... Chad's funeral? Yeah. Oh, that at Chad's funeral is whenever I was so convicted of like it, everything we do, I'm keeping Chad Wilkinson and Sarah and the kids right here because it, it, the fallout from suicide, like to survive all these combat deployments and then lose your loved one to suicide, like, oh. I can't even fathom. Like, I was just super convicted. How long did it take to start getting traction? Like, from almost immediately. Almost immediately. We had gotten traction, mm-hmm. mega traction in terms of the need. But what didn't necessarily match that was the donor dollars. It was very stigmatized. I mean, we're talking about four years ago at this point. Um, it was still very stigmatized and unknown. Like there's a lot of, there's a lack of education around psychedelic therapies and then there's misinformation around psychedelics. And so to combat those two stigmas and to also try to combat the stigma of saying you need help, it's been like, you know, pretty dicey. Yeah, that's a war on all fronts right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, then you go into the the real fun war of like military leadership and policymakers and big pharma Oof. And VA and you but know. it seems like it's getting 
really good traction right now. Is it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because veterans are driving it and the veterans driving it at the tip tip of the spear is the SEAL community and the broader special operations community. And like, I don't know, if I needed to get something done, I'd call you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, so the, so the, the charity is called, well, it's got, you got it on your t-shirt there, right? It's Vets Solutions. Yeah, right. Vets, Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. And it's vetsolutions.org if people want to go and check that out. And can they donate from there and all that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what's the plan there on that side of things? Just continue to grow, continue to accept donations, continue to get more people treatment? Jocko, we get upwards of 10 qualified applications a day needing a funding. A day. And it is so overwhelming. Like, I actually dread it when we have to go through applications. We do it on Mondays. And, you know, we have a, cert- we have a certain num- number of grants or funds allocated. And um, choosing who gets those funds when everyone is so deserving, it's like. So we, had, we actually, I mean, we actually have to, you know, we had a, like an algorithm built in to like rack and stack who's done the most combat deployments. Like, what are they going through? So it actually you know, it ranks the individuals, you know, or if there's like an immediate crisis, they immediately get put to the top and they get a phone call immediately. And so there's a whole, you know, there's a whole system to it because again, of those 10, if we're talking about only being able to support 175 to 200 a year, there's, you know, there's most of those people are not getting funding. Um, There are thousands, tens of thousands that could use it or need it or are trying to access it but because these are schedule one substances in the united states they have to travel abroad so you know one of our i would say most effective talking points when we're talking to policymakers and leader leaders is that you know our nation's veterans are leaving the country they fought for for access to meaningful care and this is so far superior to anything else that's currently available um, at least from my perspective, what I'm seeing is there's healing happening in four key areas of veteran suffering. And so when we were in such a bad way, if you would have given me immediate relief in one of the four areas, it would have been an absolute blessing. The fact that it provides immediate relief for most people in all four categories is unheard of. So the first category is psychological trauma. So anything that's affecting someone, you know, even on a subconscious level, whether it's childhood trauma, repressed trauma that, you know, they don't even remember, um, war trauma, wh- whatever the, the source of trauma is, it deals with that. And like Marcus said, it shows you the trauma and then you're able to work through it, confront it, deal with it, put it away, be done with it. Um, there's an anti-addictive benefit, which is really ironic because these drugs are scheduled as being addictive and like a high potential for abuse, they're actually being used to treat addiction. But because they're so challenging to even research in the United States, that data is largely missing. So Marcus and you know so many other guys that are going down there might not have a full-blown addiction, but they have substance use disorder. And so for Marcus, it was alcohol. Some guys go down there because they're hooked on opioids. Um, whatever the addiction is, it it like resets, it scrubs and resets those um, receptors, receptors, mm-hmm. and the addiction, you know, no longer has the upper hand. Um, there's a physiological benefit as it 
pertains to TBI. At VETS, we primarily write grants for Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT protocol. That's two of the six psychedelics that we can provide funding for. Most guys are going down there to do Ibogaine and 5-MeO. We're just wrapping up a study with Stanford. Um, The preliminary data is not released yet, but I think that it will show significant improvements in cognitive functioning, neurological functioning. It creates this really incredible neuroplasticity in the brain. So the brain's ability to change itself, create new neural pathways, neuronal connections. Um, you know, what, whatever it's doing in the brain as it relates to TBI is pretty remarkable. And our Stanford study, I think, will prove that. The fourth thing is a spiritual connection or reconnection. And I think that that's what science will never be able to fully explain. That when someone feels as though they're put on this earth by a higher power and we're all connected and like, you know, we're all humans and we're alive and the grass is alive and the flowers are alive and the animals are alive and you see that you're part of this really incredible huge ecosystem of purpose and perfection you feel as though you have a place to belong again and you feel this god connection that i think is the answer to a lot of society's issues right now so psychological anti-addictive, physiological, and spiritual. When you check all four of those boxes, you go home like, I feel pretty good. Now, on the back end of this, there's a lot of things that are really important. So we're screening. Another one of our screening um, categories is like, how committed are you to this? Because we've got guys coming to us that say, I don't know anything about this. My buddy said to do it. And then we've got guys that say, I've been researching this for a year and I've changed my diet and I'm really committed to working with a coach. Those are the guys that are going to have the best chance for success. The spouse support is another huge factor in overall uh, trajectory and success. So, um, you know, it's every, it's the psychedelic just provides this massive reset. And then when you get someone like from fetal position to one knee, like they can stand up and take it from there, especially guys like you guys. So guys are leaving these weeks with this checklist of now what? Because now I feel great again. And so for Marcus and for hundreds of others at this point, you're feeling good and you're feeling like, you know, suddenly you've got a thousand pounds lifted off of you. You're sleeping better. When you're sleeping better, you're getting up early. When you're getting up early, you can work out now. When you work out, you want to take supplements. When you take supplements, you might as well eat right. And it just becomes this sort of like self-propelling, biohacking snowball effect in the very best ways. And those are the guys that are going you know, through these remarkable changes. But for anyone that would think like, oh, you're just going to Mexico to do drugs, uh-uh. No, no, no. People that are going down there are leaning into the hardest work of their lives and actually having to come face to face with things that they might have been running from for decades. She's being conservative about the Stanford study, too, but it's the re- results are remarkable, like so remarkable that I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on it once they release it to the public. Wednesday? No, 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 no. It, it won't. It won't be published for quite some time. Won't be published, but we're we're going up there Wednesday just to. They're going to talk about mm-hmm. the results officially, um, but not just from the reduction of symptoms, like what we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. but 
also the fMRIs that are coming out uh, before and after are like astounding. It'll be groundbreaking. It won't just be groundbreaking for veterans. It'll be groundbreaking for contact sport athletes, for first responders, first responders, yeah. for Alzheimer's patients, for Parkinson's patients. Like the the changes in the brain on the physiological level. I hypothesize that there's you know, not been anything like it to date. Marcus, when you, uh, I'm dragging you back real quick. Yeah. What, give me an example of what you see. You said bloody, gory. Number one, do you know that it's, uh, that it's psychedelic? Does it, or does it feel like it's a real thing? And like, give me just an example, just any example, just so people kind of can connect all these positive things to like what you see when you're on this journey. Yes, there you go. Um, I tried hard not to use the word trip because I'm sure that's that's like, we're trying not to call this thing trip. I picked that up, so we're on this journey. It's funny you say that because, you know, obviously we're around the whole kind of medical psychedelic community now and you hear all these things or how they correct people because, you know, a politician doesn't want to hear like drug, doesn't want to hear psychedelic. They immediately think of Woodstock or, you know, right. So, you know, we've been doing the same thing. Like we say this, we don't say that, you know, it all means the same thing. So appreciate, appreciate that. (laughs) I'll make a a very simple one and one that's not bloody or gory. Um, My, uh, one of my close friends, his experience is he, uh, he was sitting down, and each individual from um, from extortion uh, was like dressed in white and would sit down and put their hand on his shoulder and say, "Hey, man, it's okay. Like, I'm good. Like, you can let me go now." And but he had the conversation with that person, and he would look at him and go, "Yeah, okay." And then that guy would go, and then another guy from extortion would sit down, dressed in white, and say, "Hey, man." I'm good. Like we're, I'm good. I'm in a good place. And then that person would go, and and each person that he was like obviously having whatever the, this person was dealing with had to do with all the buddies he just lost on that helo. And once that was gone, again he he just dealt with whatever that was his trauma. It may have been locked back in his subconscious, as Amber mentioned, but that's what he was dealing with in life. And um, once he faced them and talked to them and they talked to him and they told him it was okay, he's okay. Like, he's not bad anymore. Like, he let, he let that shit go. And, uh, I, you know, we hear these stories, like, over and over and over again. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's, they're all different, but they're all the same. Um, and I think that's what's, you know, pretty remarkable about it. I've developed some of my own theories, whether they're true or not. Amber I don't has know. Theory, Amber has theories, as we're finding Science hasn't proven my theories, but my theory is that whatever the trauma response is, it goes back to the origination of the trauma. And some people channel that trauma in ways that society deems unhealthy versus healthier. I feel like what I've seen in the special operations community is that is something in the early childhood has like enabled this sort of like dialing down of suffering. Like like you just the, the community is able to maintain such suffering. And so 
a lot of guys I've felt are going way back to childhood and dealing with like sort of repressed things. And I don't know, Marcus, if you want to tell any of your stories like about your actual experience of going back to actual memories in childhood, but then also to your question, Jocko, on why the blood and the gore. I also feel like when you're in the face of evil, that sort of can stick to you. And Marcus had to get through some really dark, very demonic, you know, heaviness to come out on the other side. And he's been back to do Ibogaine since. He's just like basically does this annual protocol reset. Or like every year and a half. Like yeah. That, yeah. And so if he started in the basement of his soul, every year he gets a floor higher. And the last time he did Ibogaine, which would be their fourth time, he described it as blissful. So yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't painful, it wasn't tough, um, it wasn't angry. I didn't feel like I was like you know fighting demons. You hear a lot of guys. I mean, they talk about literally like fighting demons. It was none of that. It was just um, just kind of like peaceful and surreal and not not tough. And it, what it told me is like I'm good. Like I I think I've scrubbed whatever I needed to scrub. You scrub the darkness. Now yeah, you're just you know, into you like kind of just got rid of any of the, the garbage that I think was, you know, affecting me. And so, I mean, I'm I'm like, I'm light now. Like, I don't have nightmares anymore. And and I think that was like a lot of the, the blood and gore or like, you know, you'd go to try to pull the trigger and like the magazine would fall out or like the barrel would melt. Like just all the dumb stuff. Um, like, I don't have, I don't, I don't have those visions anymore um it's, it is and some of it is funny i mean if you hear some of the stories you're like man that's fucking hilarious right like especially yeah. like team well, guys, just team like guys talking about their funny I'm stories i'm right? laughing because like everyone has that dream like they you're do. out of bullets you're not working you forgot or your you punch somebody a hundred times and yeah. they just like look at you yeah that's i'm like sure you everybody get has those more pissed off. you're like wait a minute i'm really good at fighting <laughs> why can't i knock you out in my dream yeah exactly so we're we are trying to get this uh to as many veterans as we can. That's what you guys are working on right now. And you you were telling me earlier, you're also looking to take this uh, in a in a direction private as well. Yes. Like as a, as a privately owned company. Yeah, so, you know, as Amber was alluding to earlier, you know, the amount of applications we get a day, those are just from veterans. The amount of individuals that reach out via, you know, Instagram or Facebook or link, you know, really LinkedIn, um, you know, and LinkedIn's like a, you know, professional network. So a lot of, like a lot of corporate, a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs just asking, hey, you know, how do I do this? You know, I heard you talk on so-and-so, you know, where do I go to find these treatments? Um, can you introduce me to a coach or a therapist? And so, you know, the more that I saw over the last two years, I just said, Amber, you know, when we started this, we said, hey, we'd help, we want to help our, our teammates first, team guys, but we want to help you know, all the special operations, and then we want to help all the veterans, and then we want to help, you know, athletes like, you know, NFL players that 99% of the brains they found autopsied, you know, um, from the uh, individuals that have um, took their own life or all had CTE. You know, we want to help those individuals. We said, you know what, like, we want to help anyone that is, like, going through the same thing. And again, it's not everyone. It's just everyone that is struggling the same way. And that was kind of like my vision a long time ago is, you know, I want to start with veterans and help, help our, help our brothers and sisters, but like, I want to help everybody. And 
um, it took the interest of some, you know, a VC that started donating to vets and just said, hey, I really love what you're doing. Like, I think this is needed. You know, I, I understand personalized medicine. Um, how do we take this and introduce it to the broader population and reach more people? And I said, well, let's work on that. So I've been working on that for a year and we're actually launching this week and the company's called uh, Tara, T-A-R-A, Tara Mind. Uh, the website will be taramind.com. Um, right now we'll have a, uh, we basically have a landing and info page for people to go to and just put in some information and uh, they'll start getting some, you know, some newsletters and some, some, some info. But uh, launching at the end of this year or will be, you know, the first couple weeks of January, uh, we're launching a care navigation um, and uh, directory and basically a platform for, uh, for psychedelic um, retreats, clinics, uh, providers, coaches, uh, basically a marketplace to connect all these individuals. And so the individuals that are reaching out to us on a regular basis and saying, hey, where do I go? What do I do? We're building that platform for them. Got it. And, you know, we're going to provide educational content. Uh, we're going to vet everything and have, you know, high standards and, and, and protocols that, you know, um, that uh, – these providers in the U.S. that are doing this right now, it's going to be ketamine, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, because that's the only thing that's legal. Um, so we're just, you know, the the vision really is to build the the largest platform in the world to to connect all you know all the stakeholders, and eventually, um, we will be collecting data on all these individuals, and we will be going to the insurers and making sure at the end of the day that they pay for these because right now. Not everybody can pay six thousand dollars mm-hmm. to go outside the U.S. and do it. Right now, it's like the top one percent can do that. Or if you're a nonprofit, you know, and you raise money for this, you know, then an individual can go. But again, we're supporting two hundred people a year. How do you support twenty million? Insurance is going to have to pay for that. So the idea with Tar Mind is um, we collect, we we connect all the stakeholders in psychedelic medicine. Um, and then eventually we go to the insurers and, and show them the data and say, hey, this is working. You need to offer this up now as a benefit and pay for these individuals and subsidize these treatments. So, Tara Mind. Tara Tell Mind. Me where do we get that from? Tara Mind. Uh, Tara is, the, um, is uh, one of the highest, uh, the most, uh, I guess you want to call it, um, important deities in Buddhist and Hindu traditions. And uh, it's a goddess of, uh, you know, of empathy and bringing people to the light uh, and those in suffering to bring them to deliverance. So it's kind of a kind of a I thought a cool name, uh, especially where kind of we came from and where we're going and what it's doing to people. So and the URL was available and the URL was available for, I think, twelve dollars, actually. <laughs> uh, well, it sounds like like. Uh, we're kind of up to date then, right? This thing is launching in a couple of days. We talked about vet solutions, vetsolutions.org. Um, you're on social media. You're, you're on, you're at Marcus, you're at Marcus Capone. Um, then you guys have, am I right? Marcus underscore Amber underscore Capone. Yeah. What's I the deal with that? I started that Instagram page. I, listen, we both like low the social media. <laughs> so we're really not on it that much, but, um, we definitely have help with our social media accounts because we want to make sure that we're providing information to others that are 
interested. Mm -hmm. Psychedelic therapies are poised to be the next major breakthrough in mental health care. So, you know, SSRIs were the last major breakthrough in mental health care. Gee, thanks. 35 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And they're really, thanks you know, for, for, the SSRIs. <laughs> <laughs> for some they work, but, you know, there is that, <clears throat> that warning label on the side of SSRI prescriptions that says this may trigger like an in uptake up uh, increase in suicidal ideations well why are we fighting veteran suicide with anything linked to suicide like that's so asinine to me so as veterans continue to drive this forward in the united states i certainly feel like psychedelics are poised to come on on the scene a lot faster than maybe some had initially anticipated yeah especially yeah. with some of the conservative um you know lawmakers that are coming out now for like, sure you know dan you know yeah. Crenshaw's put a you know put through an amendment to provide funding, uh, not for veterans, but actually, and this was, I think, a complete surprise for everybody, for, for active duty. Yeah. So he thinks active duty should have access to this if they need it. Um, and of course, you know, Governor Rick Perry, who's been in our corner from day one, um, you know, he helped us pass a bill in Texas, and uh, he's just been a strong component or proponent of what we're doing. Again, because it's a tool that works. Yeah. You know, that's all he cares about. That's uh it's really good to see the open mind of people realizing that this thing and, and that's the same thing I've seen uh you know, I've had some good friends. I had Dakota Meyer come on here and like he actually he I think I think I talked about this on the podcast, but you know, he asked me like, hey, do you think I should do this? I'm like, dude, I have no idea. <laughs> so I called like uh, Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss, and I was like, hey, you know, like, what do you guys think? <laughs> yeah, I have they were no, like, no they idea. Like two thumbs up. <laughs> they, they actually you know they both were like, were thoughtful about it. Yeah. And Joe had had uh, Dakota on the podcast, and he was like, he, he was like, yeah, I think I like. I think it would be good for him. And yeah. I was like, cool. And I, I, I said, hey, man, I'm in no position to recommend this stuff, but here's what I got from my friends that know more about this stuff. And, you know, Tim Ferriss is is really involved in, you know, the Johns Hopkins stuff that's going on. So I feel like at least I, you know, I'm never a person that claims to know anything I don't know. I mean, I, I don't ever want to do that, but I've talked to people that, you know, gave the best recommendation from their perspective, which, and and he went down there and he did it and he said it was awesome, man. And yeah. it really helped him out a lot. And, and I mean, that guy's been through the freaking ringer, you know, mm -hmm. just been through the ringer as, you know, losing his freaking team and um, man, and he came back in a, in a much better spot. So uh, when I see things like that, and then you have like a real conservative, like, you know, Rick Perry just like on board. Uh, that that's just really cool to see and and Dan's obviously you know he's got friends that have done it and and for you know he's he's taking it forward yeah. so um, yeah I, I think it's true leadership you know that's what yeah. I say because again I, I don't think I'm sure this they were exactly like I was like this doesn't sound right this is crazy and then you do some research you talk really you talk to friends and then you have like loved ones that you see have gotten better um, it's the only decision to make, but again, to do it the right way. And, I, and I'm glad that you talk to people like Tim, you know, and Joe Rogan. And I'm glad they didn't just say, "Oh yeah, go ahead and do no, it." No, like they were, they were like, well, "Let's," yeah. you know. And we've seen that with some of the retreats because, again, we uh, we write grants for individuals seeking out these treatments. So we talk to a lot of vetted retreats, and some some have actually questioned, like, "Well, wait a minute, it's, it's a combat veteran." Um, we're not we're not so sure that we want to take that person because you know they got PTSD and we're not sure if they're going to flip out mm -hmm. and so you know we're t we're we're dealing with individuals that are like you know worst of the worst mm -hmm. in terms of um, in terms of like trauma 
and, and some other things. And a lot of these other places are just used to dealing with some people who are coming in with, I got some depression or you know, I have a little anxiety I want to deal with. So this should be definitely um, looked at and um, approached carefully. I got asked a question the other day about, basically a guy was like, hey, you know, I'm hanging out with these friends and um, they're drinking a lot and I'm not really drinking and they're smoking pot and you know, I'm not really smoking pot or when I do, I kind of like waste the weekend or waste the night. Like, what do you think? Uh, you know, how can I drink less and you know, is it cool to drink sometimes and blah, 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 right? And I, I started kind of answering the question and I was, I just sort of said, I have seen enough people's lives ruined from drugs and alcohol that I actually, at this juncture in my life, I can't even say like, hey dude, it's okay, you know, have a so I, I just can't do it, I can't do it anymore. I just, I've seen too many people's lives destroyed from drugs and alcohol. And so when, when I talk about this stuff, it's coming from someone that like is as far, I don't think I could be anymore, well I guess I could be a little bit more. I, <laughs> I, I just think that drugs and alcohol are so bad for you and I've seen them ruin so many people's lives. I've seen them ruin freaking, I, how many team guys have you seen just like, trash their lives with just alcohol. Yeah, you can't count. It's, can't it's, count. it's ridiculous. And so I can't get behind it at all. And, and yet, at the same time, I've had plenty of friends that have gone, they've done this. And what I like about what you guys are talking about, it's a hardcore screening. It's not like, oh, you feel a little bad? Okay, let's just jump right into this. It's like, hey, let's try some other protocols along the way and make sure that this is what you really need. And then I don't know if I wanna use the term last resort, because I don't know if you consider it, guys consider it a last resort, but to me it's like, okay, I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried something else, it's been uh, too much time, and I'm at a rock bottom, and I need help, and this seems like, okay, I need to get in there. Um, yeah, because from my perspective, I've seen drugs and alcohol ruin so many people's lives that I just I just can't get behind it, but, you know, here you have something that people aren't getting like addicted to it. It's not, you know, it's not like the seven or whatever you said, nine freaking prescription drugs. Prescription it's drugs. Curing addictions. Yeah. Um, so appreciate appreciate that side of it, and not just throwing this at people. Just like you know, no one should be thrown into situations like this. Um, you got to go through the proper screening and. And then go in the proper facility. Uh, you know, you guys are talking about like, you know, Fred the shaman from Wisconsin or whatever. Yeah. You know, whatever <laughs> this like, just going into random places and doing it or at a Slayer concert. It's not what we're talking about at all. Um, and like I said, it seems to have helped. I know it's helped. I know it's helped. I mean, obviously, I'm sitting here in front of you, and it helped you get back from the brink. And I've got plenty of other friends that have done the same thing. So. Um, Awesome to see this kind of progress. Probably a good place to wrap it up. Amber, you got anything else? No, I would just say um, thank you for having us. Thank you for having an open mind. I know it's you know it's, it's very nerve wracking to publicly. I'm scared of like, it. By the way, I'm sorry. If I'm scared. <laughs> like I I don't want to do anything to my brain. I don't want to like. I'm scared of it. I'm scared of. Uh, maybe it's like that weird like control thing where I don't want to but like I'm scared of, What I'm scared of is like I don't want to mess anything up. I don't want to I don't want to like I feel I, For lack of a better word, bro. I feel fine, you know, so I feel fine So I'm always like oh man, I don't I wouldn't want to do that because it makes me scared mm -hmm. uh, to, to mess something up, but that's because I feel pretty I feel pretty good right now so I think that um, My fear of it is a healthy fear. Yeah, 
And uh, but, I, think, I think that's good, though. Like, I think when you approach, you know, anything with that could be risky, like you should approach it with some fear or respect, and I reverence. guess you want to say. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's like the first time when we were playing with, you know, demo and some yeah. other stuff or you're like, ah, you know, I've been throwing a hundred grenades, you know, or a thousand grenades, like nothing can happen, but yeah. like actually something really can happen, but you approach it with respect and you, you take care and you make sure you, you tape them correctly. And you know, you, <laughs> you know, you don't pull the, you know, drop this, you know, drop the grenade, throw the spoon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, same same thing with these medicines. You know, approach them with care. Only do if me if you need to. Mm-hmm. If you feel fine and you're good, like why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've so, never done sorry, a psychedelic. Amber. No, oh, I, you haven't either. No, and I don't feel called to do it. I feel like whenever you know, you know, you know. And um, I will say that I've seen it. I've seen these medicines change the lives. Like not just help, but literally change the lives be the be a, a, the difference between life and death for countless operators and um for a lot of spouses as well I and mean, there's a lot of trauma to heal i used to catch marcus looking out the window with like this thousand yard stare and i would say like please help me understand what's going on in your head what are you thinking about right now and he would say how much better off you would be without me here how much easier your your life would be and the kids' lives would be without me here. And so I feel like anytime you walk up to that line, you have to have an open mind of like whatever works. I have totally changed the way I think about what I have been told is a drug versus a plant. Like my faith is so important to me and I feel like God has given us everything that we need on earth. A lot of these medicines, most of them, originate from plants so i had to really like check myself and i have thought that something made by man in a laboratory that's prescribed by a doctor in a lab coat is what is the cure and a plant is a drug and i've almost like flip-flopped that and i i feel like so many of these answers are found in nature and found within us and so i've just seen replicated time after time again that you give someone this opportunity with something that's God-given and totally unadultered and you create this reset and connection and like, oh, they're good. They're good. As opposed to like putting a Band-Aid after Band-Aid after Band-Aid. The U.S. government is Big Pharma's number one customer. And so, you know, getting people off of that cycle, this carousel of pharmaceuticals is this unintended byproduct of what we're doing. But man, we are seeing guys and gals really start to live again. Oh, and, yeah, I didn't even mention that, Jacka. So I was on those all those antidepressants and whatever uh, through November 11, 2017, when I went down for treatment. I haven't touched a prescription since, not anything. So it's it's pretty remarkable. And, and again, my story is like one of mm-hmm. hundreds. It's, I'm not, you know, I'm not the only one, which mm-hmm. is nice. Good to get rid of all those nasties the uh, only other thing that i want to add really quickly is another unintended um, byproduct of our work is that we've seen this incredible reunification um just this is a topic that everyone can generally agree upon is veteran health care and so we're seeing both sides of the aisle like actually come together actually want to work together actually like one another again and so i i hope that that ripple out effect continues across our nation i feel like we need healing now more than ever and um 
It's pretty surreal what's happening. It's an honor. Marcus, any closing thoughts? No. um, Just, you know, first off, thank you for having us on here. I know this was a different topic for you. Um, And again, trust me, this was nothing I ever intended out to even think about getting involved in. Um, But I I just, I see the power in it. Um, You know, and two, um, approach these medicines carefully. Uh, they're, they're not to be used at the Slayer concert. Um, I think the way we're going about it is the right way. I think the way that these are going to be introduced um, to the public uh, is going to be done correctly. I think it's going to be a really medically driven industry, at least first. You know, if it goes other routes, um, you know, it's not what we're here, what we're talking about. And so I, I – you know, I uh, I want to just tell people that if they're interested, you know, and they're searching, make sure to do their research. Um, make sure to find vetted providers that have been doing this for a long time that know what they're doing. Uh, make sure they have a coach, uh, a therapist uh, that understands um, how these medicines work. Uh, and again, you know, it's, it's why we built VETS. It's why um, I'm building Tara Mind. Uh, again, it's to provide access and affordability for, for people. And so... Um, last thing, you know, I'll say is that there's, there's hope. So if you're, you know, if you're out there and you're thinking that, uh, there's, there's nothing ahead of you, there's, there's no purpose, you know, why are you here? I promise that that is a, um, that's a temporary thought and 100% you can climb out of that. And once you do, you'll see how cool life can be and to get back to your old self or maybe invent a, a new, better, better person. We are living our best life. I, we really are. And it is such an incredible blessing. I just have to punch myself every day that this is actually happening. Marcus always says I have to get in the final word, which is there's some accuracy to that. Last word. Last word. When uh, Something else that I just thought of when you said that is that you know part of what we're doing to, re- to reverse this, these stigmas, especially around asking for help, is – Adopting more of a mindset that really, really true strength is vulnerability. I think that our society would say the opposite, but it takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable. And um, we're seeing that day in and day out of vets. Yeah, if someone, I'm going to get the last word in. <laughs> if someone thinks we like coming up here and talking about like all the shit that's gone on and, and think we enjoy this spotlight is... <laughs> fucking crazy <laughs> um, because we don't at all but uh, we definitely feel it's necessary so like now I don't even think it's about us I think it's just like this needs to be done well I mean um, thank you thank you for both of you stepping into the spotlight and I know it's a, a, a bright spotlight and I know it's a, a burning spotlight in many cases you know when you talk about being at Chad's funeral at, and and just knowing that you had to do something and you you had at least an answer for a lot of people so thank you so much for for joining us um thanks for thanks for your service um and yeah marcus thanks for your service in the teams and and for signing the dotted line and risking life and limb and you know amber i don't get the chance my wife has always said like she's my wife has zero percent chance of coming on this podcast she doesn't <laughs> like to talk to anybody she doesn't um but uh, 
for you, for all the wives, for all the spouses that, you know, you didn't put your name on that line, but you put your name on that dotted line and what the wives and spouses and families and your kids, what they go through is so harsh and yet you you're there and you supported and you continue to support and now you're supporting all the families out there and all the veterans so thanks for what you have done in the past thanks for what you're continuing to do as you help veterans get out of the darkness and move toward light and life thanks for what you're doing thank you thanks Jacko it's been awesome Thank you. With that, Marcus and Amber have left the building. So, uh, pretty dynamic story of change and a journey um, that they've been through for sure. Would you? You were sitting in the corner. You were you were off camera on that one, Echo Charles. Yeah, what do you think? Good evening, Echo. By the way. Good evening. Very interesting. It was funny. Even from the beginning, I was relating a lot because, mm. like, both our birthday. He's one year older than me. Mm-hmm. Both our birthdays in December, so we entered college later, or we were late, you know, mm-hmm. and entered college, uh, played football, mm-hmm. um, and even and how's this as far as the was it you? No, no, him. He was saying. About alcohol, right? Like, oh, how's this going to affect me? Like, mm-hmm. how can it, you know? You thought that way too? Yep, with alcohol. I was like, I'd always ask my friends, like, because I didn't start drinking until I was like 20, 21. And so I would always ask, like, hey, like, c- can you tell that you're drunk or can you tell <laughs> that you're buzzing or are you just buzzing? Then afterwards you remember, oh, I was buzzing or, you know, can you tell? <laughs> yeah. Like, what does it feel like kind of yeah. a thing? I remember relating very deeply with that small, tiny part. Um, also, you're the one who said Andy Stumpf might be one of the bigger wise asses. <laughs> he is. I'll, I'll go in record and say he's the biggest. That's, oh, dang. That was one Andy of the Stumpf getting props from Echo Charles. <laughs> Number one biggest wise ass. Yes, fully. Um, what, uh, you were talking about you think your mind, this is more of the serious one. Uh-huh. So, you know, you're, you were saying your mind is like you feel okay. So, like, you're kind of, would you say, scared to take psychedelics? Yeah. What if it jams you up, mm-hmm. right? Like, what if he did take it and it, like, made you? Because you know how, like, some people, they're so driven, but because of, like, something that's kind of off in their mind, mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of you in real that's life. That's off in my yeah. mind. Like, there's something probably significantly, like, <laughs> off with you, but it sort of, like, just by happenstance, like, works for you. You know uh, how some people yeah. are like that. So what if you took psychedelics and then, like, now you're, like, you kind of, you're kind of, like, more lazy? Or yeah, like you, I, you don't work I, as hard anymore. I don't you know? like that idea. Yeah, I know, bro. So I've even had people say like, oh, you know, you should, hey, man, you know, you should smoke pot. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, why? Be like, oh, because it kind of take your edge off. And I was like, why would I want to take my edge off? I want to sharpen that shit. <laughs> I want it to be rough. You're going to start you know sending like, um, like Christmas cards now and giving gifts. Like, oh, <laughs> you know, like you're going to do all that kind of stuff. That's what I think. I think you're going to be like, man, I've been, I've neglected the emotional elements of friendships of my life for so long. Did you get the Christmas card I sent you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I think would happen to you. That's what I think. Or are you going to like start really valuing your rest days? You know, you're going to start scheduling like two solid rest days. You're going to start exercising moderation in a bunch of things because it's better for you. Mm -hmm. Like all this stuff. You're going to change fundamentally. I wouldn't count on anything that you're saying. 
But <laughs> to the serious point of what you're saying, mm-hmm. like it does. That that kind of makes like even just where our joking is like a legitimate concern. I wouldn't want that. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be like quote more mellow. Yeah, and and the other thing is you got to remember is well, you you know me, dude. I mean, it's not like I'm walking around freaking you know. Like I go home, play guitar, whatever, watch the yeah. sunset. It's all, you know what I mean. Like yeah. that's normal stuff. Yeah, fully. What was it? You ever watched RoboCop two? Uh, not sure. So, so RoboCop too. He's so you know RoboCop. He's kind of like you. He's hardcore. He mm. just goes hard. <laughs> See yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. Drop so, your weapons, or there will be trouble. Yeah, yes, exactly right. So in part two, they're like, "Hey, the RoboCops for you know he he does this whatever he does," and then they're like, "Hey, he's getting giving us a bad image." I think like some other company came in or something mm-hmm. like that, and she was like, "Um." Hey, let's make them like more appealing, you know, more and more friendly to the public and stuff. And they write all these directives and like it jams them up. That's going to be you, bro. Because they were right. But in theory, they were right. You know, but how did it cause problems? Like he'd be, he wouldn't solve crimes anymore. He'd, he'd, like, he'd start saying poems and stuff <laughs> and like some dumb stuff that doesn't really match his thing. You know, it was like uh, that. You got to watch it uh, to kind of see. But anyway, uh, that'd be you. So, yes, I am not. Uh, down with um, messing with what I've got going on right now. Mm. And so, but like I said, 10 times, I think I said it 48 times, but knowing a lot of guys that have gone through this kind of thing and it definitely, and just talking to Marcus, man, you know, and he's like, I said to him on the podcast, I'm like, dude, it's hard to even imagine him getting like mad or, mm. you know, yeah. throwing a coffee cup through a window or what, you know, like this kind He's he's chill. He's mellow. Yeah. He's and yet he's still doing great stuff. It's not like he's not getting after it. He's still in good shape. You know, he's still uh, he's got businesses going. I mean, he's a hundred percent on yeah. on on track on a bunch of different levels. So, you know, and this this stuff really helped him out. So, I'm down. I'm down for if if it helps people out for sure. I do think it should be like a last resort scenario. Look, not so close to the edge that the edge is a threat, but you know. Mm-hmm. Try some other things out. Make sure you you know. Make sure your diet's clean. Make sure you're not drinking every night and expecting things to be good in life. If you're drinking every night, you can't expect things to be good in life. Yeah, yeah I'm not saying you're gonna have a bad life, but there's a chance you are. Yeah. So clean up the diet. Get off the alcohol. I can't give any advice about the all the all the uh, prescription drugs, but you know maybe talk to your doctor about how you could get off. Some, I don't know, man. Um, he was saying downstairs and he, he made a really good point where, um, cause some people they like, you know how you say, and I, I get it cause it can seem like this, but some people are, most people with a problem with drinking, mm-hmm. they can't just stop drinking. Yeah. Like there's just, I'm not saying they can't, I'm just saying there's a lot more to it than yeah. just, oh yeah, just stop drinking, you know? Yeah. yeah. So for sure. So he was like, we were downstairs talking right after, uh, right after. Uh-huh. So he, he said it. You can't tell someone who's in the basement, you can't tell them, hey, go on, just go exercise. Oh, just go on the mat. You know, that's kind of hard to do even for a normal person. So you can't tell someone who's in the basement just to just to do that because that's hard. Mm-hmm. He's like, let's get them out of the basement first. Mm-hmm. So he's safe. They're out of the basement. Then we can start introducing them to the mats, to more exercise, to all the, this other stuff that's going to take more work, by the way. Mm-hmm. So you love jujitsu. I'm sure working out has been a part of your life for a very long time. So mm-hmm. it's second nature, I know. But for a lot of people, especially if they're not into working out, you're saying you want them to work out for an hour a day. Mm-hmm. Pretty much 
every day. Yep. Like that, you know, work it out freaking hard. Yeah. Well, the other key component of what you're saying is, I mean, if you remember, I, I, I like tried to nail down Marcus a bunch of times about like, what did you feel? And what he felt was not like not doing anything, like yeah. not motivated to do things. Yeah. So that what you're talking about, the, the basement, like getting someone to like, I think, oh, get him to work out. What does that mean? Well, that means you just get up and you work out. Like to me, it's this normal thing. Yeah. But for a lot of people, that might be a big step. Now, listen, it could be a smaller step if you put your mind to it. And you know it's going to help you, and maybe you get the rewards for it. You commit to doing it for a certain amount of time. It's like that. We were just talking to a kid in the locker room. He goes, "I just submitted someone for the first time in three years. <laughs> He's been training for three years. Got his yep. first submission, yeah. bro." Yeah. Yep. So, remember that was one of the uh, one of the things I said when someone said, hey, I really don't like jujitsu. How long should I train for? And I was like, train until you submit to, train until you submit to someone. Same thing with like working out, like work out until like there should be some thing that you have yeah. to do. Like, can you do a pull up? If you can't do a pull up, work out until you can do a pull up. Yeah. If you can't, you know, uh, run a mile, in less than seven minutes, work out until you can run a mile in less than seven. I'm just saying, I don't, I, those aren't the correct answers, yes. but I'm saying something along those lines because there's no, if you're not feeling the short-term reward, because let's face it, you and me, we get a short-term reward from working out just because we kind of know how it's going to feel later and we know the long-term health benefits. So even yeah. a single workout feels good to me because I know the long-term benefits and I know the... I know even the short-term benefits, so it feels good. Yeah. But if it doesn't feel good to someone and you don't know about the long-term rewards and you don't see that strategic thing, it just wasn't fun. Yeah, just another thing they're going to avoid. Yeah, just wasn't fun. So <sighs> Yeah, he said, he said he mentioned something too real briefly, mm-hmm. but it, it, there's so much to it where he, he said, I forget exactly the, the full context, but he said, um, get your heart rate up, and it's like better than most medicine. Yeah, you said yeah, he did like, say that. I'm like, man, that's so tr- that's true. And I used to tell you about this. Like, remember when I was like, kind of down for drinking every day or whatever? This was like years ago. <laughs> and sometimes you you enter in this funk, you know. And I was still working out and yeah. like doing everything, but it's just a funk. You just have a funky day the next mm-hmm. day, like you're dragging. And sometimes it would go all the way into your mind where I would have these real low level mundane feelings of what kind of what he was talking about where it's like yeah why, why bother like why do i even care about this what yeah. jujitsu like who cares like yeah. bro what I, I already you know that's the path that i went down during that conversation of like when death when you're confronted with death mm-hmm. and then the world moves on and you're like well we're all gonna end up in the same spot anyway so really kind of what's the point yeah. right yeah and I think that's the the place where you could lose, like lose the motivation to do really anything. Cause yeah. I'm thinking, dude, we're all gonna end up in the grave anyways, so whatever. And that's a horrible place to be because you forget about all the thi- all the all the beautiful things that are in life. I was listening to I was listening to uh, Jordan Peterson the other day. You know, how Jordan Peterson goes off on the like, you know, life is suffering yeah. and it's gonna be. A nightmare and it's a misery and like which I get and you know you know it's even it's not just him saying it's like religion is like all the religions are like life yeah. is suffering and the yeah. Buddha is like oh it's suffering and yeah. and I get it I get it yeah but man there's a lot of things in life that are really kind of fun and cool mm-hmm. and 
look, you're gonna have, I, I think the point of Jordan Peterson is, you look, you're gonna have suffering, right? You're gonna have suffering. That's what's gonna happen at some point, right? People are gonna get sick, people are gonna die, mm-hmm. things aren't gonna go right, you're gonna get fired, you're gonna, your business is gonna fail, like all those things are gonna happen, right? Mm-hmm. So, but to just blanket say, because of that, life, <laughs> It's, I'm gonna. I'm not just gonna go against Jordan Peterson right now. I'm going against a uh, uh, Buddha, who they say life is suffering. I'm gonna say, mm. you know what? There's suffering in life, but life is not suffering. Mm. There's a lot of cool stuff that happens. There's a lot of funny stuff that happens. You make friends. Yeah. You say some funny stuff. Y'all laugh. You've been sitting around laughing so hard uh, that it's just you can't even. It like hurts your stomach. Yeah. Have you ever had that happen? Yes, sir. It's real. Come on, man. Is that suffering now? No. No, it's not. So let's not take it to the extreme of life is suffering. There's suffering in life, and I get that. Mm-hmm. And we're 100% agreement on that. Mm-hmm. Who was it? I think Hemingway said, I think Hemingway said, if two people love each other, there can be no happy ending, mm-hmm. which is true, right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, see it, what he's Because saying. someone's yeah. going to die. Someone's going to die, yeah. And at some point, that other person's going to be sitting there crying because they lost that person. Yeah. All the, but that being said, live a happy life. You know, you take care of each other, whatever. You have family. You, you know, you, you have grandchildren. Hey, like, maybe that is a little bit of a happy ending. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I think we're leaning a little bit far into suffering right now. And yeah. look, I get it. You know, I get it, mm. man. Um, your heart is going to get broken, yeah. you know, and I'm not just talking about, oh, I'm in a relationship. I'm talking your friends die. Your heart's going to be broken. It's going to hurt. Yeah. But that's not everything. So uh, and I think, you know, from what from what Marcus is saying, um, you know, some of that visibility of the re- the good stuff yeah. comes by dealing with that other stuff and that's another thing for me um and i talk about this in discipline equals freedom field manual a little bit but i think you know i've lost friends and i've talked about it and it straight up giving eulogies mm-hmm. for my guys the, like immediately as soon as they die you're basically like writing about what you thought about them and how you felt about them and what they meant to you and how awesome they were. Like, that is so therapeutic. Mm. Even though I was doing it as my duty, mm. it also, I recognized that it was a therapeutic thing. I recognized later in life that, oh, like, how did I get through that? Oh, yeah, I wrote about them. Mm. And when you write about them, you detach from it. When you detach from it, you get to read and you get to think and you get to think through it and you get to process. And all those things happen by by writing about you know, your, your, your friend, your hero, this person, this individual that made this sacrifice. And it, it's a way of processing this stuff that I think, you know, uh, the term that Marcus used was, you know, you got to, the only way to get, to get over this stuff is to go through it. Right. Yeah, and that's yeah. sort of like you do when you write a eulogy or you write a, a letter to someone that's passed, or you talk to their parents about them. You talk to their, their siblings about them. Like that is so, such a good way to help move through the pain that you're gonna feel. And you're gonna feel pain. Mm. You're gonna suffer. But life is not suffering. There's much more to it. Mm. And a lot of it's good. 
So, yeah, I heard that everyone that I know that went through a psychedelic journey, mm-hmm. all the way, even like some people, some people I do isn't the official one. They mm-hmm. just take some mushrooms, but mm-hmm. they do it with intention. Mm-hmm. It's all worked for them. Like I know people who quit drinking. It's weird, but the the two people I know who quit drinking mm-hmm. was real surprising too. But slowly by slowly, like it came back. And then they started drinking again. Yeah. Not just all of a sudden. They didn't just be like, okay, that was fun. And now I'm drinking again. It would be like, you know, six months later, mm. they'll be like, oh, I'll just have one. And then it just slowly creeps back in, yeah. which actually went in line with what he was saying, where it's like, hey, it's not just a magic pill one time. Right. It's kind of like, right. it's kind of like a, it's like a therapy almost yeah. kind of a thing. Cause it's like, I guess it like rewires your, the way I always saw it was like, all your, the way you regard it, the way you create meaning or whatever has to do with like all your past experiences mixed mm-hmm. with how your, you know, your genetics or whatever. So all your past experiences, ups, down, traumas, no traumas, like everything kind of creates little meanings with every little interaction. So if those meanings that you created in your head are all jammed up, or even if they're, I don't know, maybe they're, everyone's going to have different meanings for different things. Mm-hmm. So what it does is it goes back to those original like meanings that you're making and, and it just jumbles them all up and kind of so you can kind of detach from the way they were formed mm-hmm. so it kind of like oh so you can make your and he made a good analogy with the snow yeah so it's like you can make your own tracks be careful but though. yeah the tracks you make could be wrong oh yeah because and because some people they'll just take it recreationally and they'll be like oh yeah it was just a trip and it opened my eyes but they don't really get any intended like positive outcome they just oh i just want to as my Little brother's wife said, some people just want to take mushrooms to fry. <laughs> and you don't then, recommend this. No. That's, <laughs> no, one time Jade was getting all deep in the, you know, in one night. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, you know, you take mushrooms and do all this stuff. And she's like, why you got to try to be all intellectual about it? Why can't you just admit some people just take mushrooms to fry? And she got all pissed. And it's funny. Uh, but yeah, that's a different thing. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But anyway. Um, all right. Well. If you want to support this podcast, um, get some Jocko Fuel. Get some Jocko Fuel Pink Mist. Have you had Pink Mist yet? I have. How do you like it? It's good. Pink lemonade. But it's, it's not good. your thing? It's it, not your it's jam? My, it's my jam just like orange is my jam. So it's like good. It's like a secondary? It's like this. Pink Mist. I taste it. Pink lemonade. Oh, yeah, good. But we already knew that kind of a thing. Mm. It's not like mango where I'm like, ooh, yeah. this is freaking mango. <laughs> Let's say, look, if you go, you have a fruit bowl. And you might be different, but this is just me. I got... A grapefruit. Uh-huh. I got orange. Yep. And I got a mango. You're going mango, huh? I'll eat the orange and I'll be like, cool. I'll have a grapefruit or pink lemonade or whatever, or lemon, whatever, good, fine. But, bro, come on. A mango? Mangoes just taste better to me. Okay. All the other stuff tastes good. Mango tastes better. All right. So we got some drinks. Discipline go. <laughs> you can get mango. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the new the new tactical tea, which is like iced tea lemonade, yeah. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean by a lot of people. A lot of people are saying that that might be the one. <laughs> you also got the new Dak Savage, which is ridiculous. So again. basically everybody. So like, okay, so a wise man named Cake Nuts once said, <laughs> he's all, everybody's showing up. So in your case, everyone, everybody. Yeah. He's like, you, me. Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> uh, Jockofuel.com. Go get some of that stuff. Get some milk. We get the we get the ready to drink milk, which is, I'm telling you what, I got problems with ready to drink milk because I'm drinking it way, it's way too easy. Too easy. Yeah. It's too easy. It's like boom. But you know what's nice? It's just like a little 30 gram protein hitter, yeah. which is an unbelievably convenient and joyous thing in life. It's just to be like, you know what? And it tastes freaking good. 
good. Uh, Pete's son Keegan, because yeah, I don't Keegan. like vanilla. You know, I don't like vanilla, right? It's not my, it's not my jam. Yeah. As you like this, it's right? real vanilla. But so I was drinking banana. I was drinking chocolate, and at camp, Pete's son Keegan, he's like. It tastes like melted vanilla ice cream. Mm. And I kind of didn't believe him, because let's face it, even people that don't like vanilla, melted vanilla ice cream is <laughs> hella good, right? You know what I'm saying, right? You know what I'm saying? That's 100% accurate. You're correct. It's 100% accurate. So I said to myself, there's no way this tastes like melted vanilla ice cream, because then it would be hella good. And sure enough, I cracked it open. It, it's it, it yep. tastes like melted vanilla ice cream. It's yeah. legitimate. Yes, it is a legitimate tasty treat. So that's the ready to drink milk. Um, check that out. Jockofuel.com. You can get it. Wawa. You can get this stuff at the vitamin shop. Vitamin shop's got pink mist in it right now. Um, yeah, there you go. Jockofuel.com. Get some of that. Also, OriginUSA.com. If you need jeans, look American-made stuff. This is this is the big thing. All right, because there's people all over the world that are enslaving children to make you a pair of pants. And you should not support that. You should support America, which means you should support originusa.com. Get jeans, get boots, get hunting gear. The hunt line's out. Um, Get, what else do you need to get? The new washes of the Delta 68 is out. I'm getting the two-year. I'm gonna get the two-year. Yeah, that's the wash. middle one, right? The middle one. I'm getting them all. You're getting them all? I freaking like them all, yeah. The Big thing time. is about the light one yeah. is if it's hot, if it's the sun out, that's going to that's gonna be cool, a lot cooler. Oh, yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Because sun, dark, whatever. Yeah, it is more summer vibes-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a different look. <laughs> but I'm ready. OriginUSA.com. Don't forget about geese as well. Oh, yeah. Because once you put on an origin gi, you literally will not wear another gi again. Yeah, I literally, literally, literally donated all my other geese. Yeah. Like just the other day. <laughs> Actually, two weeks ago. Yeah, for real. Not even they have no purpose in life. No purpose. Those old geese, uh, uh, we apologize to the, the receivers of these geese, but at least they can get them started. Yep. Then they can become a world champion and get, you know, get yeah. a good gee. Yeah, it's true. Uh, com. Get yep, some of that. It's true. Also, Jocko Store. If you want to represent, we got a new shirt out. I talked about it already, but official. I'm announcing it. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna send out an email to everybody. The 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 standard issue discipline equals freedom. Yeah. So it's the kind where, if you don't have the standard issue, are you even really represented? <laughs> I know the answer is probably That's a big yes. Pressure other, scenario. I know. I know. Well, I know. I know. The sure answer is wanna, probably you yes. You want to do it like that? <laughs> No, I'm not sure I don't want to do it like that. But what if a dude is just getting after it in seven different fronts and he's not got a standard issue t shirt? You'd be like, hey, you're not really represented. I know. That if, if, do I even have to? You're right. Yeah. You're right. And look, hey, look, I'm, okay. st- I'm still hypothesizing. For judgmental people, you might not be representing. Yeah. Or just check that, it out. That statement actually might piss some people off. I kind of got awesome. a little bit pissed when you just said yeah, that. Yeah. That's why I was like, it's kind of like you know it's a working okay. it's a okay. working uh what do you call it slogan so, yeah okay so less pressure <laughs> either way it's out and it's good yeah, it's cool people yeah. have it there's I, multiple I, versions of multiple it depending versions. on your your proclivity to support various units yes <laughs> good way to put it unless it's out there's a lot of good other cool stuff on there also the short locker New shirt every month. Creative designs for like. Was this what the it? last uh, design was? Uh, toxic productivity. Toxic productivity. <laughs> that was a good one. Oh, you got me on a surfboard with like a computer in one hand, book in another hand, papers flying everywhere. Yep. 
discipline, discipline go goes everywhere. in the wave. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yep, you can get the shirt locker jocklestore.com. Go, go to, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, do it. Leave a review. So Echo, if you want to leave that little review about Echo, where you're like, maybe he should just be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to say that Echo's best podcast ever was today when he wasn't <laughs> on it, <laughs> then you can leave that review on there. We'll yeah. be happy about it. Yeah. Uh, Jockounderground.com. Go and uh, support. Look, we don't own this platform that you're listening to this on unless you're on the underground. If you're on the underground, guess what? We will be there no matter what. We're not going to get kicked off our own platform, right? We made our own playground. Remember mm-hmm. that? You know, you get kicked out of some club, make our own club. <laughs> yep. We got kicked out of some jujitsu schools, made our own jujitsu school. Might get kicked off a platform, we got our own platform. JockoUnderground.com. If you want to support that, go to go there, sign up, register. YouTube channel, check that out. Psychological Warfare, you know. Flipside Canvas, talked about Dakota Meyer today. That's his company to hang cool stuff on your wall. Bunch of books, you know what they are. Only Cry for the Living by Holly McKay. Check that book out. Final Spin, and a bunch of other books I've written. Echelon Front, Leadership Consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. We also have an online training academy, extremeownership.com. You can't just go to the gym one time and be in shape. You can't just pick up a guitar and take one lesson and know how to play guitar. You gotta get in the game. And if you wanna get better at leadership, which will make you better at life, go to extremeownership.com. If you wanna support Marcus and Amber and their, their charity, Vet Solutions, go to vetsolutions.org. They are helping as many people as they can, and they need to help more. So go and check that out, support if you can, and if you want to help service members active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization, and she does, she also helps vets. She puts them through a bunch of protocols one of the primary protocols is the hyperbaric chamber, like like 30 and 45 day protocols where you're on clean food, you're getting hormone treatment if you need it, you're getting vitamin treatment if you need it, you're, everything is paid for. Um, that's what she's doing to help out. One of the many things she does, but that's one of the well, that's one of the things that she does. So, if you want to help that, or you want to donate, or you want to get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. Another little trip that people can take. Another little journey. I guess we're not using the word trip. Another journey that people can take. Okay, a journey in a hyperbaric chamber. You can also take a journey in the wilderness. Heroesandhorses.org. Micah Fink up there taking people in the wilderness where they're going to find and confront themselves as well. And if you want to follow Marcus and Amber and you want to follow vets, they are at Marcus Marcus Capone. At Marcus underscore Amber underscore Capone and also at Veteran Solutions, and for us on Twitter, on the Gram, on Facebook, Echoes Adequate Charles, I'm at Jocko Willink. Of course, be wary, be very wary of the algorithm. And uh, once again, thanks to Marcus and Amber for everything that you have done for the country, for the teams, and what you're doing now for the veteran community. And a, a special thanks today to all the families all the families out there, the husbands and the wives, the sons and the daughters, the mothers, the fathers, the brothers and sisters. Thanks to all you families that support our service men and women around the world and thank you for waiting and worrying and supporting them through all those sleepless nights. Your families 
make a huge sacrifice for our nation and we thank you for that and the same goes to the families of our police and law enforcement firefighters paramedics EMTs dispatchers correctional officers border patrol secret service all first responders your families support what you provide as families to our force first responders allows them to do their job so that we can live in safety and to everyone else out there look life is hard and there is suffering and it can get dark and sometimes it might seem like there's no way out and it might seem that you're alone but you're not alone and there is a way out and there is light and there is life out there and it is good but you got to hang in there you got to never give up and you got to remember that you are never out of the fight so keep on fighting and until next time Zeko and Jocko out